Chapter 20 My avatar slowly materialized in front of the control panel in my stronghold's command center, the same spot where I had been sitting the night before, engaged in my evening ritual of staring blankly at the quatrain until I drifted off to sleep and the system logged me out. I'd been staring at the damn thing for almost six months now, and I still hadn't been able to decipher it. No one had. Everyone had theories, of course, but the jade key still remained unfound, and top rankings on the scoreboard remained static. My command center was located under an armored dome embedded in the rocky surface of my own private asteroid. From here, I had a sweeping 360-degree view of the surrounding cratered landscape, stretching to the horizon in all directions. The rest of my stronghold was below ground, in a vast subterranean complex that stretched all the way to the asteroid's core. I'd coded the entire thing myself, shortly after moving to Columbus. My avatar needed a stronghold, and I didn't want any neighbors, so I'd bought the cheapest planetoid I could find, this tiny, barren asteroid in Sector 14. Its designation was S-14A316, but I'd renamed it Falco after the Austrian rap star. I wasn't a huge Falco fan or anything. I just thought it sounded like a cool name. Falco only had a few square kilometers of surface area, but it had still cost me a pretty penny. It had been worth it, though. When you owned your own world, you could build whatever you wanted there. And no one could visit it unless I granted them access, something I never gave to anyone. My stronghold was my home inside the oasis, my avatar's sanctuary. It was the one place in the entire simulation where I was truly safe. As soon as my login sequence completed, a window popped up on my display, informing me that today was an election day. Now that I was 18, I could vote in both the Oasis elections and the elections for U.S. government officials. I didn't bother with the latter because I didn't see the point. The once great country into which I'd been born now resembled its former self in name only. It didn't matter who was in charge. Those people were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and everyone knew it. Besides, now that everyone could vote from home via the Oasis, the only people who could get elected were movie stars, reality TV personalities, or radical televangelists. I did take the time to vote in the Oasis elections, however, because their outcomes actually affected me. The voting process only took me a few minutes, because I was already familiar with all of the major issues GSS had put on the ballot. It was also time to elect the president and VP of the Oasis User Council, but that was a no-brainer. Like most Gunters, I voted to re-elect Cory Doctorow and Will Wheaton, again. There were no term limits, and those two geezers had been doing a kick-ass job of protecting user rights for over a decade. When I finished voting, I adjusted my haptic chair slightly and studied the command console in front of me. It was crammed with switches, buttons, keyboards, joysticks, and display screens. A bank of security monitors on my left were linked to virtual cameras placed throughout the interior and exterior of my stronghold. To my right, 
another bank of monitors displayed all of my favorite news and entertainment vid feeds. Among these was my own channel, Parzival TV, broadcasting obscure eclectic crap, 24-7-365. Earlier that year, GSS had added a new feature to every Oasis user's account, the POV, Personal Oasis Vid Feed Channel. It allowed anyone who paid a monthly fee to run their own streaming television network. Anyone logged into the simulation could tune in and watch your POV channel from anywhere in the world. What you aired on your channel and who you allowed to view it were entirely up to you. Most users chose to run a voyeur channel, which was like being the star of your own 24-hour reality show. Hovering virtual cameras would follow your avatar around the Oasis as you went about your day-to-day activities. You could limit access to your channel so that only your friends could watch, or you could charge viewers by the hour to access your POV. A lot of second-tier celebrities and pornographers did this, selling their virtual lives at a per-minute premium. Some people used their POV to broadcast live video of their real-world selves, or their dog, or their kids. Some people programmed nothing but old cartoons. The possibilities were endless, and the variety of stuff available seemed to grow more twisted every day. Non-stop foot fetish videos broadcast out of Eastern Europe. Amateur porn featuring deviant soccer moms in Minnesota. You name it, every flavor of weirdness the human psyche could cook up was being filmed and broadcast online. The vast wasteland of television programming had finally reached its zenith, and the average person was no longer limited to 15 minutes of fame. Now everyone could be on TV, every second of every day, whether or not anyone was watching. Parzival TV wasn't a voyeur channel. In fact, I never showed my avatar's face on my vid feed. Instead, I programmed a selection of classic 80s TV shows, retro commercials, cartoons, music videos, and movies. Lots of movies. On the weekends, I showed old Japanese monster flicks, along with some vintage anime. Whatever struck my fancy. It didn't really matter what I programmed. My avatar was still one of the high five, so my vid feed drew millions of viewers every day, regardless of what I aired, and this allowed me to sell commercial time to my various sponsors. Most of Parzival TV's regular viewers were gunters who monitored my vid feed with the hope that I'd inadvertently reveal some key piece of information about the jade key or the egg itself. I never did, of course. At the moment, Parzival TV was wrapping up a nonstop two-day Kikator Marathon. Kikator was a late 70s Japanese action show about a red and blue android who beat the crap out of rubber-suited monsters in each episode. I had a weakness for vintage kaiju and tokusatsu, shows like Spectre-Man, The Space Giants, and Supaida-Man. I pulled up my programming grid and made a few changes to my evening lineup. I cleared away the episodes of Riptide and Misfits of Science I'd programmed and dropped in a few back-to-back flicks starring Gamera, 
my favorite giant flying turtle. I thought they should be real crowd pleasers. Then, to finish off the broadcast day, I added a few episodes of Silver Spoons. Artemis also ran her own vidfeed channel, Artemivision, and I always kept one of my monitors tuned to it. Right now, she was airing her usual Monday evening fare, an episode of Square Pegs. After that would be Electra Woman and Dina Girl, followed by back-to-back episodes of Isis and Wonder Woman. Her programming lineup hadn't changed in ages, but it didn't matter. She still got killer ratings. Recently, she'd also launched her own wildly successful clothing line for full-figured female avatars under the label Artemis, M-I-S-S. She was doing really well for herself. After that night in the distracted globe, Artemis had cut off all contact with me. She blocked all of my emails, phone calls, and chat requests. She also stopped making posts to her blog. I tried everything I could think of to reach her. I sent her avatar flowers. I made multiple trips to her avatar's stronghold, an armored palace on Benatar, the small moon she owned. I dropped mixtapes and notes on her palace from the air, like lovesick bombs. Once, in a supreme act of desperation, I stood outside her palace gates for two solid hours with a boombox over my head, blasting In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel at full volume. She didn't come out. I don't even know if she was home. I'd been living in Columbus for over five months now and it had been eight long, torturous weeks since I'd last spoken to Artemis. But I hadn't spent that time moping around and feeling sorry for myself. Well, not all of it, anyway. I'd tried to enjoy my new life as a world-famous sector-hopping gunter. Even though I'd maxed out my avatar's power level, I continued to complete as many quests as possible to add to my already impressive collection of weapons, magic items, and vehicles, which I kept in a vault deep within my stronghold. Questing kept me busy and served as a welcome distraction from the growing loneliness and isolation I felt. I'd tried to reconnect with H after Artemis had dumped me, but things weren't the same. We'd grown apart, and I knew it was my fault. Our conversations were now stilted and reserved, as if we were both afraid of revealing some key piece of information the other might be able to use. I could tell he no longer trusted me, and while I'd been off obsessing over Artemis, it seemed H had become obsessed with being the first gunter to find the Jade Key. But it had been almost half a year since we'd cleared the first gate, and the Jade Key's location still remained a mystery. I hadn't spoken to H in almost a month. My last conversation with him had devolved into a shouting match, which had ended when I reminded H that he, quote, never even would have found the copper key, unquote, if I hadn't led him straight to it. He'd glared at me in silence for a second, then logged out of the chat room. Stubborn pride kept me from calling him back right away to apologize, and now it seemed like too much time had passed. Yeah, I was on a roll. In less than six months, I'd managed to wreck both of my closest friendships. I flipped over to H's channel, which he called the H-Feed. 
He was currently showing a WWF match from the late 80s featuring Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. I didn't even bother checking Daito and Shoto's channel, The Dai Show, because I knew they'd be showing some old samurai movie. That's all those guys ever aired. A few months after our confrontational first meeting in H's basement, I'd managed to form a tenuous friendship with Daito and Shoto when the three of us teamed up to complete an extended quest in Sector 22. It was my idea. I felt bad about how our first encounter had ended, and I waited for an opportunity to extend some sort of olive branch to the two samurai. It came when I discovered a hidden high-level quest called Shodai Urutoraman, on the planet Tokusatsu. The creation date in the quest's colophon said it had been launched several years after Halliday's death, which meant it couldn't have any relation to the contest. It was also a Japanese-language quest created by GSS's Hokkaido division. I could have tried to complete it on my own using the Mandarax real-time translator software installed in all Oasis accounts, but it would have been risky. Mandarax had been known to garble or misinterpret quest instructions and clues, which could easily lead to fatal mistakes. Daito and Shoto lived in Japan. They'd become national heroes there. And I knew that they both spoke Japanese and English fluently. So I'd contacted them to ask if they were interested in teaming up with me just for this one quest. They were skeptical at first, but after I described the unique nature of the quest and what I believed the payoff for solving it might be, they finally agreed. The three of us met outside the quest gate on Tokusatsu and entered it together. The quest was a recreation of all 39 episodes of the original Ultraman TV series, which had aired on Japanese television from 1966 to 1967. The show's storyline centered around a human named Hayata, who was a member of the Science Patrol, an organization devoted to fighting the hordes of giant Godzilla-like monsters that were constantly attacking Earth and threatening human civilization. When the Science Patrol encountered a threat they couldn't handle on their own, Hayata would use an alien device called a Beta Capsule to transform into an alien superbeing known as Ultraman. Then, he would proceed to kick the monster of the week's ass using all sorts of kung fu moves and energy attacks. If I'd entered the quest gate by myself, I would have automatically played through the entire series' storyline as Hayata. But because Shoto, Daito, and I had all entered at once, we were each allowed to select a different Science Patrol team member to play. We could then change or swap characters at the start of the next level or episode. The three of us took turns playing Hayata and his science patrol teammates Hoshino and Arashi. As with most quests in the Oasis, playing as a team made it easier to defeat the various enemies and complete each of the levels. It took us an entire week, often playing over 16 hours a day, before we were finally able to clear all 39 levels and complete the quest. As we stepped out of the quest gate, our avatars were each awarded a huge amount of experience points and several thousand credits. But the real prize for completing the quest was an incredibly rare artifact, Hayata's Beta Capsule. The small metal cylinder allowed the avatar who possessed it to transform into Ultraman once a day for up to three minutes. 
Since there were three of us, there was a debate over who should be allowed to keep the artifact. Parzival should have it, Shoto had said, turning to his older brother. He found this quest. We wouldn't even have known about it were it not for him. Of course, Dayato had disagreed, and he would not have been able to complete the quest without our help. He said the only fair thing to do would be to auction off the beta capsule and split the proceeds. But there was no way I could allow that. The artifact was far too valuable to sell, and I knew it would end up in the hands of the Sixers because they purchased nearly every major artifact that went up for auction. I also saw this as an opportunity to get on Daisho's good side. You should keep the beta capsule, I said. Urutoraman is Japan's greatest superhero. His powers belong in Japanese hands. They were both surprised and humbled by my generosity, especially Daito. Thank you, Pazival-san, he said, bowing low. You are a man of honor. After that, the three of us had parted as friends, if not necessarily allies, and I considered that an ample reward for my efforts. A chime sounded in my ears, and I checked the time. It was almost eight o'clock. Time to make the donuts. I was always hard up for cash, no matter how frugal I tried to be. I had several large bills to pay each month, both in the real world and in the oasis. My real-world expenses were pretty standard—rent, electricity, food, water, hardware repairs, and upgrades. My avatar's expenses were far more exotic—spacecraft repairs, teleportation fees, power cells, ammunition. I purchased my ammo in bulk, but it still wasn't cheap, and my monthly teleportation expenses were often astronomical. My search for the egg required constant travel, and GSS kept raising their teleportation fares. I'd already spent all of my remaining product endorsement dough. Most of it went toward the cost of my rig and buying my own asteroid. I earned a decent amount of money each month by selling commercial time on my POV channel and by auctioning off any unneeded magic items, armor, or weapons I acquired during my travels. But my primary source of income was my full-time job doing Oasis technical support. When I'd created my new Bryce Lynch identity, I'd given myself a college degree, along with multiple technical certifications and a long, sterling work record as an Oasis programmer and app developer. However, despite my sterling, bogus resume, the only job I'd ever been able to get was as a Tier One technical support representative at Helpful Helpdesk Incorporated, one of the contract firms GSS used to handle Oasis customer service and support. Now I worked forty hours a week, helping morons reboot their Oasis consoles and update the drivers for their haptic gloves. It was grueling work, but it paid the rent. I logged out of my own Oasis account. Then used my rig to log into a separate Oasis account I'd been issued for work. The login process completed, and I took control of a Happy Help Desk avatar, a cookie cutter Ken doll that I used to take tech support calls. This avatar appeared inside a huge virtual call center, inside a virtual cubicle, sitting at a virtual desk, in front of a virtual computer, wearing a virtual phone headset. I thought of this place as my own. Private virtual hell.
Helpful Help Desk Incorporated took millions of calls a day from all over the world. 24-7-365. One angry, befuddled cretin after another. There was no downtime between calls because there were always several hundred morons in the call queue, all of them willing to wait on hold for hours to have a tech rep hold their hand and fix their problem. Why bother looking up the solution online? Why try to figure the problem out on your own when you could have someone else do your thinking for you? As usual, my 10-hour shift passed slowly. It was impossible for help desk avatars to leave their cubicles, but I found other ways to pass the time. My work account was rigged so that I couldn't browse outside websites, but I'd hacked my visor to allow me to listen to music or stream movies off my hard drive while I took calls. When my shift finally ended and I logged out of work, I immediately logged back into my own Oasis account. I had thousands of new email messages waiting, and I could tell just by their subject lines what had happened while I'd been at work. Artemis had found the Jade Key. Chapter 21 Like other Gunters around the globe, I'd been dreading the next change on the scoreboard because I knew it was going to give the Sixers an unfair advantage. A few months after we'd all cleared the first gate, an anonymous avatar had placed an ultra-powerful artifact up for auction. It was called Findoro's Tablet of Finding, and it had unique powers that could give its owner a huge advantage in the hunt for Halliday's Easter egg. Most of the virtual items in the Oasis were created by the system at random, and they would drop when you killed an NPC or completed a quest. The rarest such items were artifacts, super-powerful magic items that gave their owners incredible abilities. Only a few hundred of these artifacts existed, and most of them dated back to the earliest days of the Oasis, when it was still primarily an MMO game. Every artifact was unique meaning that only one copy of it existed in the entire simulation. Usually, the way to obtain an artifact was to defeat some godlike villain at the end of a high-level quest. If you got lucky, the bad guy would drop an artifact when you killed him. You could also obtain an artifact by killing an avatar who had one in its inventory or by purchasing one in an online auction. Since artifacts were so rare, it was always big news when one went up for auction. Some had been known to sell for hundreds of thousands of credits, depending on their powers. The record had been set three years ago, when an artifact called the Cataclyst was auctioned off. According to its auction listing, the Cataclyst was a sort of magical bomb, and it could be used only once. When it was detonated, it would kill every single avatar and NPC in the sector, including its owner. There was no defense against it. If you were unlucky enough to be in the same sector when it went off, you were a goner, regardless of how powerful or well-protected you were. The Cataclyst had sold to an anonymous bidder for just over a million credits. The artifact still hadn't been detonated, so its new owner still had it sitting around somewhere, waiting for the right time to use it. It was something of a running joke now. When a gunter was surrounded by avatars she didn't like, she would claim to have the cataclyst in her inventory and threaten to detonate it. 
but most people suspected that the item had actually fallen into the Sixers' hands, along with countless other powerful artifacts. Findoro's tablet of finding wound up selling for even more than the cataclyst. According to the auction description, the tablet was a flat circle of polished black stone, and it had one very simple power. Once a day, its owner could write any avatar's name on its surface, and the tablet would display that avatar's location at that exact moment. However, this power had range limitations. If you were in a different oasis sector than the avatar you were trying to find, the tablet would tell you only which sector your target was currently in. If you were already in the same sector, the tablet would tell you what planet your target was currently on, or closest to if they were out in space. If you were already on the same planet as your target when you used the tablet, it would show you their exact coordinates on a map. As the artifact seller made sure to point out in his auction listing, if you used the tablet's power in conjunction with the scoreboard, it arguably became the most valuable artifact in the entire oasis. All you had to do was watch the top rankings on the scoreboard and wait until someone's score increased. The second that happened, you could write that avatar's name on the tablet, and it would tell you where they were at that exact moment. Thus, revealing the location of the key they'd just found or the gate they'd just exited. Due to the artifact's range limitations, it might take two or three attempts to narrow down the exact location of a key or gate. But even so, that was still information a lot of people would be willing to kill for. When Findoro's tablet of finding went up for auction. A huge bidding war broke out between several of the large Gunter clans, but when the auction finally ended, the tablet wound up selling to the Sixers for almost two million credits. Sorrento himself used his own IOI account to bid on the tablet. He waited until the last few seconds of the auction and then outbid everyone. He could have bid anonymously, but he obviously wanted the world to know who now possessed the artifact. It was also his way of letting those of us in the high five know that from that moment forward, whenever one of us found a key or cleared a gate, the Sixers would be tracking us, and there was nothing we could do about it. At first, I was worried the Sixers would also try to use the tablet to hunt down each of our avatars and kill us one at a time. But locating our avatars wouldn't do them any good unless we happened to be in a PVP zone at the time and were stupid enough to stay put until the Sixers could reach us. And since the tablet could be used only once a day, they would also run the risk of missing their window of opportunity if the scoreboard changed on the same day they tried to use the tablet to locate one of us. They didn't take the chance. They kept the artifact in reserve and waited for their moment. Less than a half hour after Artemis's score increase, the entire Sixer fleet was spotted converging on Sector Seven. The moment the scoreboard changed, the Sixers had obviously used Findoro's tablet of finding to try to ascertain Artemis's exact location. Luckily, the Sixer avatar using the tablet, probably Sorrento himself. Happened to be in a different sector from Artemis, so the tablet didn't reveal what planet she was on. It only told the Sixers which sector she was currently in. 
and so the entire Sixer fleet had immediately hightailed it to Sector Seven. Thanks to their complete lack of subtlety, the whole world now knew the Jade Key must be hidden somewhere in that sector. Naturally, thousands of gunters began to converge on it too. The Sixers had narrowed the search area for everyone. Luckily, Sector Seven contained hundreds of planets, moons, and other worlds, and the Jade Key could have been hidden on any one of them. I spent the rest of the day in shock, reeling at the news that I'd been dethroned. That was exactly how the newsfeed headlines put it: Parzival dethroned, Artemis new number one gunter, Sixers closing in. Once I finally got a grip. I pulled up the scoreboard and made myself stare at it for thirty solid minutes while I mentally berated myself. High scores: number one, Artemis, one hundred twenty-nine thousand; number two, Parzival, one hundred ten thousand; number three, H, one hundred eight thousand; number four, Dito, one hundred seven thousand; number five, Shoto, one hundred six thousand. Number six, IOI six double five three two one one hundred five thousand. Number seven, IOI six four three one eight seven one hundred five thousand. Number eight, IOI six two one six seven one one hundred five thousand. Number nine, IOI six seven eight three two four one hundred five thousand. Number ten, IOI six three seven three three zero one hundred five thousand. You've got no one but yourself to blame. I told myself, you let success go to your head. You slacked off on your research. What did you think lightning would strike twice? That eventually you'd just stumble across the clue you needed to find the jade key. Sitting in first place all that time gave you a false sense of security, but you don't have that problem now, do you, asshead? No, because instead of buckling down and focusing on your quest like you should have, you pissed away your lead. You wasted almost half a year screwing around and pining over some girl you've never even met in person. The girl who dumped you, the same girl who was going to end up beating you. Now, get your head back in the game, moron. Find that key. Suddenly, I wanted to win the contest more than ever. Not just for the money, I wanted to prove myself to Artemis, and I wanted the hunt to be over so that she would talk to me again, so that I could finally meet her in person, see her true face, and try to make sense of how I felt about her. I cleared the scoreboard off my display and opened up my Grail diary, which had now grown into a vast mountain of data containing every scrap of information I'd collected since the contest began. It appeared as a jumble of cascading windows floating in front of me, displaying text, maps, photos, and audio and video files, all indexed, cross-referenced, and pulsing with life. I kept the quatrain open in a window that was always on top. Four lines of text, twenty-four words, thirty-four syllables. I'd stared at them so often and for so long that they'd nearly lost all meaning. 
Looking at them again now, I had to resist the urge to scream in rage and frustration. The captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long neglected, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. I knew the answer was right there in front of me. Artemis had already figured it out. I read over my notes about John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch, and the toy plastic whistle that had made him famous in the annals of hacker lore. I still believed that these were the Captain and Whistle Halliday was referring to, but the rest of the quatrain's meaning remained a mystery. But now I possessed a new piece of information. The key was somewhere in Sector 7. So I pulled up my Oasis Atlas and began to search for planets with names I thought might somehow be related to the quatrain. I found a few worlds named after famous hackers, like Waz and Mitnick, but none named after John Draper. Sector 7 also contained hundreds of worlds named after old Usenet newsgroups, and on one of these, the planet Alt-Freaking, there was a statue of Draper posing with an ancient rotary phone in one hand and a cap-and-crunch whistle in the other. But the statue had been erected three years after Halliday's death, so I knew it was a dead end. I read through the quatrain yet again, and this time, the last two lines jumped out at me. But you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. Trophies Somewhere in Sector 7 I needed to find a collection of trophies in Sector 7. I did a quick search of my files on Halliday. From what I could tell, the only trophies he'd ever owned were the five Game Designer of the Year awards he'd won back around the turn of the century. These trophies were still on display in the GSS Museum in Columbus, but there were replicas of them on display inside the Oasis on a planet called Arcade. And Arcade was located in Sector 7. The connection seemed thin, but I still wanted to check it out. At the very least, it would make me feel like I was doing something productive for the next few hours. I glanced over at Max, who is currently doing the Samba on one of my command center's monitors. Max, prep the Vonnegut for takeoff, if you're not too busy. Max stopped dancing and smirked at me. You got it, El Comanchero! I got up and walked over to my Stronghold's elevator, which I'd modeled after the turbo lift on the original Star Trek series. I rode down four levels to my armory, a massive vault filled with storage shelves, display cases, and weapon racks. I pulled up my avatar's inventory display, which appeared as a classic paper doll diagram of my avatar, onto which I could drag and drop various items and pieces of equipment. Arcade was located in a PvP zone, so I decided to upgrade my gear and wear my Sunday best. I put on my gleaming plus 10 Hail Mail powered armor then strapped on my favorite set of blaster pistols and slung a pump-action pistol-grip shotgun across my back, along with a plus-five Vorpal Bastard sword. I also grabbed a few other essential items, an extra pair of anti-grav boots, a ring of magic resistance, an amulet of protection, some gauntlets of giant strength. I hated the idea of needing something and not having it with me, 
so I usually ended up carrying enough equipment for three Gunters. When I ran out of room on my avatar's body, I stored the additional gear in my backpack of holding. Once I was properly outfitted, I hopped back on the elevator, and a few seconds later I arrived at the entrance of my hangar, located on the bottom level of my stronghold. Pulsing blue lights lined the runway, which ran up the center of the hangar, to a massive pair of armored doors at the far end. These doors opened into the launch tunnel, which led up to a matching set of armored doors set into the asteroid's surface. Standing on the left side of the runway was my battle-worn X-Wing fighter. Parked on the right side was my DeLorean. Sitting on the runway itself was my most frequently used spacecraft, the Vonnegut. Max had already powered up the engines, and they emitted a low, steady roar that filled the hangar. The Vonnegut was a heavily modified Firefly-class transport vessel, modeled after the Serenity in the classic Firefly TV series. The ship had been named the Kaylee when I'd first obtained it, but I'd immediately rechristened it after one of my favorite 20th century novelists. Its new name was stenciled on the side of its battered gray hull. I looted the Vonnegut from a cadre of over-raptor clansmen who had foolishly attempted to hijack my X-Wing while I was cruising through a large group of worlds in Sector 11, known as the Whedonverse. The over-raptors were cocky bastards with no clue who it was they were messing with. I was in a foul mood even before they'd opened fire on me. Otherwise, I probably would have just evaded them by jumping to light speed. But that day, I decided to take their attack personally. Ships were like most other items in the Oasis. Each one had specific attributes, weapons, and speed capabilities. My X-Wing was far more maneuverable than the Overaptor's large transport ship, so it was no trouble for me to avoid the barrage from their aftermarket guns while I bombarded them with laser bolts and proton torpedoes. After I disabled their engines, I boarded the ship and proceeded to kill every avatar there. The captain tried to apologize when he saw who I was, but I wasn't in a forgiving mood. After I'd dispatched the crew, I parked my X-Wing in the cargo hold and then cruised home in my new ship. As I approached the Vonnegut, the loading ramp extended to the hangar floor. By the time I reached the cockpit, the ship was already lifting off. I heard the landing gear retract with a thud just as I seated myself at the controls. Max, lock up the house and set a course for Arcade. Aye, Captain, Max stuttered from one of the cockpit monitors. The hangar doors slid open and the Vonnegut rocketed out the launch tunnel and up into the starry sky. As the ship cleared the surface, the armored tunnel doors slammed closed behind it. I spotted several ships camped out in a high orbit above Falco. The usual suspects. Crazed fans, wannabe disciples, and aspiring bounty hunters. A few of them, the ones currently turning to follow me, were tagalongs, people who spent most of their time trying to tail prominent gunters and gather intel on their movements so they could sell the information later. I was always able to lose these idiots by jumping to light speed. A lucky thing for them. If I couldn't lose someone who was trying to tail me, I usually had no choice but to stop and kill them. As the Vonnegut made the jump to light speed, each of the planets on my view screen became a long streak of light. 
Light, light, light speed engaged, Captain. Max reported. ETA to arcade is estimated at fifty-three minutes. Fifteen, if you want to use the nearest Stargate. Stargates were strategically located throughout each sector. They were really just giant spaceship-sized teleporters. But since they charged by the mass of your ship and the distance you wanted to travel, they were normally used only by corporations or extremely wealthy avatars with credits to burn. I was neither, but under the circumstances, I was willing to splurge a little. Let's take the Stargate, Max. We're in kind of a hurry. Chapter Twenty-Two. The Vonnegut dropped out of light speed. An arcade suddenly filled the cockpit viewscreen. It stood out from the other planets in the area because it wasn't coded to look real. All of the neighboring planets were perfectly rendered, with clouds, continents, or impact craters covering their curved surfaces. But arcade had none of these features because it was home to the Oasis's largest classic video game museum, and its appearance had been designed as a tribute to the vector graphic games of the late seventies and early eighties. The planet's only surface feature was a web of glowing green dots, similar to the ground lights on an airport runway. They were spaced evenly across the globe in a perfect grid, so that from orbit. Arcade resembled the vector graphic Death Star from Atari's 1983 Star Wars arcade game. As Max piloted the Vonnegut down to the surface, I prepared for the possibility of combat by charging up my armor and buffing my avatar with several potions and nano packs. Arcade was both a PVP zone and a chaos zone, which meant that both magic and technology functioned here. So I made sure to load up all of my combat contingency macros. The Vonnegut's perfectly rendered steel loading ramp lowered to the ground, standing out in sharp contrast against the digital blackness of Arcade's surface. As I stepped off the ramp, I tapped a keypad on my right wrist. The ramp retracted, and there was a sharp hum as the ship's security system activated. A transparent blue shield appeared around the Vonnegut's hull. I gazed around at the horizon, which was just a jagged green vector line denoting mountainous terrain. Here, on the surface, Arcade looked exactly like the environment of the 1981 game Battlezone, another vector graphic classic from Atari. In the distance, a triangular volcano spewed green pixels of lava. You could run toward that volcano for days and never reach it. It always remained at the horizon. Just like in an old video game, the scenery never changed on Arcade, even if you circumnavigated the globe. Following my instructions, Max had set the Vonnegut down in a landing lot near the equator in the eastern hemisphere. The lot was empty, and the surrounding area appeared deserted. I headed toward the nearest green dot. As I approached, I could see that it was actually the mouth of an entrance tunnel—a neon green circle, ten meters in diameter, leading below ground. Arcade was a hollow planet, and the museum exhibits were all located beneath the surface. As I approached the nearest tunnel entrance, I heard loud music emanating from below. I recognized the song as "Pour Some Sugar on Me" by Def Leppard, off their Hysteria album. Epic Records, 1987. I reached the edge of the glowing green ring and jumped in. 
As my avatar plummeted down into the museum, the green vector graphic theme disappeared, and I found myself in high-resolution, full-color surroundings. Everything around me looked completely real once again. Below its surface, arcade housed thousands of classic video arcades, each one a loving recreation of an actual arcade that had once existed somewhere in the real world. Since the dawn of the Oasis, thousands of elderly users had come here and painstakingly coded virtual replicas of local arcades they remembered from their childhood, thus making them a permanent part of the museum. And each of these simulated game rooms, bowling alleys, and pizza joints was lined with classic arcade games. There was at least one copy of every coin-operated video game ever made down here. The original game ROMs were all stored in the planet's Oasis code, and their wooden game cabinets were each coded to look like the antique originals. Hundreds of shrines and exhibits devoted to various game designers and publishers were also scattered throughout the museum. The museum's various levels were comprised of vast caverns linked by a network of subterranean streets, tunnels, staircases, elevators, escalators, ladders, slides, trapdoors, and secret passageways. It was like a massive underground multi-level labyrinth. The layout made it extremely easy to get lost, so I kept a three-dimensional holographic map on my display. My avatar's present location was indicated by a flashing blue dot. I'd entered the museum next to an old arcade called Aladdin's Castle, close to the surface. I touched a point on the map near the core of the planet, indicating my destination, and the software mapped the quickest route for me to get there. I ran forward, following it. The museum was divided into layers. Here, near the planet's mantle, you could find the last coin-operated video games ever made from the first few decades of the 21st century. These were mostly dedicated simulator cabinets with first-generation haptics, vibrating chairs, and tilting hydraulic platforms. Lots of networked stock car simulators that allowed people to race each other. These games were the last of their kind. By that era, home video game consoles had already made most coin-op games obsolete. After the Oasis went online, they stopped making them altogether. As you ventured deeper into the museum, the games grew older and more archaic. Turn-of-the-century coin-ops. Lots of head-to-head -head fighting games with blocky, polygon-rendered figures beating the crap out of each other on large, flat-screen monitors. Shooting games played with crude, haptic light guns. Dancing games. Once you reached the level below that, the games all began to look identical. Each was housed in a large, rectangular wooden box containing a cathode picture tube with a set of crude game controls mounted in front of it. You used your hands and your eyes, and occasionally your feet, to play these games. There were no haptics. These games didn't make you feel anything. And the deeper I descended, the cruder the game graphics got. The museum's bottom level... Located in the planet core was a spherical room containing a shrine to the very first video game, 
Tennis for Two, invented by William Higginbotham in 1958. The game ran on an ancient analog computer and was played on a tiny oscilloscope screen about five inches in diameter. Next to it was a replica of an ancient PDP-1 computer running a copy of Space War, the second video game ever made, created by a bunch of students at MIT in 1962. Like most gunters, I'd visited arcade a few times. I'd been to the core and had played both Tennis for Two and Space War until I'd mastered them. Then I'd wandered around the museum's many levels, playing games and looking for clues Halliday might have left behind, but I'd never found anything. I kept running farther and farther down until I reached the Gregarious Simulation Systems Museum. Which was located just a few levels above the planet core. I'd been here once before too, so I knew my way around. There were exhibits devoted to all of GSS's most popular games, including several arcade ports of titles they'd originally released for home computers and consoles. It didn't take me long to find the exhibit where Halliday's five Game Designer of the Year trophies were displayed, next to a bronze statue of the man himself. Within a few minutes, I knew I was wasting my time here. The GSS museum exhibit was coded so that it was impossible to remove any of the items on display, so the trophies could not be collected. I spent a few minutes trying in vain to cut one of them free of its pedestal with a laser welding torch before calling it quits. Another dead end. This whole trip had been a waste of time. I took one last look around and headed for the exit, trying not to let my frustration get the best of me. I decided to take a different route on my way back up to the surface through a section of the museum I'd never fully explored on my previous visits. I wandered through a series of tunnels that led me into a giant, cavernous chamber. It contained a kind of underground city comprised entirely of pizza joints, bowling alleys, convenience stores. And of course, video arcades. I wandered through the maze of empty streets, then down a winding back alley that dead ended by the entrance of a small pizza shop. I froze in my tracks when I saw the name of the place. It was called Happy Time Pizza, and it was a replica of a small family-run pizza joint that had existed in Halliday's hometown in the mid-1980s. Halliday appeared to have copied the code for Happy Time Pizza from his Middletown simulation and hidden a duplicate of it here in the arcade museum. What the hell was it doing here? I'd never seen its existence mentioned on any of the Gunter message boards or strategy guides. Was it possible no one had ever spotted it before now? Halliday mentioned Happy Time Pizza several times in the almanac. So I knew he had fond memories of this place. He'd often come here after school to avoid going home. The interior recreated the atmosphere of a classic '80s pizza parlor and video arcade in loving detail. Several NPC employees stood behind the counter, tossing dough and slicing pies. I turned on my olfactory tower and discovered that I could actually smell the tomato sauce. The shop was divided into two halves: 
the game room, and the dining room. The dining room had video games in it as well. All of the glass top tables were actually sit down arcade games known as cocktail cabinets. You could sit and play Donkey Kong on the table while you ate your pizza. If I'd been hungry, I could have ordered a real slice of pizza at the counter. The order would have been forwarded to a pizza vendor near my apartment complex, the one I'd specified in my Oasis account's food service preference settings. Then a slice would have been delivered to my door in a matter of minutes, and the cost, including tip, would have been deducted from my Oasis account balance. As I walked into the game room, I heard a Brian Adams song blasting out of the speakers mounted on the carpeted walls. Brian was singing about how, everywhere he went, the kids wanted to rock. I pressed my thumb to a plate on the change machine and bought a single quarter. I scooped it out of the stainless steel tray and headed to the back of the game room, taking in all of the simulation's little details. I spotted a handwritten note taped to the marquee of a Defender game. It read, Beat the owner's high score and win a free large pizza. A Robotron game was currently displaying its high score list. Robotron allowed its all-time best player to enter an entire sentence of text beside their score instead of just their initials. And this machine's top dog had used his precious victory space to announce that Vice Principal Rundberg is a total douchebag. I continued farther into the dark electronic cave and walked up to a Pac-Man machine in the very back of the room, wedged between a Galaga and a Dig Dug. The black and yellow cabinet was covered with chips and scratches, and the garish side art was peeling. The Pac-Man game's monitor was dark, and there was an out-of-order sign taped to it. Why would Halliday include a broken game in this simulation? Was this just another atmospheric detail? Intrigued, I decided to investigate further. I pulled the game cabinet out from the wall and saw that the power cord was unplugged. I plugged it back into the wall socket and waited for the game to boot up. It seemed to work fine. As I was shoving the cabinet back into place, I spotted something. At the top of the game, resting on the metal brace that held the glass marquee in place, was a single quarter. The date on the coin was 1981 the year Pac-Man had been released. I knew that back in the 80s, placing your quarter on a game's marquee was how you reserved the next turn on the machine. But when I tried to remove the quarter, it wouldn't budge, like it was welded in place. Weird. I slapped the out-of-order sign on the neighboring Galaga cabinet and looked at the startup screen, which was listing off the game's villainous ghosts, Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde. The high score at the top of the screen was 3,333,350 points. Several things were strange about this. In the real world, Pac-Man machines didn't save their high score if they were unplugged, and the high score counter was supposed to flip over at 1 million points. But this machine displayed a high score of 3 million 333,350 points, just 10 points shy of the highest Pac-Man score possible. The only way to beat that score would be to play a perfect game. 
I felt my pulse quicken. I'd uncovered something here. Some sort of Easter egg hidden inside this old coin-op video game. It wasn't the Easter egg, just an Easter egg, some sort of challenge or puzzle, one I was almost certain had been created and placed here by Halliday. I didn't know if it had anything to do with the Jade Key. It might not be related to the egg at all. But there was only one way to find out. I would have to play a perfect game of Pac-Man. This was no easy feat. You had to play all 256 levels perfectly, all the way up to the final split screen. And you had to eat every single dot, energizer, fruit, and ghost possible along the way, without ever losing a single life. Less than 20 perfect games had been documented in the game's 60-year history. One of them, the fastest perfect game ever played, had been accomplished by James Halliday in just under four hours. He'd done it on an original Pac-Man machine located in the Gregarious Games break room. Because I knew Halliday loved the game, I'd already done a fair amount of research on Pac-Man, but I'd never managed to play a perfect game. Of course, I'd never really made a serious attempt. Up until now, I'd never had a reason to. I opened my Grail diary and pulled up all of the Pac-Man-related data I'd ever collected. The original game code, the unabridged biography of the designer Toru Iwatani, every Pac-Man strategy guide ever written, every episode of the Pac-Man cartoon series, the ingredients for Pac-Man cereal, and, of course, patterns. I had Pac-Man pattern diagrams out the wazoo, along with hundreds of hours of archived video of the best Pac-Man players in history. I'd already studied a lot of this stuff, but I skimmed over it again now to refresh my memory. Then, I closed my Grail diary and studied the Pac-Man machine in front of me, like a gunfighter sizing up an opponent. I stretched my arms rolled my head and neck around on my shoulders, and cracked my knuckles. When I dropped a quarter into the left coin slot, the game emitted a familiar electronic boop sound. I tapped the Player One button, and the first maze appeared on the screen. I wrapped my right hand around the joystick and began to play, guiding my pizza-shaped protagonist through one maze after another. Waka, 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 waka. My synthetic surroundings faded away as I focused on the game and lost myself in its ancient, two-dimensional reality. Just as with Dungeons of Daggerath, I was now playing a simulation within a simulation, a game within a game. I had several false starts. I would play for an hour or even two, then I'd make one tiny mistake and I'd have to reboot the machine and start all over. But I was now on my eighth attempt, and I'd been playing for six hours straight. I was rocking like Dawkin'. This game had been Iceman perfect so far. 255 screens in, and I still hadn't made a single mistake. I'd managed to nail all four ghosts with every single power pill until the 18th maze when they stopped turning blue altogether. And I'd snagged every bonus fruit, 
bird, bell, and key that it appeared without dying once. I was having the best game of my life. This was it. I could feel it. Everything was finally falling into place. I had the glow. There was a spot in each maze just above the starting position where it was possible to hide Pac-Man for up to 15 minutes. In that location, the ghosts couldn't find him. Using this trick, I'd been able to take two quick food and bathroom breaks during the past six hours. As I chomped my way through the 255th screen, the song Pac-Man Fever began to blast out of the game room stereo. A smile crept onto my face. I knew this had to be a small tip of the hat from Halliday. Sticking to my tried-and-true pattern one last time, I whipped the joystick right, slid into the secret door, then out the opposite side and straight down to snag the last few remaining dots, clearing the board. I took a deep breath as the outline of the blue maze began to pulse white, and then I saw it staring me in the face, the fabled split screen, the end of the game. Then. In the worst case of bad timing imaginable, a scoreboard alert flashed on my display just a few seconds after I began to play through the final screen. The top ten rankings appeared, superimposed over my view of the Pac-Man screen, and I glanced at them just long enough to see that H had now become the second person to find the Jade Key. His score had just jumped 19,000 points, putting him in second place and knocking me into third. By some miracle, I managed not to flip out. I stayed focused on my Pac-Man game. I gripped the joystick tighter, refusing to let this wreck my concentration. I was nearly finished. I only had to milk the final 6,760 possible points from this last garbled maze, and then I would finally have the high score. My heart pounded in time with the music as I cleared the unblemished left half of the maze. Then I ventured into the twisted terrain of the right half, guiding Pac-Man through the pixelated on-screen refuse of the game's depleted memory. Hidden underneath all of those junk sprites and garbled graphics were nine more dots worth ten points each. I couldn't see them, but I had their locations memorized. I quickly found and ate all nine, gaining ninety more points. Then I turned and ran into the nearest ghost, Clyde and committed Pacicide, dying for the first time in the game. Pac-Man froze and withered into nothingness with an extended Each time Pac-Man died on this final maze, the nine hidden dots reappeared on the deformed right half of the screen. So to achieve the game's maximum possible score, I had to find and eat each of those dots five more times, once with each of my five remaining lives. I did my best not to think about H, who I knew must be holding the jade key at that very moment. Right now, he was probably reading whatever clue was etched into its surface. I pulled the joystick to the right, weaving through the digital debris one final time. I could have done it blindfolded by now. I fish-hooked around Pinky to grab the two dots near the bottom, then another three in the center, and then the last four near the top. 
I'd done it. I had the new high score. 3,333,360 points. A perfect game. I took my hands off the controls and watched as all four ghosts converged on Pac-Man. Game over flashed in the center of the maze. I waited. Nothing happened. After a few seconds, the game's attract screen came back up, showing the four ghosts, their names, and their nicknames. My gaze shot to the quarter sitting on the edge of the marquee brace. Earlier, it had been welded in place, unmovable, but now it tumbled forward and fell end over end, landing directly in the palm of my avatar's hand. Then it vanished, and a message flashed on my display informing me that the quarter had automatically been added to my inventory. When I tried to take it back out and examine it, I found that I couldn't. The quarter icon remained in my inventory. I couldn't take it out or drop it. If the quarter had any magical properties, they weren't revealed in its item description, which was completely empty. To learn anything more about the quarter, I would have to cast a series of high-level divination spells on it. That would take days and require a lot of expensive spell components, and even then, there was no guarantee the spells would tell me anything. But at the moment, I was having a hard time caring all that much about the mystery of the undroppable quarter. All I could think about was that H and Artemis had now both beaten me to the Jade Key, and getting the high score on this Pac-Man game on Arcade obviously hadn't gotten me any closer to finding it myself. I really had been wasting my time here. I headed back up to the planet's surface. Just as I was sitting down in the Vonnegut's cockpit, an email from H arrived in my inbox. I felt my pulse quicken when I saw its subject line. Payback time. Holding my breath, I opened the message and read it. Dear Parzival, you and I are officially even now. Got that? I consider my debt to you hereby paid in full. Better hurry. The Sixers must already be on their way there. Good luck, H. Below his signature was an image file he'd attached to the message. It was a high-resolution scan of the instruction manual cover for the text adventure game Zork, the version released in 1980 by Personal Software for the TRS-80 Model 3. I'd played and solved Zork once, a long time ago, back during the first year of the hunt. But I'd also played hundreds of other classic text adventure games that year, including all of Zork's sequels, and so most of the details of the game had now faded in my memory. Most old text adventure games were pretty self-explanatory, so I'd never actually bothered to read the Zork instruction manual. I now knew that this had been a colossal mistake. On the manual's cover was a painting depicting a scene from the game. A swashbuckling adventurer wearing armor and a winged helmet stood with a glowing blue sword raised over his head, preparing to strike a troll cowering before him. The adventurer clutched several treasures in his other hand, and more treasures lay at his feet, scattered among human bones. A dark, fanged creature lurked just behind the hero, glowering malevolently. All of this was in the painting's foreground, but my eyes had instantly locked on what was in the background. A large, white house with its front door and windows all boarded up.
a dwelling long neglected. I stared at the image a few more seconds, just long enough to curse myself for not making the connection on my own months ago. Then I fired the Vonnegut's engines and set a course for another place in Sector 7, not far from Arcade. It was a small world called Froboz that was home to a detailed recreation of the game Zork. It was also, I now knew, the hiding place of the Jade Key. Chapter 23 Froboz was located in a group of several hundred rarely visited worlds known as the Zizi Cluster. These planets all dated back to the early days of the Oasis, and each one recreated the environment of some classic text adventure game or MUD multi-user dungeon. Each of these worlds was a kind of shrine, an interactive tribute to the Oasis's earliest ancestors. Text adventure games, often referred to as interactive fiction by modern scholars, used text to create the virtual environment the player inhabited. The game program provided you with a simple written description of your surroundings, then asked what you wanted to do next. To move around or interact with your virtual surroundings, you keyed in text commands telling the game what you wanted your avatar to do. These instructions had to be very simple, usually composed of just two or three words, such as, go south, or get sword. If a command was too complex, the game's simple parsing engine wouldn't be able to understand it. By reading and typing text, you made your way through the virtual world, collecting treasure, fighting monsters, avoiding traps, and solving puzzles until you finally reached the end of the game. The first text adventure game I'd ever played was called Colossal Cave, and initially the text-only interface had seemed incredibly simple and crude to me. But after playing for a few minutes, I quickly became immersed in the reality created by the words on the screen. Somehow, the game's simple two-sentence room descriptions were able to conjure up vivid images in my mind's eye. Zork was one of the earliest and most famous text adventure games. According to my Grail diary, I'd played the game through to the end just once, all in one day, over four years ago. Since then, in a shocking display of unforgivable ignorance, I'd somehow forgotten two very important details about the game. 1. Zork began with your character standing outside a shuttered white house. 2. Inside the living room of that white house, there was a trophy case. To complete the game, every treasure you collected had to be returned to the living room and placed inside the trophy case. Finally, the rest of the quatrain made sense. The captain conceals the jade key in a dwelling long neglected, but you can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. Decades ago, Zork and its sequels had all been licensed and recreated inside the Oasis as stunning, three-dimensional immersive simulations all located on the planet Froboz, which was named after a character in the Zork universe. So, the dwelling long neglected, the one I'd been trying to locate for the past six months, had been sitting right out in the open on Froboz this entire time. 
hiding in plain sight. I checked the ship's navigational computer. Traveling at light speed, it would take me just over 15 minutes to reach Froboz. There was a good chance the Sixers would beat me there. If they did, there would probably already be a small armada of Sixer gunships waiting in orbit around the planet when I dropped out of light speed. I would have to fight my way through them to reach the surface and then either lose them or try to find the Jade Key with them still breathing down my neck. Not a good scenario. Luckily, I had a backup plan. My Ring of Teleportation. It was one of the most valuable magic items in my inventory, looted from the horde of a red dragon I'd slain on Gygax. The ring allowed my avatar to teleport once a month to any location in the Oasis. I only used it in dire emergencies as a last-ditch means of escape or when I needed to get somewhere in a big hurry. Like right now. I quickly programmed the Vonnegut's onboard computer to autopilot the ship to Froboz. I instructed it to activate its cloaking device as soon as it dropped out of hyperspace, then locate me on the planet's surface and land somewhere nearby. If I was lucky, the Sixers wouldn't detect my ship and blast it out of the sky before it could reach me. If they did, I'd be stuck on Froboz with no way to leave while the entire Sixer army closed in on me. I engaged the Vonnegut's autopilot then activated my ring of teleportation by speaking the command word, Brundle. When the ring began to glow, I said the name of the planet where I wished to teleport. A world map of Froboz appeared on my display. It was a large world, and like the planet Middletown, its surface was covered with hundreds of identical copies of the same simulation. In this case, recreations of the Zork playing field. There were 512 copies of it, to be exact, which meant there were 512 white houses spaced out evenly across the planet's surface. I should be able to obtain the Jade Key at any one of them, so I selected one of the copies at random on the map. My ring emitted a blinding flash of light, and a split second later my avatar was there, standing on the surface of Froboz. I opened my Grail diary and located my original notes on how to solve Zork, then, I pulled up a map of the game's playing field and placed it in the corner of my display. Surveying the skies, I didn't see any sign of the Sixers, but that didn't mean they hadn't already arrived. Sorrento and his underlings had probably just teleported to one of the other playing fields. Everybody knew that the Sixers had already been camped out in Sector 7, waiting for this moment. As soon as they saw H's score increase, they would have used Findoro's Tablet of Finding and learned that he was currently on Froboz, which meant the entire Sixer Armada would already be on its way here. So I needed to get to the key as quickly as possible, then get the hell out of Dodge. I took a look around. My surroundings were eerily familiar. The opening text description in the game Zork read as follows. West of House you are standing in an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. My avatar now stood in that open field, just west of the white house. The front door of the old Victorian mansion was boarded up, and there was a mailbox just a few yards away from me at the end of the walkway leading to the house. The house was surrounded by a dense forest, and beyond it I saw a range of jagged mountain peaks. 
Glancing off to my left, I spotted a path leading to the north, right where I knew it should be. I ran around the back of the house. I found a small window there, slightly ajar, and I forced it open and climbed inside. As I expected, I found myself in the kitchen. A wooden table sat in the center of the room, and on it rested a long brown sack and a bottle of water. A chimney stood nearby, and a staircase led up to the attic. A hallway off to my left led to the living room, just like the game. But the kitchen also contained things that weren't mentioned in the game's text description of this room. A stove, a refrigerator, several wooden chairs, a sink, and a few rows of kitchen cabinets. I opened the fridge. It was full of junk food. Fossilized pizza, snack puddings, lunch meat, and a wide array of condiment packets. I checked the cupboards. They were filled with canned and dry goods, rice, pasta, soup, and cereal. One entire cupboard was crammed with boxes of vintage breakfast cereals, most of which had been discontinued before I'd been born. Fruit Loops, Honeycombs, Lucky Charms, Count Chocula, Quisp, Frosted Flakes, and hidden way at the back was a lone box of Cap'n Crunch. Printed clearly on the front of it were the words, Free Toy Whistle Inside. The Captain Conceals the Jade Key. I dumped the contents of the box out on the counter, scattering golden cereal nuggets everywhere. Then I spotted it. A small plastic whistle encased in a clear cellophane envelope. I tore off the cellophane and held the whistle in my hand. It was yellow in color, with the cartoon face of Cap'n Crunch molded on one side and a small dog on the other. The words Cap'n Crunch Bosun Whistle were embossed on either side. I raised the whistle to my avatar's lips and blew into it, but the whistle emitted no sound and nothing happened. You can only blow the whistle once the trophies are all collected. I pocketed the whistle and opened the sack on the kitchen table. I saw a clove of garlic inside, and I added it to my inventory. Then I ran west into the living room. The floor was covered with a large oriental rug. Antique furniture, the kind I'd seen in films from the 1940s, was positioned around the room. A wooden door with odd characters carved into its surface was set into the west wall. And against the opposite wall, there was a beautiful glass trophy case. It was empty. A battery-powered lantern sat on top of the case, and a shining sword was mounted on the wall directly above it. I took the sword and the lantern, then rolled up the oriental rug, uncovering the trap door I already knew was hidden underneath. I opened it, revealing a staircase that led down into a darkened cellar. I turned on the lamp. As I descended the staircase, my sword began to glow. I continued to refer to the Zork notes in my Grail diary, which reminded me exactly how to make my way through the game's labyrinth of rooms, passageways, and puzzles. I collected all 19 of the game's treasures as I went, returning repeatedly to the living room in the White House to place them in the trophy case a few at a time. Along the way, I had to do battle with several NPCs, a troll, a cyclops, and a really annoying thief. As for the legendary Gru lurking in the dark, waiting to dine on my flesh, I simply avoided him.
Aside from the Cap'n Crunch whistle hidden in the kitchen, I found no surprises or deviations from the original game. To solve this immersive three-dimensional version of Zork, I simply had to perform the exact same actions required to solve the original text-based game. By running at top speed and by never stopping to sightsee or second-guess myself, I managed to complete the game in 22 minutes. Shortly after I collected the last of the game's 19 treasures, a tiny brass bauble, a notice flashed in my display informing me that the Vonnegut had arrived outside. The autopilot had just landed the ship in the field to the west of the White House. Its cloaking device was still engaged, and its shields were up. If the Sixers were already here, in orbit around the planet, I was hoping they hadn't spotted my ship. I ran back to the living room of the White House one last time and placed the final treasure inside the trophy case. Just as in the original game, a map appeared inside the case, directing me to a hidden barrow that marked the end of the game. But I wasn't concerned with the map or with finishing the game. All of the trophies were now collected in the case. So I took out the cap and crunch whistle. It had three holes across the top and I covered the third one to generate the 2600 hertz tone that had made this whistle famous in the annals of hacker history. Then I blew one clear, shrill note. The whistle transformed into a small key, and my score on the scoreboard increased by 18,000 points. I was back in second place, a mere 1,000 points ahead of H. A second later, the entire Zork simulation reset itself. The 19 items in the trophy case vanished, returning to their original locations, and the rest of the house and the game's playing field returned to the same state in which I'd found them. As I stared at the key in the palm of my hand, I felt a brief jolt of panic. The key was silver, not the milky green color of jade. But when I turned the key over and examined it more closely, I saw that it actually appeared to be wrapped in silver foil, like a stick of gum or a bar of chocolate. I carefully peeled the wrapper away, and a key made of polished green stone was revealed inside. The Jade Key. And, just like the copper key, I saw that it had a clue etched into its surface. Continue your quest... By taking the test. I reread it several times, but I had no immediate revelations as to its meaning, so I placed the key in my inventory, then examined the wrapper. It was silver foil on one side and white paper on the other. I didn't see any markings on either side. Just then, I heard the muffled roar of approaching spacecraft and knew it must be the Sixers. It sounded like they were here in force. I pocketed the wrapper and ran out of the house. Overhead, thousands of Sixer gunships filled the sky like an angry swarm of metal wasps. The ships were separating into small groups as they descended, heading off in different directions as if to blanket the entire surface of the planet. I didn't think the Sixers would be foolish enough to try to barricade all 512 instances of the White House. That strategy had worked for them on Ludus, but only for a few hours, and they'd only had one location to barricade. The entire planet of Frobaz was in a PvP zone, and both magic and technology functioned here, which meant that all bets were off. 
There would be hordes of gunters arriving here soon, armed to the teeth. And if the Sixers tried to keep all of them at bay, it would mean war on a scale never before seen in the history of the oasis. As I continued running across the field and up the ramp of my ship, I spotted a large squadron of gunships, about a hundred or so, descending from the sky directly above my location. They appeared to be headed straight for me. Max had already powered up the Vonnegut's engines, so I shouted for him to lift off as soon as I was aboard. When I reached the cockpit controls, I threw the throttle wide open, and the descending swarm of Sixer gunships banked hard to follow me. As my ship blasted its way skyward, I began to take heavy fire from several directions, but I was lucky. My ship was fast, and my shields were top of the line, so they managed to hold up long enough for me to reach orbit. But they failed a few seconds later, and the Vonnegut's hull suffered an alarming amount of damage in the handful of seconds it took me to make the jump to light speed. It was a close call. The bastards almost got me. My ship was in bad shape, so instead of returning directly to my stronghold, I headed to Joe's Garage, an orbital starship repair shop over in Sector 10. Joe's was an honest NPC-operated establishment with reasonable rates and lightning-fast service. I used them whenever the Vonnegut needed repairs or upgrades. While Joe and his boys worked on my ship, I sent H a brief email to say thanks. I told him that whatever debt he felt he owed me was now most definitely paid in full. I also copped to being a colossally insensitive, self-centered asshole and begged him to forgive me. As soon as the repairs to my ship were finished, I headed back to my stronghold. Then, I spent the rest of the day glued to the news feeds. The word about Frobaz was out, and every gunter with the means had already teleported there. Thousands of others were arriving by spacecraft every minute to do battle with the Sixers and secure their own copy of the Jade Key. The news feeds were airing live coverage of the hundreds of large-scale battles breaking out on Frobaz around nearly every instance of the dwelling long neglected. The big Gunter clans had once again banded together to launch a coordinated attack on the Sixers' forces. It was the beginning of what would come to be known as the Battle of Frobaz, and casualties were already mounting on both sides. I also kept a close eye on the scoreboard, waiting to see evidence that the Sixers had begun to collect copies of the Jade Key while their forces held the opposition at bay. As I feared, the next score to increase was the one beside Sorrento's IOI employee number. It jumped 17,000 points, moving him into fourth place. Now that the Sixers knew exactly where and how to obtain the Jade Key, I expected to see their other Avatar's scores begin to jump as Sorrento's underlings followed his lead. But to my surprise, the next Avatar to snag the Jade Key was none other than Shoto. He did it less than 20 minutes after Sorrento. Somehow, Shoto had managed to evade the hordes of Sixers currently swarming all over the planet. Enter an instance of the White House? collect all 19 of the required treasures, and obtain his copy of the key. I continued to watch the scoreboard, expecting to see his brother Daito's score increase as well, but that never happened. Instead, a few minutes after Shoto obtained his copy of the key, Daito's name disappeared from the scoreboard entirely.
there was only one possible explanation. Diato had just been killed. Chapter 24 Over the next twelve hours, chaos continued to reign on Frobaz as every gunter in the oasis scrambled to reach the planet and join the fray. The Sixers had dispersed their grand army across the globe in a bold attempt to blockade all 512 copies of the Zork playing field. But their forces, as vast and well-equipped as they were, were spread far too thin this time. Only seven more of their avatars managed to obtain the Jade Key that day. And when the Gunter clans began their coordinated attack on the Sixers' forces, the boobs in blue began to suffer heavy casualties and were forced to pull back. Within a matter of hours, the Sixer High Command decided to deploy a new strategy. It had quickly become obvious that they wouldn't be able to maintain over 500 different blockades or fend off the massive influx of gunters. So they regrouped all of their forces around 10 adjacent instances of the Zork playing field near the planet's south pole. They installed powerful force shields over each of them and stationed armored battalions outside the shield walls. This scaled-down strategy worked and the Sixers' forces proved sufficient to hold those ten locations and prevent any other Gunters from getting inside. And there wasn't much reason for other Gunters to try, since over 500 other instances of Zork now stood wide open and unprotected. Now that the Sixers could operate undisturbed, they basically formed ten lines of avatars outside each White House and began to run them through the process of obtaining the Jade Key one after another. Everyone could plainly see what they were doing because the digits beside each IOI employee number on the scoreboard began to increase by 15,000 points. At the same time, hundreds of Gunter scores were increasing as well. Now that the location of the Jade Key was public knowledge, deciphering the quatrain and figuring out how to obtain the key was relatively easy. It was there for the taking to anyone who had already cleared the first gate. As the Battle of Frobaz drew to a close, the rankings on the scoreboard stood like this. High scores. Number 1. Artemis, 129,000. Number 2. Parzival, 128,000. Number 3. H, 127,000. Number 4. IOI, 655321, 122,000. Number 5. Shoto, 122,000. Number 6, IOI, 643187, 120,000. Number 7, IOI, 621671, 120,000. Number 8, IOI, 678324, 120,000. Number 9, IOI, 637330, 120,000. Number 10, IOI 699-423, 120,000. Even though Shoto had matched Sorrento's score of 122,000 points, Sorrento had achieved that score first, which must be the reason he'd remained in the higher slot. The relatively small point bonuses Artemis, H, Shoto, and I had received for being the first to reach the Copper and Jade Keys were what kept our names in the hallowed high-five slots. Sorrento had now earned one of these bonuses, too. 
Seeing his IOI employee number above Shoto's name made me cringe. Scrolling down, I saw that the scoreboard was now over 5,000 names long, with more being added every hour as new avatars finally managed to defeat a Sararak at Joust and collect their own instance of the Copper Key. No one on the message board seemed to know what had happened to Dieto, but the common assumption was that he'd been killed by the Sixers during the first few minutes of the Battle of Frobaz. Rumors about exactly how he had died were running rampant, but no one had actually been witness to his demise, except for maybe Shoto, and he'd vanished. I'd sent him a few chat requests, but got no reply. Like me, I assumed he was focusing all of his energy on finding the second gate before the Sixers did. I sat in my stronghold, staring at the Jade Key, and reciting the words etched into its spine over and over like a maddening mantra. Continue your quest by taking the test. Continue your quest by taking the test. Continue your quest by taking the test. Yes, but what test? What test was I supposed to take? The Kobayashi Maru? The Pepsi Challenge? Could the clue have been any more vague? I reached under my visor and rubbed my eyes in frustration. I decided I needed to take a break and get some sleep. I pulled up my avatar's inventory and placed the jade key back inside. As I did, I noticed the silver foil wrapper in the inventory slot beside it, the wrapper that had covered the jade key when it first appeared in my hand. I knew the secret to deciphering the riddle must involve the wrapper in some way, but I still couldn't sort out how. I wondered if it might be a reference to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but then decided against it. There hadn't been any golden ticket inside the wrapper. It must have some other purpose or meaning. I stared at the wrapper and pondered this until I could no longer keep my eyes open. Then I logged out and went to sleep. A few hours later, at 6.12 a.m. OST, I was jolted awake by the gut-wrenching sound of my scoreboard alarm alerting me that one of the top rankings had changed again. Filled with a growing sense of dread, I logged in and pulled up the scoreboard, unsure of what to expect. Maybe Artemis had finally cleared gate two? Or perhaps H or Shoto had achieved that honor? but all of their scores remained unchanged. To my horror, I saw that it was Sorrento's score that had increased by 200,000 points, and two gate icons now appeared beside it. Sorrento had just become the first person to find and clear the second gate. As a result, his avatar now stood in first place at the top of the scoreboard. I sat there, frozen, staring at Sorrento's employee number, silently weighing the repercussions of what had just happened. Upon exiting the gate, Sorrento would have been given a clue as to the location of the crystal key, the key that would open the third and final gate. So now, the Sixers were the only ones who possessed that clue which meant they were now closer to finding Halliday's Easter egg than anyone had ever been. I suddenly felt ill. 
and I was also having a difficult time breathing. I realized I must be having some sort of panic attack. A total and complete freakout, a massive mental meltdown, whatever you want to call it, I went a little nuts. I tried calling H, but he didn't pick up. Either he was still pissed off at me, or he had other, more pressing matters to attend to. I was about to call Shoto, but then I remembered that his brother's avatar had just been killed. He probably wasn't in a very receptive mood. I considered flying to Benatar to try to get Artemis to talk to me, but then I came to my senses. She'd had the jade key in her possession for several days, and she still hadn't been able to clear the second gate. Learning that the Sixers had done it in less than 24 hours had probably driven her into a psychotic rage, or maybe a catatonic stupor. She probably didn't feel like talking to anyone right now, least of all me. I tried calling her anyway. As usual, she didn't answer. I was so desperate to hear a familiar voice that I resorted to talking to Max. In my current state, even his glib, computer-generated voice was somehow comforting. Of course, it didn't take long for Max to run out of pre-programmed replies, and when he started to repeat himself, the illusion that I was talking to another person was shattered, and I felt even more alone. You know you've totally screwed up your life when your whole world turns to shit and the only person you have to talk to is your system agent software. I couldn't go back to sleep, so I stayed up watching the news feeds and scanning the Gunter message boards. The Sixer Armada remained on Frobaz, and their avatars were still farming copies of the Jade Key. Sorrento had obviously learned from his previous mistake— now that the Sixers alone knew the location of the second gate, they weren't going to be stupid enough to reveal its location to the world by trying to barricade it with their armada. But they were still taking full advantage of the situation. As the day progressed, the Sixers continued to walk additional avatars through the second gate. After Sorrento made it through, another ten Sixers cleared it during the following 24 hours. As each Sixer score increased by 200,000 points, Artemis, H, Shoto, and I were all pushed farther and farther down the scoreboard until we'd been knocked out of the top 10 entirely, and the scoreboard's main page displayed nothing but IOI employee numbers. The Sixers now ruled the roost. Then, when I was sure things couldn't possibly get any worse, they did. They got much, much worse. Two days after he cleared the second gate, Sorrento's score jumped another 30,000 points, indicating that he had just acquired the crystal key. I sat there in my stronghold, staring at the monitors, watching all of this unfold in stunned horror. There was no denying it. The end of the contest was at hand and it wasn't going to end like I'd always thought it would, with some noble, worthy gunter finding the egg and winning the prize. I'd been kidding myself for the past five and a half years. We all had. This story was not going to have a happy ending. The bad guys were going to win. I spent the next 24 hours in a frantic funk, obsessively checking the scoreboard every five seconds, expecting the end to come at any moment. Sorrento, or one of his many Halliday experts, had obviously been able to decipher the riddle and locate the second gate. 
But even though the proof was right there on the scoreboard, I still had a hard time believing it. Up until now, the Sixers had only made progress by tracking Artemis, H, or me. How had those same clueless asshats found the second gate on their own? Maybe they'd just gotten lucky, or perhaps they'd discovered some new and innovative way to cheat. How else could they have solved the riddle so quickly when Artemis hadn't been able to do it with several days' head start? My brain felt like hammered Play-Doh. I couldn't make any sense of the clue printed on the jade key. I was completely out of ideas, even lame ones. I didn't know what to do or where to look next. As the night went on, the Sixers continued to acquire copies of the Crystal Key. Each time one of their scores increased, it was like a knife in my heart. But I couldn't make myself stop checking the scoreboard. I was utterly transfixed. I felt myself inching toward complete hopelessness. My efforts over the past five years had been for nothing. I'd foolishly underestimated Sorrento and the Sixers, and I was about to pay the ultimate price for my hubris. Those soulless, corporate lackeys were closing in on the egg at this very moment. I could sense it with every fiber of my being. I'd already lost Artemis, and now I was going to lose the contest, too. I'd already decided what I was going to do when it happened. First, I would choose one of the kids in my official fan club, someone with no money and a first-level newbie avatar, and I would give her every item I owned. Then, I would activate the self-destruct sequence on my stronghold and sit in my command center while the whole place went up in a massive thermonuclear explosion. My avatar would die and Game Over would appear in the center of my display. Then, I would rip off my visor and leave my apartment for the first time in six months. I would ride the elevator up to the roof. Or maybe I would even take the stairs, get a little exercise. There was an arboretum on the roof of my apartment building. I had never visited it, but I'd seen photos and admired the view via webcam. A transparent plexiglass barrier had been installed around the ledge to keep people from jumping, but it was a joke. At least three determined individuals had managed to climb over it since I'd moved in. I would sit up there and breathe the unfiltered city air for a while, feeling the wind on my skin. Then I would scale the barrier and hurl myself over the side. This was my current plan. I was trying to decide what tune I should whistle as I plummeted to my death when my phone rang. It was Shoto. I wasn't in the mood to talk, so I let his call roll to Vidmail, then watched as Shoto recorded his message. It was brief. He said he needed to come to my stronghold to give me something, something Dieto had left to me in his will. When I returned his call to arrange a meeting, I could tell Shoto was an emotional wreck. His quiet voice was filled with pain, and the depth of his despair was apparent on the features of his avatar's face. He seemed utterly despondent, in even worse shape than I was. I asked Shoto why his brother had bothered to make out a will for his avatar instead of just leaving his possessions in Shoto's care. Then Daito could simply create a new avatar 
and reclaim the items his brother was holding for him. But Shoto told me that his brother would not be creating a new avatar. Not now or ever. When I asked why, he promised to explain when he saw me in person. Chapter 25 Max alerted me when Shoto arrived an hour or so later. I granted his ship clearance to enter Falco's airspace and told him to park in my hangar. Shoto's vessel was a large interplanetary trawler named the Kurosawa, modeled after a ship called the Bebop in the classic anime series Cowboy Bebop. Daito and Shoto had used it as their mobile base of operations for as long as I'd known them. The ship was so big that it barely fit through my hangar doors. I was standing on the runway to greet Shoto as he emerged from the Kurosawa. He was dressed in black mourning robes, and his face bore the same inconsolable expression I'd seen when we spoke on the phone. Parzivosan, he said, bowing low. Shoto-san. I returned the bow respectfully, then stretched out my palm, a gesture he recognized from the time we'd spent questing together. Grinning, he reached out and slipped me some skin. But then, his dark expression immediately resurfaced. This was the first time I'd seen Shoto since the quest we'd shared on Takosatsu, not counting those Daisho energy drink commercials he and his brother appeared in, and his avatar seemed to be a few inches taller than I remembered. I led him up to one of my stronghold's rarely used sitting rooms, a recreation of the living room set from Family Ties. Shoto recognized the decor and nodded his silent approval. Then, ignoring the furniture, he seated himself in the center of the floor. He sat Saiza-style, folding his legs under his thighs. I did the same, positioning myself so that our avatars faced each other. We sat in silence for a while. When Shoto was finally ready to speak, he kept his eyes on the floor. The Sixers killed my brother last night, he said, almost whispering. At first, I was too stunned to reply. You mean they killed his avatar? I asked, even though I could already tell that wasn't what he meant. Shoto shook his head. No. They broke into his apartment, pulled him out of his haptic chair, and threw him off his balcony. He lived on the 43rd floor. Shoto opened a browser window in the air beside us. It displayed a Japanese newsfeed article. I tapped it with my index finger, and the Mandarak software translated the text to English. The headline was, Another Otaku Suicide. The brief article below said that a young man, Toshiro Yoshiaki, age 22, had jumped to his death from his apartment, located on the 43rd floor of a converted hotel in Shinjuku, Tokyo, where he lived alone. I saw a school photo of Toshiro beside the article. He was a young Japanese man with long, unkempt hair and bad skin. He didn't look anything like his Oasis avatar. When Shoto saw that I'd finished reading, he closed the window. I hesitated for a moment before asking, Are you sure he didn't really commit suicide? Because his avatar had been killed? No, Shoto said. Daito 
did not commit seppuku. I'm sure of it. The Sixers broke into his apartment while we were engaged in combat with them on Frobaz. That's how they were able to defeat his avatar, by killing him in the real world. I'm sorry, Shoto. I didn't know what else to say. I knew he was telling the truth. My real name is Akihide, he said. I want you to know my true name. I smiled, then bowed, briefly pressing my forehead to the floor. I appreciate your trusting me with your true name, I said. My true name is Wade. I could no longer see the point in keeping secrets. Thank you, Wade, Shoto said, returning the bow. You're welcome, Akahide. He was silent for a moment. Then he cleared his throat and began to talk about Daito. The words poured out of him. It was obvious he needed to talk to someone about what had happened, about what he'd lost. Daito's real name was Toshiro Yoshiaki. I didn't even know that until last night, until I saw the news article. But I thought you were his brother. I'd always assumed that Daito and Shoto lived together, that they shared an apartment or something. My relationship with Daito is difficult to explain. He stopped to clear his throat. We were not brothers, not in real life. Just in the oasis. Do you understand? We only knew each other online. I never actually met him. He slowly raised his eyes to meet my gaze, to see if I was judging him. I reached out and rested a hand on his shoulder. Believe me, Shoto, I understand. H and Artemis are my two best friends, and I've never met either of them in real life either. In fact, you are one of my closest friends, too. He bowed his head. Thank you. I could tell by his voice that he was crying now. We're Gunters, I said, trying to fill the awkward silence. We live here, in the Oasis. For us, this is the only reality that has any meaning. Akihide nodded. A few moments later, he continued to talk. He told me how he and Toshiro had met six years ago, when they were both enrolled in an Oasis support group for Hikikomori, young people who had withdrawn from society and chosen to live in total isolation. Hikikomori locked themselves in a room, read manga, and cruised the oasis all day, relying on their families to bring them food. There had been Hikikomori in Japan since back before the turn of the century, but their number had skyrocketed after the hunt for Halliday's Easter egg began. Millions of young men and women all over the country had locked themselves away from the world. They sometimes called these children the missing millions. Akihide and Toshiro became best friends and spent almost every day hanging out together in the oasis. When the hunt for Halliday's Easter egg began, they'd immediately decided to join forces and search for it together. They made a perfect team, because Toshiro was a prodigy at video games, while the much younger Akahide was well-versed in American pop culture. Akahide's grandmother had attended school in the United States, and both of his parents had been born there, so Akahide had been raised on American movies and television, 
and he'd grown up learning to speak English and Japanese equally well. Akihide and Toshiro's mutual love of samurai movies served as the inspiration for their avatars' names and appearances. Shoto and Daito had grown so close that they were now like brothers. So when they created their new Gunter identities, they decided that, in the Oasis, they were brothers from that moment on. After Shoto and Daito cleared the first gate and became famous, they gave several interviews with the media. They kept their identities a secret, but they did reveal that they were both Japanese, which made them instant celebrities in Japan. They began to endorse Japanese products and had a cartoon and a live action TV series based on their exploits. At the height of their fame, Shoto had suggested to Daito that perhaps it was time for them to meet in person. Daito had flown into a rage and stopped speaking to Shoto for several days. After that, Shoto had never suggested it again. Eventually, Shoto worked his way up to telling me how Daito's avatar had died. The two of them had been aboard the Kurosawa, cruising between planets in Sector 7 when the scoreboard informed them that H had obtained the Jade Key. When that happened, they knew the Sixers would use Findoro's tablet of finding to pinpoint H's exact location and that their ships would soon be converging on it. In preparation for this, Daito and Shoto had spent the past few weeks planting microscopic tracking devices on the hulls of every Sixer gunship they could find. Using these devices, they were able to follow the gunships when they all abruptly changed course and headed for Froba's. As soon as Shoto and Daito learned that Froba's was the Sixers' destination, they'd easily deciphered the meaning of the quatrain. And by the time they reached Froba's, just a few minutes later, they'd already figured out what they needed to do to obtain the Jade Key. They landed the Kurosawa next to an instance of the White House that was still deserted. Shoto ran inside to collect the 19 treasures and get the key, while Daito remained outside to stand guard. Shoto worked quickly, and he only had two treasures left to collect when Daito informed him by comlink that ten Sixer gunships were closing in on their location. He told his brother to hurry and promised to hold off the enemy until Shoto had the Jade Key. Neither of them knew if they'd have another chance to reach it. As Shoto scrambled to get the last two treasures and place them in the trophy case, he remotely activated one of the Kurosawa's external cameras and used it to record a short video of Daito's confrontation with the approaching Sixers. Shoto opened a window and played this video clip for me, but he averted his eyes until it was over. He obviously had no desire to watch it again. On the vid feed, I saw Daito standing alone in the field beside the White House. A small fleet of Sixer gunships was descending out of the sky, and they began to fire their laser cannons as soon as they were within range. A hailstorm of fiery red bolts began to rain down all around Daito. Behind him, in the distance, I could see more Sixer gunships setting down. And each one was offloading squadrons of power armored ground troops. Daito was surrounded. The Sixers had obviously spotted the Kurosawa during its descent to the planet's surface, and they'd made killing the two samurai a priority. Daito didn't hesitate to use the ace up his sleeve. He pulled out the beta capsule, held it aloft in his right hand, and activated it. His avatar instantly changed into Ultraman. 
glowing-eyed, red and silver alien superhero. As his avatar transformed, he also grew to a height of 156 feet. The Sixer ground forces closing in on him froze in their tracks, staring up in frightened awe as Ultraman Diato snatched two gunships out of the sky and smashed them together, like a giant child playing with two tiny metal toys. He dropped the flaming wreckage to the ground and began to swat other Sixer gunships out of the sky like bothersome flies. The ships that escaped his deadly grasp banked around and sprayed him with laser bolts and machine gun fire, but both deflected harmlessly off his armored alien skin. Daito let out a booming laugh that echoed across the landscape. Then he made a cross with his arms, intersecting at the wrists. A glowing energy beam blasted forth from his hands, vaporizing half a dozen gunships unlucky enough to fly through its path. Daito turned and swept the beam over the Sixer ground forces around him, frying them like terrified ants under a magnifying glass. Daito appeared to be enjoying himself immensely, so much so that he paid little attention to the warning light embedded in the center of his chest, which had now begun to flash bright red. This was a signal that his three minutes as Ultraman had nearly elapsed and that his power was almost depleted. This time limit was Ultraman's primary weakness. If Daito failed to deactivate the beta capsule and return to human form before his three minutes were up, his avatar would die. But it was obvious that if he changed back into his human form right now, in the middle of the massive Sixer onslaught, he'd be killed instantly too. And Shoto would never be able to reach the ship. I could see the Sixer troops around Daito screaming into their comlinks for backup, and additional Sixer gunships were still arriving in droves. Daito was blasting them out of the sky one at a time with perfectly aimed bursts of his specium ray. And, with each blast he fired, the warning light on his chest pulsed faster. Then, Shoto emerged from the White House and told his brother via comlink that he'd acquired the Jade Key. In that same instant, the Sixer ground forces spotted Shoto, and sensing a much easier target, they began to redirect their fire at his avatar. Shoto made a mad dash for the Kurosawa. When he activated the boots of speed he was wearing, his avatar became a barely visible blur racing across the open field. As Shoto ran, Daito repositioned his giant form to provide him with as much cover as possible. Still firing energy blasts, he was able to keep the Sixers at bay. Then, Daito's voice broke in on the comlink. Shoto! he shouted. I think someone is here. Someone is inside. His voice cut off. At the same moment, his avatar froze as if he'd been turned to stone and a logout icon appeared directly over his head. Logging out of your Oasis account while you were engaged in combat was the same thing as committing suicide. During the logout sequence, your avatar froze in place for 60 seconds, during which time you were totally defenseless and susceptible to attack. The logout sequence was designed this way to prevent avatars from using it as an easy way to escape a fight. You had to stand your ground or retreat to a safe location before you could log out. Daito's logout sequence had been engaged at the worst possible moment. As soon as his avatar froze, he began to take heavy laser and gunfire from all directions. The red warning light on his chest began to flash faster and faster until it finally went solid red. 
When that happened, Daito's giant form fell over and collapsed. As he fell, he barely missed crushing Shoto and the Kurosawa. As he hit the ground, his avatar's body transformed and shrank back to its normal size and appearance. Then it began to disappear altogether, slowly fading out of existence. When Daito's avatar vanished completely, it left behind a small pile of spinning items on the ground, everything he'd been carrying in his inventory, including the beta capsule. He was dead. I saw another blur of motion on the vid feed as Shoto ran back to collect Daito's items. Then he looped around and ran back aboard the Kurusawa. The ship lifted off and blasted into orbit, taking heavy fire the entire way. I was reminded of my own desperate escape from Froboz. Luckily for Shoto, his brother had wiped out most of the Sixer gunships in the vicinity and reinforcements had yet to arrive. Shoto was able to reach orbit and escape by making the jump to light speed, but just barely. The video ended and Shoto closed the window. How do you think the Sixers found out where he lived? I asked. I don't know, Shoto said. Daito was careful. He covered his tracks. If they found him, they might be able to find you, too, I said. I know. I've taken precautions. Good. Shoto removed the beta capsule from his inventory and held it out to me. Daito would have wanted you to have this. I held up a hand. No. I think you should keep it. You might need it. Shoto shook his head. I have all of his other items, he said. I don't need this, and I don't want it. He held the capsule out to me, insistent. I took the artifact and examined it. It was a small metal cylinder, silver and black in color, with a red activation button on its side. Its size and shape reminded me of the lightsabers I owned. But lightsabers were a dime a dozen. I had over fifty in my collection. There was only one beta capsule, and it was a far more powerful weapon. I raised the capsule with both hands and bowed. Thank you, Shoto-san. Thank you, Parzival, he said, returning the bow. Thank you for listening. He stood up slowly. Everything about his body language seemed to signal defeat. You haven't given up yet, have you? I asked. Of course not. He straightened his body and gave me a dark smile. But finding the egg is no longer my goal. Now I have a new quest, a far more important one. And that is revenge. I nodded. Then I walked over and took down one of the samurai swords mounted on the wall and presented it to Shoto. Please, I said, accept this gift to aid you in your new quest. Shoto took the sword and drew its ornate blade a few inches from the scabbard. A Masamune? he asked, staring at the blade in wonder. I nodded. Yes. And it's a plus-five vorpal blade, too. Shoto bowed again to show his gratitude. Arigato. We rode the elevator back down to my hangar in silence. Just before he boarded his ship, Shoto turned to me. How long do you think it will take the Sixers to clear the third gate, he asked. I don't know, I said. Hopefully long enough for us to catch up with them.
It's not over until the fat lady is singing, right? I nodded. It's not over until it's over. And it's not over yet. Chapter 26 I figured it out later that night, a few hours after Shoto left my stronghold. I was sitting in my command center, holding the jade key and endlessly reciting the clue printed on its surface. Continue your quest by taking the test. In my other hand, I held the silver foil wrapper. My eyes darted from the key to the wrapper and back to the key again as I tried desperately to make the connection between them. I'd been doing this for hours, and it wasn't getting me anywhere. I sighed and put the key away, then laid the wrapper flat on the control panel in front of me. I carefully smoothed out all of its folds and wrinkles. The wrapper was square in shape, six inches long on each edge, silver foil on one side, dull white paper on the other. I pulled up some image analysis software and made a high-resolution scan of both sides of the wrapper. Then, I magnified both images on my display and studied every micrometer. I couldn't find any markings or writing anywhere on either side of the wrapper's surface. I was eating some corn chips at the time, so I was using voice commands to operate the image analysis software. I instructed it to demagnify the scan of the wrapper and center the image on my display. As I did this, it reminded me of a scene in Blade Runner, where Harrison Ford's character Deckard uses a similar voice-controlled scanner to analyze a photograph. I held up the wrapper and took another look at it. As the virtual light reflected off its foil surface, I thought about folding the wrapper into a paper airplane and sailing it across the room. That made me think of origami, which reminded me of another moment from Blade Runner, one of the final scenes in the film. And that was when it hit me. The unicorn, I whispered. The moment I said the word unicorn aloud, the wrapper began to fold on its own, there in the palm of my hand. The square piece of foil bent itself in half diagonally, creating a silver triangle. It continued to bend and fold itself into smaller triangles and even smaller diamond shapes until at last it formed a four-legged figure that then sprouted a tail, a head, and finally, a horn. The wrapper had folded itself into a silver origami unicorn, one of the most iconic images from Blade Runner. I was already riding the elevator down to my hangar and shouting at Max to prep the Vonnegut for takeoff. Continue your quest by taking the test. Now I knew exactly what test that line referred to and where I needed to go to take it. The origami unicorn had revealed everything to me. Blade Runner was referenced in the text of Anorak's Almanac no less than 14 times. It had been one of Halliday's top 10 all-time favorite films and the film was based on a novel by Philip K. Dick, one of Halliday's favorite authors. For these reasons, I'd seen Blade Runner over four dozen times, 
and had memorized every frame of the film and every line of dialogue. As the Vonnegut streaked through hyperspace, I pulled the director's cut of Blade Runner up in a window on my display, then jumped ahead to review two scenes in particular. The movie, released in 1982, is set in Los Angeles in the year 2019, in a sprawling, hyper-technological future that had never come to pass. The story follows a guy named Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford. Deckard works as a blade runner, a special type of cop who hunts down and kills replicants, genetically engineered beings that are almost indistinguishable from real humans. In fact, replicants look and act so much like real humans that the only way a Blade Runner can spot one is by using a polygraph-like device called a Voigt-Kampf machine to test them. Continue your quest by taking the test. Voigt-Kampf machines appear in only two scenes in the movie. Both of those take place inside the Terrell building, an enormous double pyramid structure that houses the Terrell Corporation, the company that manufactures the replicants. Recreations of the Terrell building were among the most common structures in the Oasis. Copies of it existed on hundreds of different planets, spread throughout all 27 sectors. This was because the code for the building was included as a free built-in template in the Oasis World Builder construction software along with hundreds of other structures borrowed from various science fiction films and television series. So, for the past 25 years, whenever someone used the World Builder software to create a new planet inside the Oasis, they could just select the Terrell building from a drop-down menu and insert a copy of it into their simulation to help fill out the skyline of whatever futuristic city or landscape they were coding. As a result, some worlds had over a dozen copies of the Terrell buildings scattered across their surfaces. I was currently hauling ass at light speed to the closest such world, a cyberpunk-themed planet in Sector 22 called Axrenox. If my suspicion was correct, every copy of the Terrell building on Axrenox contained a hidden entrance into the second gate through the Voigt-Kampf machines located inside. I wasn't worried about running into the Sixers because there was no way they could have barricaded the second gate, not with thousands of copies of the Terrell building on hundreds of different worlds. Once I reached Axronox, finding a copy of the Terrell building took only a few minutes. It was pretty hard to miss. A massive pyramid-shaped structure covering several square kilometers at its base, it towered above most of the structures adjacent to it. I zeroed in on the first instance of the building I saw and headed straight for it. My ship's cloaking device was already engaged, and I left it activated when I set the Vonnegut down on one of the Terrell building's landing pads. Then I locked the ship and activated all of its security systems, hoping they'd be enough to keep it from getting stolen until I returned. Magic didn't function here, so I couldn't just shrink the ship and put it in my pocket and leaving your vessel parked out in the open on a cyberpunk-themed world like Axronox was like asking for it to get ripped off. The Vonnegut would be a target for the first leather-clad booster gang that spotted it. 
I pulled up a map of the Terrell Building template's layout and used it to locate a roof access elevator a short distance from the platform where I'd landed. When I reached the elevator, I punched in the default security code on the code pad and crossed my fingers. I got lucky. The elevator doors hissed open. Whoever had created this section of the Axrenox cityscape hadn't bothered to reset the security codes in the template. I took this as a good sign. It meant they'd probably left everything else in the template at the default setting, too. As I rode the elevator down to the 440th floor, I powered on my armor and drew my guns. Five security checkpoints stood between the elevator and the room I needed to reach. Unless the template had been altered, 50 NPC Terrell security guard replicants would be standing between me and my destination. The shooting started as soon as the elevator doors slid open. I had to kill seven skin jobs before I could even make it out of the elevator car and into the hallway. The next ten minutes played out like the climax of a John Woo movie, one of the ones starring Chow Yun-Fat, like Hard Boiled or The Killer. I switched both of my guns to auto-fire and held down the triggers as I moved from one room to the next, mowing down every NPC in my path. The guards returned fire, but their bullets pinged harmlessly off my armor. I never ran out of ammo, because each time I fired a round, a new round was teleported into the bottom of the clip. My bullet bill this month was going to be huge. When I finally reached my destination, I punched in another code and locked the door behind me. I knew I didn't have much time. Klaxons were blaring throughout the building, and the thousands of NPC guards stationed on the floors below were probably already on their way up here to find me. My footsteps echoed as I entered the room. It was deserted, except for a large owl sitting on a golden perch. It blinked at me silently as I crossed the enormous cathedral-like room, which was a perfect recreation of the office of the Terrell Corporation's founder, Eldon Terrell. Every detail from the film had been duplicated exactly. Polished stone floors, giant marble pillars. The entire west wall was a massive floor-to-ceiling window offering a breathtaking view of the vast cityscape outside. A long conference table stood beside the window. Sitting on top of it was a Voigt Kampf machine. It was about the size of a briefcase with a row of unlabeled buttons on the front next to three small data monitors. When I walked up and sat down in front of the machine, it turned itself on. A thin robotic arm extended a circular device that looked like a retinal scanner, which locked into place directly level with the pupil of my right eye. A small bellows was built into the side of the machine, and it began to rise and fall, giving the impression that the device was breathing. I glanced around, wondering if an NPC of Harrison Ford would appear to ask me the same questions he asked Sean Young in the movie. I'd memorized all of her answers, just in case. But I waited a few seconds, and nothing happened. The machine's bellows continued to rise and fall. In the distance, the security klaxons continued to wail. I took out the jade key. The instant I did, a panel slid open in the surface of the Voigt Kampf machine, revealing a keyhole. 
I quickly inserted the jade key and turned it. The machine and the key both vanished, and in their place, the second gate appeared. It was a door-like portal resting on top of the polished conference table. Its edges glowed with the same milky jade color as the key, and just like the first gate, it appeared to lead into a vast field of stars. I leapt up on the table and jumped inside. I found myself standing just inside the entrance of a seedy-looking bowling alley with disco-era decor. The carpet was a garish pattern of green and brown swirls, and the molded plastic chairs were a faded orange color. The bowling lanes were all empty and unlit. The place was deserted. There weren't even any NPCs behind the front counter or the snack bar. I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be until I saw Middletown Lanes printed in huge letters on the wall above the bowling lanes. At first, the only sound I heard was the low hum of the fluorescent lights overhead. But then I noticed a series of faint electronic chirps emanating from off to my left. I glanced in that direction and saw a darkened alcove just beyond the snack bar. Over this cave-like entrance was a sign. Eight bright red neon letters spelled out the words, Game Room. There was a violent rush of wind and the roar of what sounded like a hurricane tearing through the bowling alley. My feet began to slide across the carpet, and I realized that my avatar was being pulled toward the game room, as if a black hole had opened up somewhere in there. As the vacuum yanked me through the game room entrance, I spotted a dozen video games inside, all from the mid to late 80s. Crime Fighters, Heavy Barrel, Vigilante, Smash TV. But I could now see that my avatar was being drawn toward one game in particular, a game that stood alone at the very back of the game room. Black Tiger, Capcom, 1987. A swirling vortex had opened in the center of the game's monitor, and it was sucking in bits of trash, paper cups, bowling shoes, everything that wasn't nailed down, including me. As my avatar neared it, I reflexively reached out and grabbed the joystick of a time pilot machine. My feet were instantly lifted off the floor as the vortex continued to pull my avatar inexorably toward it. At this point, I was actually grinning in anticipation. I was all prepared to pat myself on the back because I'd mastered Black Tiger long ago during the first year of the hunt. In the years prior to his death, when Halliday had been living in seclusion, the only thing he'd posted on his website was a brief looping animation. It showed his avatar, Anorak, sitting in his castle's library, mixing potions and poring over dusty spellbooks. This animation had run on a continuous loop for over a decade until it was finally replaced by the scoreboard on the morning Halliday died. In that animation, hanging on the wall behind Anorak, you could see a large painting of a black dragon. Gunters had filled countless message board threads arguing about the meaning of the painting, about what the black dragon signified, or whether it signified anything at all. But I'd been sure of its meaning from the start. 
In one of the earliest journal entries in Anorak's Almanac, Halliday wrote that whenever his parents would start screaming at each other, he would sneak out of the house and ride his bike to the local bowling alley to play Black Tiger because it was a game he could beat on just one quarter. AA 23, 234. For one quarter, Black Tiger lets me escape from my rotten existence for three glorious hours. Pretty good deal. Black Tiger had first been released in Japan under its original title, Buraku Doragon, Black Dragon. The game had been renamed for its American release. I deduced that the Black Dragon painting on the wall of Anorak's study had been a subtle hint that Buraku Doragon would play a key role in the hunt. So I'd studied the game until, like Halliday, I could reach the end on just one credit. After that, I continued to play it every few months just to keep from getting rusty. Now it looked as if my foresight and diligence were about to pay off. I was only able to hold on to the Time Pilot joystick for a few seconds. Then I lost my grip, and my avatar was sucked directly into the Black Tiger game's monitor. Everything went black for a moment. Then I found myself in surreal surroundings. I was now standing inside a narrow dungeon corridor. On my left was a high gray cobblestone wall with a mammoth dragon skull mounted on it. The wall stretched up and up, vanishing into the shadows above. I couldn't make out any ceiling. The dungeon floor was composed of floating, circular platforms arranged end-to-end in a long line that stretched out into the darkness ahead. To my right, beyond the platform's edge, there was nothing, just an endless, empty black void. I turned around, but there was no exit behind me, just another high cobblestone wall stretching up into the infinite blackness overhead. I looked down at my avatar's body. I now looked exactly like the hero of Black Tiger, a muscular, half-naked barbarian warrior dressed in an armored thong and a horned helmet. My right arm disappeared in a strange metal gauntlet from which hung a long, retractable chain with a spiked metal ball on the end. My right hand deftly held three throwing daggers. When I hurled them off in the black void at my right, three more identical daggers instantly appeared in my hand. When I tried jumping, I discovered that I could leap thirty feet straight up and land back on my feet with cat-like grace. Now I understood. I was about to play Black Tiger all right, but not the fifty-year-old 2D side-scrolling platform game that I had mastered. I was now standing inside a new, immersive, three-dimensional version of the game that Halliday had created. My knowledge of the original game's mechanics, levels, and enemies would definitely come in handy, but the gameplay was going to be completely different, and it would require an entirely different set of skills. The first gate had placed me inside one of Halliday's favorite movies— and now the second gate had put me inside one of his favorite video games. While I was pondering the implication of this pattern, a message began to flash on my display. Go! 
I looked around. An arrow etched into the stone wall on my left pointed the way forward. I stretched my arms and legs, cracked my knuckles, and took a deep breath. Then, readying my weapons, I ran forward, leaping from platform to platform to confront the first of my adversaries. Halliday had faithfully recreated every detail of Black Tiger's eight-level dungeon. I got off to a rough start and lost a life before I even cleared the first boss. But then I began to acclimate to playing the game in three dimensions and from a first-person perspective. Eventually, I found my groove. I pressed onward, leaping from platform to platform, attacking in midair, dodging the relentless onslaught of blobs, skeletons, snakes, mummies, minotaurs, and yes, ninjas. Each enemy I vanquished dropped a pile of zeni coins that I could later use to purchase armor, weapons, and potions from one of the bearded wise men scattered throughout each level. These. Wise men apparently thought setting up a small shop in the middle of a monster-infested dungeon was a fine idea. There were no timeouts and no way for me to pause the game. Once you entered a gate, you couldn't just stop and log out. The system wouldn't allow it. Even if you removed your visor, you would remain logged in. The only way out of a gate was to go through it, or die. I managed to clear all eight levels of the game in just under three hours. The closest I came to death was during my battle with the final boss, the Black Dragon, who, of course, looked exactly like the beast depicted in the painting in Anorak's study. I'd used up all of my extra lives, and my vitality bar was almost at zero. But I managed to keep moving and stay clear of the dragon's fiery breath. While I slowly knocked down his life meter with a steady barrage of throwing daggers, when I struck the final killing blow, the dragon crumbled into digital dust in front of me. I let out a long, exhausted sigh of relief. Then, with no transition whatsoever, I found myself back in the bowling alley game room, standing in front of the Black Tiger game. In front of me, on the game's monitor. My armored barbarian was striking a heroic pose. The following text appeared below him: "You have returned peace and prosperity to our nation. Thank you, Black Tiger. Congratulations on your strength and wisdom." Then something strange happened, something that had never happened when I'd beaten the original game. One of the wise men from the dungeon appeared on the screen with a speech balloon that said, "Thank you, I am indebted to you. Please accept a giant robot as your reward." A long row of robot icons appeared below the wise man, stretching across the screen horizontally. By moving the joystick left or right, I found that I was able to scroll through a selection of over a hundred different giant robots. When one of these robots was highlighted, a detailed list of its stats and weaponry appeared on the screen beside it. There were several robots I didn't recognize, but most were familiar. I spotted Gigantor, Transor Z, 
the Iron Giant, Jet Jaguar, the Sphinx-headed Giant Robo from Johnny Sacco and his Flying Robot, the entire Shogun Warriors toy line, and many of the mechs featured in both the Macross and Gundam anime series. Eleven of these icons were grayed out and had a red X over them, and these robots could not be identified or selected. I knew they must be the ones taken by Sorrento and the other Sixers who had cleared this gate before me. It seemed possible that I was about to be awarded a real, working recreation of whichever robot I selected, so I studied my options carefully, searching for the one I thought would be the most powerful and well-armed. But I stopped cold when I saw Leopardon, the giant transforming robot used by Supaidaman, the incarnation of Spider-Man, who appeared on Japanese TV in the late 1970s. I'd discovered Supaidaman during the course of my research and had become somewhat obsessed with the show, so I didn't care if Leopardon was the most powerful robot available. I had to have him regardless. I highlighted that icon and tapped the fire button. A 12-inch tall replica of Leopardon appeared on top of the Black Tiger cabinet. I grabbed it and placed it in my inventory. There were no instructions, and the item description field was blank. I made a mental note to examine it later when I got back to my stronghold. Meanwhile, on the Black Tiger monitor, the end credits had begun to scroll over an image of the game's barbarian hero sitting on a throne with a slender princess at his side. I respectfully read each of the programmer's names. These were all Japanese, except for the very last credit, which read, Oasis Port by J.D. Halliday. When the credits ended, the monitor went dark for a moment. Then, a symbol slowly appeared in the center of the screen, a glowing red circle with a five-pointed star inside it. The points of the star extended just beyond the outer edge of the circle. A second later, an image of the crystal key appeared, spinning slowly in the center of the glowing red star. I felt a rush of adrenaline because I recognized the red star symbol and I knew where it was meant to lead me. I snapped several screenshots just to be safe. A moment later, the monitor went dark, and the Black Tiger game cabinet melted and morphed into a door-shaped portal with glowing jade edges. The exit. I let out a triumphant cheer and jumped through it. Chapter 27 when I emerged from the gate, my avatar reappeared back inside Terrell's office. The Voigt-Kampf machine had reappeared in its original location, resting on the table beside me. I checked the time. Over three hours had passed since I'd first entered the gate. The room was deserted, save for the owl, and the security klaxons were no longer wailing. The NPC guards must have busted in and searched this area while I was still inside the gate because they no longer appeared to be looking for me. The coast was clear. I made my way back to the elevator and up to the landing platform without incident, and thanks be to Crom, the Vonnegut was still parked right where I'd left it. 
its cloaking device still engaged. I ran on board and left Axronox, jumping to light speed as soon as I reached orbit. As the Vonnegut streaked through hyperspace, headed for the nearest stargate, I pulled up one of the screenshots I'd taken of the red star symbol. Then, I opened my Grail diary and accessed the subfolder devoted to the legendary Canadian rock band Rush. Rush had been Halliday's favorite band from his teens onward. He'd once revealed in an interview that he'd coded every single one of his video games, including the Oasis, while listening exclusively to Rush albums. He often referred to Rush's three members, Neil Peart, Alex Lifeson, and Getty Lee, as the Holy Trinity, or the Gods of the North. In my Grail diary, I had every single Rush song, album, bootleg, and music video ever made. I had high-res scans of all their liner notes and album artwork. Every frame of Rush concert footage in existence. Every radio and television interview the band had ever done. Unabridged biographies on each band member, along with copies of their side projects and solo work. I pulled up the band's discography and selected the album I was looking for, 2112, Rush's classic sci-fi-themed concept album. A high-resolution scan of the album's cover appeared on my display. The band's name and the album's title were printed over a field of stars, and below that, appearing as if reflected in the surface of a rippling lake, was the symbol I'd seen on the Black Tiger Games monitor, a red, five-pointed star enclosed in a circle. When I placed the album cover side-by-side with the screenshot of the game screen, the two symbols matched exactly. 2112's title track is an epic seven-part song over 20 minutes in length. The song tells the story of an anonymous rebel living in the year 2112, a time when creativity and self-expression have been outlawed. The red star on the album's cover was the symbol of the Solar Federation, the oppressive interstellar society in the story. The Solar Federation was controlled by a group of priests who are described in Part 2 of the song titled The Temples of Syrinx. Its lyrics told me exactly where the crystal key was hidden. We are the priests of the Temples of Syrinx. Our great computers fill the hallowed halls. We are the priests of the Temples of Syrinx. All the gifts of life are held within our walls. There was a planet in Sector 21 named Syrinx. That was where I was headed now. The Oasis Atlas described Syrinx as a desolate world with rocky terrain and no NPC inhabitants. When I accessed the planet's colophon, I saw that Syrinx's author was listed as anonymous. But I knew the planet must have been coded by Halliday because its design matched the world described in 2112's liner notes. 2112 was originally released in 1976, back when most music was sold on 12-inch vinyl records. 
The records came in cardboard sleeves with artwork and a track listing printed on them. Some album sleeves opened up like a book and included more artwork and liner notes inside, along with lyrics and information about the band. As I pulled up a scan of 2112's original fold-out album sleeve, I saw that there was a second image of the red star symbol on the inside. This one depicted a naked man cowering in front of the star, both his hands raised in fear. On the opposite side of the record sleeve were the printed lyrics to all seven parts of the 2112 suite. The lyrics for each section were preceded by a paragraph of prose that augmented the narrative laid out in the lyrics. These brief vignettes were told from the point of view of 2112's anonymous protagonist. The following text preceded the lyrics to Part 1. I lie awake, staring out at the bleakness of Megadon. City and sky become one, merging into a single plane, a vast sea of unbroken gray. The twin moons... Just two pale orbs as they trace their way across the steely sky. When my ship reached Syrinx, I saw the twin moons, Bitor and Snowdog, that orbited the planet. Their names were taken from another classic Rush song. And down below, on the planet's bleak, gray surface, there were exactly 1,024 copies of Megadon, the domed city described in the liner notes. That was twice the number of Zork instances there'd been on Frobaz, so I knew the Sixers couldn't barricade them all. With my cloaking device engaged, I selected the nearest instance of the city and landed the Vonnegut just outside the wall of its dome, watching my scopes for other ships. Megadon was anchored atop a rocky plateau on the edge of an immense cliff. The city appeared to be in ruins. Its massive, transparent dome was riddled with cracks and looked as though it might collapse at any moment. I was able to enter the city by squeezing through one of the largest of these cracks at the base of the dome. The city of Megadon reminded me of an old 1950s sci-fi paperback cover painting depicting the crumbling ruins of a once great technologically advanced civilization. In the absolute center of the city, I found a towering obelisk-shaped temple with wind-blasted gray walls. A giant red star of the Solar Federation was emblazoned above the entrance. I was standing before the Temple of Syrinx. It wasn't covered by a force field or surrounded by a detachment of Sixers. There wasn't a soul in sight. I drew my guns and walked through the entrance of the temple. Inside, mammoth obelisk-shaped supercomputers stood in long rows, filling the giant cathedral-like temple. I wandered along these rows, listening to the deep hum of the machines until I finally reached the center of the temple. There, I found a raised stone altar with the five-pointed red star etched into its surface. As I stepped up to the altar, the humming of the computers ceased and the chamber grew silent. 
It appeared I was supposed to place something on the altar, an offering to the temple of Syrinx. But what kind of offering? The 12-inch Leopardon robot I'd acquired after completing the second gate didn't seem to fit. I tried placing it on the altar anyway, and nothing happened. I placed the robot back in my inventory and stood there for a moment, thinking. Then I remembered something else from the 2112 liner notes. I pulled them up and scanned over them again. There was my answer in the text that preceded Part 3, Discovery. Behind my beloved waterfall, in the little room that was hidden beneath the cave, I found it. I brushed away the dust of the years and picked it up, holding it reverently in my hands. I had no idea what it might be, but it was beautiful. I learned to lay my fingers across the wires and to turn the keys to make them sound differently. As I struck the wires with my other hand, I produced my first harmonious sounds, and soon my own music. I found the waterfall near the southern edge of the city, just inside the curved wall of the atmospheric dome. As soon as I found it, I activated my jet boots and flew over the foaming river below the falls, then passed through the waterfall itself. My haptic suit did its best to simulate the sensation of torrents of falling water striking my body, but it felt more like someone pounding on my head, shoulders, and back with a bundle of sticks. Once I'd passed through the falls to the other side, I found the opening of a cave and went inside. The cave narrowed into a long tunnel, which terminated in a small, cavernous room. I searched the room and discovered that one of the stalagmites protruding from the floor was slightly worn around the tip. I grabbed the stalagmite and pulled it toward me, but it didn't budge. I tried pushing, and it gave, bending as if on some hidden hinge, like a lever. I heard a rumble of grinding stone behind me, and I turned to see a trap door opening in the floor. A hole had also opened in the roof of the cave, casting a brilliant shaft of light down through the open trap door into a tiny hidden chamber below. I took an item out of my inventory, a wand that could detect hidden traps, magical or otherwise. I used it to make sure the area was clear, then jumped down through the trap door and landed on the dusty floor of the hidden chamber. It was a tiny cube-shaped room with a large, rough-hewn stone standing against the north wall. Embedded in the stone, neck first, was an electric guitar. I recognized its design from the 2112 concert footage I'd watched during the trip here. It was a 1974 Gibson Les Paul, the exact guitar used by Alex Lifeson during the 2112 tour. I grinned at the absurd Arthurian image of the guitar in the stone. Like every Gunter, I'd seen John Borman's film Excalibur many times, so it seemed obvious what I should do next. I reached out with my right hand, grasped the neck of the guitar, 
and pulled. The guitar came free of the stone with a prolonged metallic shing. As I held the guitar over my head, the metallic ringing segued into a guitar power chord that echoed throughout the cave. I stared down at the guitar, about to activate my jet boots again to fly back up through the trap door and out of the cave. But then an idea occurred to me, and I froze. James Halliday had taken guitar lessons for a few years in high school. That was what had first inspired me to learn to play. I'd never held an actual guitar, but on a virtual axe, I could totally shred. I searched my inventory and found a guitar pick. Then I opened my Grail diary and pulled up the sheet music for Twenty One Twelve, along with the guitar tablature for the song Discovery. Which describes the hero's discovery of the guitar in a room hidden behind a waterfall. As I began to play the song, the sound of the guitar blasted off the chamber walls and back out through the cave, despite the absence of any electricity or amplifiers. When I finished playing the first measure of discovery, a message briefly appeared, carved into the stone from which I'd pulled the guitar. The first was ringed in red metal, the second in green stone. The third is clearest crystal, and cannot be unlocked alone. In seconds, the words began to vanish, fading from the stone along with the strains of the last note I'd played on the guitar. I quickly snapped a screenshot of the riddle, already trying to sort out its meaning. It was about the third gate, of course, and how it could not be unlocked alone. Had the Sixers played the song and discovered this message? I seriously doubted it. They would have pulled the guitar from the stone and immediately returned it to the temple. If so, they probably didn't know there was some sort of trick to unlocking the third gate. And that would explain why they still hadn't reached the egg. I returned to the temple and placed the guitar on the altar. As I did, the towering computers around me began to emit a cacophony of sound, like a grand orchestra tuning up. The noise built to a deafening crescendo before ceasing abruptly. Then there was a flash of light on the altar. And the guitar transformed into the crystal key. When I reached out and picked up the key, a chime sounded, and my score on the scoreboard increased by twenty-five thousand points. When added to the two hundred thousand I'd received for clearing the second gate, that brought my total score up to three hundred fifty-three thousand points, one thousand points more than Sorrento. I was back in first place. But I knew this was no time to celebrate. I quickly examined the crystal key, tilting it up to study its glittering, faceted surface. I didn't see any words etched there, but I did find a small monogram etched in the center of the key's crystal handle—a single calligraphic letter A that I recognized immediately. 
The same letter A appeared in the character symbol box on James Halliday's first Dungeons and Dragons character sheet. The very same monogram also appeared on the dark robes of his famous Oasis avatar, Anorak. And I knew that same emblematic letter adorned the front gates of Castle Anorak, his avatar's impregnable stronghold. In the first few years of the hunt, Gunters had swarmed like angry insects to any oasis location that seemed like a possible hiding place for the Three Keys, specifically planets originally coded by Halliday himself. Chief among these was the planet Thonia, a painstaking recreation of the fantasy world Halliday had created for his high school Dungeons and Dragons campaign and also the setting of many of his early video games. Thonia had become the Gunter's mecca. Like everyone else, I'd felt obligated to make a pilgrimage there to visit Castle Anorak. But the castle was impregnable and always had been. No avatar but Anorak himself had ever been able to pass through its entrance. But now I knew there must be a way to enter Castle Anorak because the third gate was hidden somewhere inside. When I got back to my ship, I blasted off and set a course for Thonia in Sector 10. Then I began to scan the news feeds, intending to check out the media frenzy my return to first place was generating. But my score wasn't the top story. No, the big news that afternoon was that the hiding place of Halliday's Easter egg had, at long last, finally been revealed to the world. It was, the news anchors said, located somewhere on the planet Thonia inside Castle Anorak. They knew this because the entire Sixer army was now encamped around the castle. They'd arrived earlier that day, shortly after I'd cleared the second gate. I knew the timing couldn't be a coincidence. My progress must have prompted the Sixers to end their covert attempts to clear the third gate and make its location public by barricading it before I or anyone else could reach it. When I arrived at Thonia a few minutes later, I did a cloaked flyby of the castle just to gauge the lay of the land for myself. It was even worse than I'd imagined. The Sixers had installed some type of magical shield over Castle Anorak, a semi-transparent dome that completely covered the castle and the area around it. Encamped inside the shield wall was the entire Sixer army, a vast collection of troops, tanks, weapons, and vehicles surrounded the castle on all sides. Several Gunter clans were already on the scene, and they were making their first attempts to bring down the shield by launching high-yield nukes at it. Each detonation was followed by a brief atomic light show, and then the blast would dissipate harmlessly against the shield. The attacks on the shield continued for the next few hours as the news spread and more and more gunters arrived on Thonia. The clans launched every type of weapon they could think of at the shield, but nothing affected it. Not nukes, not fireballs, and not magic missiles. Eventually, a team of Gunters tried to dig a tunnel under the dome wall, and that was when it was discovered that the shield was actually a complete sphere surrounding the castle, above 
and below ground. Later that night, several high-level Gunter wizards finished casting a series of divination spells on the castle and announced on the message boards that the shield around the castle was generated by a powerful artifact called the Orb of Ozuvox, which could only be operated by a wizard who was 99th level. According to the artifact's item description, it could create a spherical shield around itself with a circumference of up to half a kilometer. This shield was impenetrable and indestructible and could vaporize just about anything that touched it. It could also be kept up indefinitely as long as the wizard operating the orb remained immobile and kept both hands on the artifact. In the days that followed, Gunters tried everything they could think of to penetrate the shield. Magic, technology, teleportation, counterspells, other artifacts. Nothing worked. There was no way to get inside. An air of hopelessness quickly swept through the Gunter community. Solos and clansmen alike were ready to throw in the towel. The Sixers had the crystal key and exclusive access to the third gate. Everyone agreed that the end was near, that the hunt was all over but the crying. During all of these developments, I somehow managed to keep my cool. There was a chance the Sixers hadn't even figured out how to open the third gate yet. Of course, they had plenty of time now. They could be slow and methodical. Sooner or later, they would stumble on the solution. But I refused to give up. Until an avatar reached Halliday's Easter egg, anything was still possible. Like any classic video game, the hunt had simply reached a new, more difficult level. A new level often required an entirely new strategy. I began to formulate a plan. A bold, outrageous plan that would require epic amounts of luck to pull off. I set this plan in motion by emailing Artemis, H, and Shoto. My message told them exactly where to find the second gate and how to obtain the crystal key. Once I was sure all three of them had received my message, I initiated the next phase of my plan. This was the part that terrified me because I knew there was a good chance it was going to end up getting me killed. But at this point, I no longer cared. I was going to reach the third gate, or die trying. Level 3 Going outside is highly overrated. Anorak's Almanac, Chapter 17, Verse 32 Chapter 28 When the IOI corporate police came to arrest me, I was right in the middle of the movie Explorers, 1985, directed by Joe Dante. It's about three kids who build a spaceship in their backyard and then fly off to meet aliens, easily one of the greatest kid flicks ever made. I'd gotten into the habit of watching it at least once a month. It kept me centered. I had a thumbnail of my apartment building's external security camera feed at the edge of my display, so I saw the IOI indentured servant retrieval transport pull up out front, siren wailing and lights flashing. Then, 
four jackbooted, riot-helmeted drop cops jumped out and ran into the building, followed by a guy in a suit. I continued to watch them on the lobby camera as they waved their IOI badges, blew past the security station, and filed onto the elevator. Now they were on their way up to my floor. Max, I muttered, noting the fear in my own voice. Execute security macro number one. Crom, strong in his mountain. This voice command instructed my computer to execute a long series of pre-programmed actions, both online and in the real world. You got it, chief, Max replied cheerfully. And a split second later, my apartment's security system switched into lockdown mode. My reinforced plate titanium war door swung down from the ceiling, slamming and locking into place over my apartment's built-in security door. On the security camera mounted in the hallway outside my apartment, I watched the four drop cops get off the elevator and sprint down the hallway to my door. The two guys in front were carrying plasma welders. The other two held industrial-strength volt-jolt stun guns. The suit, who brought up the rear, was carrying a digital clipboard. I wasn't surprised to see them. I knew why they were here. They were here to cut open my apartment and pull me out of it, like a chunk of spam being removed from a can. When they reached my door, my scanner gave them the once-over, and their ID data flashed on my display, informing me that all five of these men were IOI credit officers with a valid indenturement arrest warrant for one Bryce Lynch, the occupant of this apartment. So, in keeping with local, state, and federal law, my apartment building security system immediately opened both of my security doors to grant them entrance, but the war door that had just slammed into place kept them outside. Of course, the drop cops expected me to have redundant security, which is why they'd brought plasma welders. The IOI drone in the suit squeezed past the drop cops and gingerly pressed his thumb to my door intercom. His name and corporate title appeared on my display. Michael Wilson, IOI Credit and Collections Division, employee number IOI 481231. Wilson looked up into the lens of my hallway camera and smiled pleasantly. Mr. Lynch, he said. My name is Michael Wilson, and I'm with the Credit and Collections Division of Innovative Online Industries, he consulted his clipboard. I'm here because you have failed to make the last three payments on your IOI Visa card, which has an outstanding balance in excess of $20,000. Our records also show that you are currently unemployed and have therefore been classified as impecunious. Under current federal law, you are now eligible for mandatory indenturement. You will remain indentured until you have paid your debt to our company in full, along with all applicable interest processing and late fees and any other charges or penalties that you incur henceforth. Wilson motioned toward the drop cops. These gentlemen are here to assist me in apprehending you and escorting you to your new place of employment. We request that you open your door and grant us access to your residence. Please be aware that we are authorized to seize any personal belongings you have inside. The sale value of these items will, of course, be deducted from your outstanding credit balance. As far as I could tell, Wilson recited all of this without taking a single breath, speaking in the flat monotone of someone who repeats the same sentences all day long. After a brief pause, I replied through the intercom, Sure thing, guys. Just give me a minute to get my pants on. Then I'll be right out.
Wilson frowned. Mr. Lynch, if you do not grant us access to your residence within ten seconds, we are authorized to enter by force. The cost of any damage resulting from our forced entry, including all property damage and repair labor, will be added to your outstanding balance. Thank you. Wilson stepped away from the intercom and nodded to the others. One of the drop cops immediately powered up his welder, and when the tip began to glow molten orange, he began cutting through my war door's titanium plating. The other welder moved a few feet farther down and began to cut a hole right through the wall of my apartment. These guys had access to the building's security specs, so they knew the walls of each apartment were lined with steel plating and a layer of concrete, which they could cut through much more quickly than the titanium war door. Of course, I'd taken the precaution of reinforcing my apartment's walls, floor, and ceiling with a titanium alloy sage cage, which I'd assembled piece by piece. Once they cut through my wall, they would have to cut through the cage, too. But this would buy me only five or six extra minutes at the most, then they would be inside. I'd heard that drop cops had a nickname for this procedure, cutting an indent out of a fortified residence so they could arrest him. They called it doing a C-section. I dry-swallowed two of the anti-anxiety pills I'd ordered in preparation for this day. I'd already taken two earlier that morning, but they didn't seem to be working. Inside the Oasis, I closed all the windows on my display and set my account security level to maximum. Then, I pulled up the scoreboard just to check it one last time and reassure myself that nothing had changed and that the Sixers still hadn't won. The top ten rankings had been static for several days now. High scores. Number one, Artemis, 354,000. Number two, Parzival, 353,000. Number three, IOI, 655321, 352,000. Number four, H, 352,000. Number five, IOI 643187, 349,000. Number 6, IOI 621671, 348,000. Number 7, IOI 678324, 347,000. Number 8, Shoto, 347,000. Number 9, IOI 637330, 346,000. Number 10, IOI 699423, 346,000. Artemis, H, and Shoto had all cleared the second gate and obtained the crystal key within 48 hours of receiving my email. When Artemis received the 25,000 points for reaching the crystal key, it had put her back in first place due to the point bonuses she'd already received for finding the jade key first and the copper key second. Artemis, H, and Shoto had all tried to contact me since receiving my email, but I hadn't answered any of their phone calls, emails, or chat requests. I saw no reason to tell them what I intended to do. They couldn't do anything to help me and would probably just try to talk me out of it. There was no turning back now, anyway. I closed the scoreboard and took a long look around my stronghold, wondering if it was for the last time. Then I took several quick, deep breaths, like a deep sea diver preparing to submerge, and tapped the logout icon on my display. The oasis vanished, 
and my avatar reappeared inside my virtual office, a standalone simulation stored on my console's hard drive. I opened a console window and keyed in the command word to activate my computer's self-destruct sequence. Shitstorm. A progress meter appeared on my display, showing that my hard drive was now being zeroed out and wiped clean. Goodbye, Max, I whispered. Adios, Wade, Max said, just a few seconds before he was deleted. Sitting in my haptic chair, I could already feel the heat coming from the other side of the room. When I pulled off my visor, I saw smoke pouring in through the holes being cut in the door in the wall. It was starting to get too thick for my apartment's air purifiers to handle. I began to cough. The drop cop working on my door finished cutting his hole. The smoking circle of metal fell to the floor with a heavy metallic boom that made me jump in my chair. As the welder stepped back, another drop cop stepped forward and used a small canister to spray some sort of freezing foam around the edge of the hole, cooling off the metal so they wouldn't burn themselves when they crawled inside, which was what they were about to do. Clear! One of them shouted from out in the hallway. No visible weapons! One of the stun-gun-wielding drop cops climbed through the hole first. Suddenly, he was standing right in front of me, his weapon leveled at my face. Don't move, he shouted, or you get the juice, understand? I nodded that, yes, I understood. It occurred to me then that this cop was the first visitor I'd ever had in my apartment in all the time I'd lived there. The second drop cop to crawl inside wasn't nearly as polite. Without a word, he walked over and jammed a ball gag in my mouth. This was standard procedure because they didn't want me to issue any more voice commands to my computer. They needn't have bothered. The moment the first drop cop had entered my apartment, an incendiary device had detonated inside my computer. It was already melting to slag. When the drop cop finished strapping on the ball gag, he grabbed me by the exoskeleton of my haptic suit, yanked me out of my haptic chair like a rag doll, and threw me on the floor. The other drop cop hit the kill switch that opened my war door, and the last two drop cops rushed in, followed by Wilson the suit. I curled into a ball on the floor and closed my eyes. I started to shake involuntarily. I tried to prepare myself for what I knew was about to happen next. They were going to take me outside. Mr. Lynch, Wilson said, smiling. I hereby place you under corporate arrest. He turned to the drop cops. Tell the repo team to come on up and clear this place out. He glanced around the room and noticed the thin line of smoke now pouring out of my computer. He looked at me and shook his head. That was stupid. We could have sold that computer to help pay down your debt. I couldn't reply around the ball gag, so I just shrugged and gave him the finger. They tore off my haptic suit and left it for the repo team. I was totally naked underneath. They gave me a disposable slate-gray jumpsuit to put on with matching plastic shoes. The suit felt like sandpaper, and it began to make me itch as soon as I put it on. They'd cuffed my hands, so it wasn't easy to scratch. They dragged me out into the hall. The harsh fluorescence sucked the color out of everything and made it look like an old black-and-white film. As we rode the elevator down to the lobby, I hummed along with the Muzak as loudly as I could to show them I wasn't afraid. When one of the drop cops waved his stun gun at me, I stopped. They put a hooded winter coat on me in the lobby. They didn't want me catching pneumonia now that I was company property. 
a human resource. Then they led me outside, and sunlight hit my face for the first time in over half a year. It was snowing, and everything was covered in a thin layer of gray ice and slush. I didn't know what the temperature was, but I couldn't remember ever feeling so cold. The wind cut right to my bones. They herded me over to their transport truck. Two new indents already sat in the back, strapped into plastic seats, both wearing visors. People they'd arrested earlier that morning. The drop cops were like garbage collectors, making their daily rounds. The indent on my right was a tall, thin guy, probably a few years older than me. He looked like he might be suffering from malnutrition. The other indent was morbidly obese, and I couldn't be sure of the person's gender. I decided to think of him as male. His face was obscured by a mop of dirty blonde hair, and something that looked like a gas mask covered his nose and mouth. A thick black tube ran from the mask down to a nozzle on the floor. I wasn't sure of its purpose until he lurched forward, drawing his restraints tight, and vomited into the mask. I heard a vacuum activate, sucking the indents regurgitated Oreos down the tube and into the floor. I wondered if they stored it in an external tank or just dumped it on the street. Probably a tank. IOI would probably have his vomit analyzed and put the results in his file. You feel sick? One of the drop cops asked as he removed my ball gag. Tell me now and I'll put a mask on you. I feel great, I said, not very convincingly. Okay, but if I have to clean up your puke, I'll make sure you regret it. They shoved me inside and strapped me down directly across from the skinny guy. Two of the drop cops climbed into the back with us, stowing their plasma welders in a locker. The other two slammed the rear doors and climbed into the cab up front. As we pulled away from my apartment complex, I craned my neck to look through the transport's tinted rear windows up at the building where I'd lived for the past year. I was able to spot my window up on the 42nd floor because of its spray-painted black glass. The repo team was probably already up there by now. All of my gear was being disassembled, inventoried, tagged, boxed, and prepared for auction. Once they finished emptying out my apartment, custodial bots would scour and disinfect it. A repair crew would patch the outer wall and replace the door. IOI would be billed and the cost of the repairs would be added to my outstanding debt to the company. By mid-afternoon, the lucky Gunter who was next on the apartment building's waiting list would get a message informing him that a unit had opened up, and by this evening, the new tenant would probably already be moved in. By the time the sun went down, all evidence that I'd ever lived there would be totally erased. As the transport swung out onto High Street, I heard the tires crunch the salt crystals covering the frozen asphalt. One of the drop cops reached over and slapped a visor on my face. I found myself sitting on a sandy white beach, watching the sunset while waves crashed in front of me. This must be the simulation they used to keep in dense calm during the ride downtown. Using my cuffed hand, I pushed the visor up onto my forehead. The drop cops didn't seem to care or pay me any notice at all. So I craned my head again to stare out the window. I hadn't been out here in the real world for a long time, and I wanted to see how it had changed. Chapter 29 
A thick film of neglect still covered everything in sight: the streets, the buildings, the people. Even the snow seemed dirty. It drifted down in gray flakes, like ash after a volcanic eruption. The number of homeless people seemed to have increased drastically. Tents and cardboard shelters lined the streets, and the public parks I saw seemed to have been converted into refugee camps. As the transport rolled deeper into the city's skyscraper core, I saw people clustered on every street corner and in every vacant lot, huddled around burning barrels and portable fuel cell heaters. Others waited in line at the free solar charging stations, wearing bulky, outdated visors and haptic gloves. Their hands made small, ghostly gestures as they interacted with the far more pleasant reality of the oasis via one of GSS's free wireless access points. Finally, we reached 101 IOI Plaza in the heart of downtown. I stared out the window in silent apprehension as the corporate headquarters of Innovative Online Industries Incorporated came into view. Two rectangular skyscrapers flanking a circular one, forming the IOI corporate logo. The IOI skyscrapers were the three tallest buildings in the city. Mighty towers of steel and mirrored glass, joined by dozens of connective walkways and elevator trams. The top of each tower disappeared into the sodium vapor-drenched cloud layer above. The buildings looked identical to their headquarters in the oasis on IOI One. But here in the real world, they seemed much more impressive. The transport rolled into a parking garage at the base of the circular tower and descended a series of concrete ramps until we arrived in a large open area resembling a loading dock. A sign over a row of wide bay doors read "IOI Indentured Employee Induction Center." The other indents and I were herded off the transport, where a squad of stun gun-armed security guards was waiting to take custody of us. Our handcuffs were removed. Then another guard began to swipe each of us with a handheld retina scanner. I held my breath as he held the scanner up to my eyes. A second later, the unit beeped, and he read off the information on its display: Lynch, Bryce, age twenty-two, full citizenship. No criminal record. Credit default indenturement. He nodded to himself and tapped a series of icons on his clipboard. Then I was led into a warm, brightly lit room filled with hundreds of other new indents. They were all shuffling through a maze of guide ropes like weary, overgrown children at some nightmarish amusement park. There seemed to be an equal number of men and women, but it was hard to tell. Because nearly everyone shared my pale complexion and total lack of body hair, and we all wore the same gray jumpsuits and gray plastic shoes, we looked like extras from THX one one three eight. The line fed into a series of security checkpoints. At the first checkpoint, each indent was given a thorough scan with a brand new meta detector to make sure they weren't hiding any electronic devices on or in their persons. While I waited for my turn, I saw several people pulled out of line when the scanner found a subcutaneous mini computer or a voice-controlled phone installed as a tooth replacement. They were led into another room to have the devices removed. 
a dude just ahead of me in line actually had a top of the line miniature Sinatro Oasis console concealed inside a prosthetic testicle. Talk about balls. Once I'd cleared a few more checkpoints, I was ushered into the testing area, a giant room filled with hundreds of small, soundproofed cubicles. I was seated in one of them and given a cheap visor and an even cheaper pair of haptic gloves. The gear didn't give me access to the Oasis, but I still found it comforting to put it on. I was then given a battery of increasingly difficult aptitude tests intended to measure my knowledge and abilities in every area that might conceivably be of use to my new employer. These tests were, of course, cross-referenced with the fake educational background and work history that I'd given to my bogus Bryce Lynch identity. I made sure to ace all of the tests on Oasis software, hardware, and networking, but I intentionally failed the tests designed to gauge my knowledge of James Halliday and the Easter egg. I definitely didn't want to get placed in IOI's oology division. There was a chance I might run into Sorrento there. I didn't think he'd recognize me. We'd never actually met in person, and I now barely resembled my old school ID photo, but I didn't want to risk it. I was already tempting fate more than anyone in their right mind ever would. Hours later, when I finally finished the last exam, I was logged into a virtual chat room to meet with an indenturement counselor. Her name was Nancy, and in a hypnotic monotone, she informed me that, due to my exemplary test scores and impressive employment record, I had been awarded the position of Oasis Technical Support Representative 2. I would be paid $28,500 a year, minus the cost of my housing, meals, taxes, medical, dental, optical, and recreation services, all of which would be deducted automatically from my pay. My remaining income, if there was any, would be applied to my outstanding debt to the company. Once my debt was paid in full, I would be released from indenturement. At that time, based on my job performance, it was possible I would be offered a permanent position with IOI. This was a complete joke, of course. Indents were never able to pay off their debt and earn their release. Once they got finished slapping you with pay deductions, late fees, and interest penalties, you wound up owing them more each month instead of less. Once you made the mistake of getting yourself indentured, you would probably remain indentured for life. A lot of people didn't seem to mind this, though. They thought of it as job security. It also meant they weren't going to starve or freeze to death in the street. My indenturement contract appeared in a window on my display. It contained a long list of disclaimers and warnings about my rights, or lack thereof, as an indentured employee. Nancy told me to read it, sign it, and proceed to indent processing. Then she logged out of the chat room. I scrolled to the bottom of the contract without bothering to read it. It was over 600 pages long. I signed the name Bryce Lynch, then verified my signature with a retinal scan. Even though I was using a fake name, I wondered if the contract might still be legally binding. I wasn't sure, and I didn't really care. I had a plan, and this was part of it. They led me down another corridor into the indenturement processing area. I was placed on a conveyor belt that carried me through a long series of stations. First, they took my jumpsuit and shoes and incinerated them. 
Then they ran me through a kind of human car wash, a series of machines that soaped, scrubbed, disinfected, rinsed, dried, and deloused me. Afterward, I was given a new gray jumpsuit and another pair of plastic slippers. At the next station, a bank of machines gave me a complete physical, including a battery of blood tests. Luckily, the Genetic Privacy Act made it illegal for IOI to sample my DNA. Then I was given a series of inoculations with an array of automated needle guns that shot me in both shoulders and both ass cheeks simultaneously. As I inched forward along the conveyor, flat-screen monitors mounted overhead showed the same 10-minute training film over and over on an endless loop. Indentured servitude, your fast track from debt to success. The cast was made up of D-list television stars who cheerfully spouted corporate propaganda while relating the minutiae of IOI's indenturement policy. After five viewings, I had every line of the damn thing memorized. By the tenth viewing, I was mouthing the words along with the actors. What can I expect after I complete my initial processing and get placed in my permanent position? Asked Johnny, the training film's main character. You can expect to spend the rest of your life as a corporate slave, Johnny, I thought. But I kept watching as, once again, the helpful IOI human resources rep pleasantly told Johnny all about the day-to-day life of an indent. Finally, I reached the last station, where a machine fitted me with a security anklet, a padded metal band that locked around my ankle just above the joint. According to the training film, this device monitored my physical location and also granted or denied me access to different areas of the IOI office complex. If I tried to escape, remove the anklet, or cause trouble of any kind, the device was capable of delivering a paralyzing electrical shock. If necessary, it could also administer a heavy-duty tranquilizer directly into my bloodstream. After the anklet was on, another machine clamped a small, electronic device onto my right earlobe, piercing it in two locations. I winced in pain and shouted a stream of profanity. I knew from the training film that I'd just been fitted with an OCT. OCT stood for Observation and Communication Tag, but most indents just referred to it as ear gear. It reminded me of the tags environmentalists used to put on endangered animals to track their movements in the wild. The ear gear contained a tiny comm link that allowed the main IOI human resources computer to make announcements and issue commands directly into my ear. It also contained a tiny forward-looking camera that let IOI supervisors see whatever was directly in front of me. Surveillance cameras were mounted in every room in the IOI complex, but that apparently wasn't enough. They also had to mount the camera to the side of every indent's head. A few seconds after my ear gear was attached and activated, I began to hear the placid monotone of the HR mainframe, droning instructions and other information. The voice drove me nuts at first, but I gradually got used to it. I didn't have much choice. As I stepped off the conveyor, the HR computer directed me to a nearby cafeteria that looked like something out of an old prison movie. I was given a lime green tray of food, a tasteless soy burger, a lump of runny mashed potatoes, and some unrecognizable form of cobbler for dessert. I devoured all of it in a few minutes.
The HR computer complimented me on my healthy appetite. Then it informed me that I was now permitted to make a five-minute visit to the bathroom. When I came out, I was directed onto an elevator with no buttons or floor indicator. When the doors slid open, I saw the following stenciled on the wall. Indent Hab. Block 05. TechSup Reps. I shuffled off the elevator and down the carpeted hallway. It was quiet and dark. The only illumination came from small path lighting embedded in the floor. I'd lost track of the time. It seemed like days had passed since I'd been pulled out of my apartment. I was dead on my feet. Your first technical support shift begins in seven hours, the HR computer droned softly in my ear. You have until then to sleep. Turn left at the intersection in front of you and proceed to your assigned HAB unit, number 42G. I continued to do as I was told. I thought I was already getting pretty good at it. The HAB block reminded me of a mausoleum. It was a network of vaulted hallways, each lined with coffin-shaped sleeping capsules, row after row of them, stacked to the ceiling, ten high. Each column of HAB units was numbered, and the door of each capsule was lettered A through J, with unit A at the bottom. I eventually reached my unit, near the top of column number 42. As I approached it, the hatch irised open with a hiss, and a soft blue light winked on inside. I ascended the narrow access ladder mounted between the adjacent rows of capsules, then stepped onto the short platform beneath the hatch to my unit. When I climbed inside the capsule, the platform retracted and the hatch irised shut at my feet. The inside of my HAB unit was an eggshell-white injection-molded plastic coffin, a meter high, a meter wide, and two meters long. The floor of the capsule was covered with a gel-foam mattress pad and pillow. They both smelled like burned rubber, so I assumed they must be new. In addition to the camera attached to the side of my head, there was a camera mounted above the door of my HAB unit. The company didn't bother hiding it. They wanted their indents to know they were being watched. The unit's only amenity was the entertainment console, a large, flat touchscreen built into the wall. A wireless visor was snapped into a holder beside it. I tapped the touchscreen, activating the unit. My new employee number and position appeared at the top of the display. Lynch, Bryce T., Oasis Tech Rep 2, IOI employee number 338645. A menu appeared below, listing the entertainment programming to which I presently had access. It took only a few seconds to peruse my limited options. I could view only one channel. IOIN the company's 24-hour news network. It provided a non-stop stream of company-related news and propaganda. I also had access to a library of training films and simulations, most of which were geared toward my new position as an Oasis technical support representative. When I tried to access one of the other entertainment libraries, Vintage Movies, the system informed me that I wouldn't be granted access to a wider selection of entertainment options until I had received an above-average rating in three consecutive employee performance reviews. Then the system asked me if I wanted more information on the Indentured Employee Entertainment Reward Program. I didn't. 
The only TV show I had access to was a company-produced sitcom called Tommy Q. The synopsis said it was a wacky situation comedy chronicling the misadventures of Tommy, a newly indentured Oasis tech rep struggling to achieve his goals of financial independence and on-the-job excellence. I selected the first episode of Tommy Q, then unsnapped the visor and put it on. As I expected, the show was really just a training film with a laugh track. I had absolutely no interest in it. I just wanted to go to sleep. But I knew I was being watched, and that every move I made was being scrutinized and logged. So I stayed awake as long as I could, ignoring one episode of Tommy Q after another. Despite my best efforts, my thoughts drifted to Artemis. Regardless of what I'd been telling myself, I knew she was the real reason I'd gone through with this lunatic plan. What the hell was wrong with me? There was a good chance I might never escape from this place. I felt buried under an avalanche of self-doubt. Had my dual obsessions with the egg and Artemis finally driven me completely insane? Why would I take such an idiotic risk to win over someone I'd never actually met? Someone who appeared to have no interest in ever talking to me again. Where was she right now? Did she miss me? I continued to mentally torture myself like that until I finally drifted off to sleep. Chapter 30 IOI's Technical Support Call Center occupied three entire floors of the headquarters' eastern I-shaped tower. Each of these floors contained a maze of numbered cubicles. Mine was stuck back in a remote corner far from any windows. My cubicle was completely empty, except for an adjustable office chair bolted to the floor. Several of the cubicles around me were unoccupied, awaiting the arrival of other new indents. I wasn't permitted to have any decorations in my cubicle because I hadn't earned that privilege yet. If I obtained a sufficient number of perk points by getting high productivity and customer approval ratings, I could spend some of them to purchase the privilege of decorating my cube, perhaps with a potted plant or an inspirational poster of a kitten hanging from a clothesline. When I arrived in my cubicle, I grabbed my company-issued visor and gloves from the rack on the bare cube wall and put them on. Then I collapsed into my chair. My work computer was built into the chair's circular base, and it activated itself automatically when I sat down. My employee ID was verified, and I was automatically logged into my work account on the IOI intranet. I wasn't allowed to have any outbound access to the Oasis. All I could really do was read work-related emails, view support documentation and procedural manuals, and check my call time statistics. That was it. And every move I made on the intranet was closely monitored, controlled, and logged. I put myself in the call queue and began my 12-hour shift. I'd been an indent for only eight days now, but it already felt like I'd been imprisoned here for years. The first caller's avatar appeared in front of me in my support chat room. His name and stats also appeared floating in the air above him. He had the astoundingly clever name of Hotcock007. 
I could see that it was going to be another fabulous day. Hotcock 007 was a hulking bald barbarian with studded black leather armor and lots of demon tattoos covering his arms and face. He was holding a gigantic bastard sword, nearly twice as long as his avatar's body. Good morning, Mister Hotcock 007. I droned. Thank you for calling technical support. I'm Tech Rep Number three three eight six four five. How may I help you this evening? The customer courtesy software filtered my voice, altering its tone and inflection to ensure that I always sounded cheerful and upbeat. Uh, yeah. Hotcock Double O Seven began. I just bought this badass sword, and now I can't even use it. I can't even attack nothing with it. What the hell is wrong with this piece of shit? Is it broke? Sir, the only problem is that you're a complete fucking moron. I said. I heard a familiar warning buzzer and a message flashed on my display: courtesy violation, flags, fucking moron. Last response muted. Violation logged. IOI's patented customer courtesy software had detected the inappropriate nature of my response and muted it, so the customer didn't hear what I'd said. The software also logged my courtesy violation and forwarded it to Trevor, my section supervisor, so that he could bring it up during my next biweekly performance review. Sir, did you purchase this sword in an online auction? Yeah. Hotcock Double O Seven replied, "Paid out the ass for it too." Just a moment, sir, while I examine the item. I already knew what his problem was, but I needed to make sure before telling him, or I'd get hit with a fine. I tapped the sword with my index finger, selecting it. A small window opened and displayed the item's properties. The answer was right there on the first line. This particular magic sword could only be used by an avatar who was tenth level or higher. Mr. Hotcock Double O Seven was only seventh level. I quickly explained this to him. What? That ain't fair. The guy who sold it to me didn't say nothing about that. Sir, it's always advisable to make sure your avatar can actually use an item before you purchase it. God damn it! He shouted. Well, what am I supposed to do with it now? You could shove it up your ass and pretend you're a corn dog. Courtesy violation. Response muted. Violation logged. I tried again, sir. You might want to keep the item stored in your inventory until your avatar has attained tenth level, or you may wish to put the item back up for auction yourself and use the proceeds to purchase a similar weapon, one with a power level commensurate to that of your avatar. Huh? Hotcock Double O Seven responded. What do you mean? Save it or sell it. Oh. Can I help you with anything else today, sir? No, I don't guess. Great, thank you for calling technical support. Have an outstanding day. I tapped the disconnect icon on my display, and Hotcock Double O Seven vanished. Call time: two minutes seven seconds. As the next customer's avatar appeared, a red-skinned, large-breasted alien female named Vartax. The customer satisfaction rating that Hotcock Double O Seven had just given me appeared on my display. It was a six out of a possible score of ten. The system then helpfully reminded me that I needed to keep my average above eight point five if I wanted to get a raise after my next review. 
Doing tech support here was nothing like working from home. Here, I couldn't watch movies, play games, or listen to music while I answered the endless stream of inane calls. The only distraction was staring at the clock, or the IOI stock ticker, which was always at the top of every intense display. You couldn't get rid of it. During each shift, I was given three five-minute restroom breaks. Lunch was thirty minutes. I usually ate in my cubicle instead of the cafeteria, so I wouldn't have to listen to the other tech reps bitch about their calls or boast about how many perk points they'd earned. I'd grown to despise the other indents almost as much as the customers. I fell asleep five separate times during my shift. Each time, when the system saw that I'd drifted off, it sounded a warning klaxon in my ears, jolting me back awake. Then it noted the infraction in my employee data file. My narcolepsy had become such a consistent problem during my first week that I was now being issued two little red pills each day to help me stay awake. I took them too, but not until after I got off work. When my shift finally ended, I ripped off my headset and visor and walked back to my hab unit as quickly as I could. This was the only time each day I ever hurried anywhere. When I reached my tiny plastic coffin, I crawled inside and collapsed on the mattress, face down, in the same exact position as the night before, and the night before that. I lay there for a few minutes, staring at the time readout on my entertainment console out of the corner of my eye. When it reached 7:07 p.m., I rolled over and sat up. Lights, I said softly. This had become my favorite word over the past week. In my mind, it had become synonymous with freedom. The lights embedded in the shell of my hab unit shut off, plunging the tiny compartment into darkness. If someone had been watching either of my live security vid feeds, they would have seen a brief flash as the cameras switched to night vision mode. Then I would have been clearly visible on their monitors once again. But thanks to some sabotage I'd performed earlier in the week, the security cameras in my hab unit and my ear gear were now no longer performing their assigned tasks. So, for the first time that day, I wasn't being watched. That meant it was time to rock. I tapped the entertainment center console's touchscreen. It lit up, presenting me with the same choices I'd had on my first night here: a handful of training films and simulations, including the complete run of Tommy Q episodes. If anyone checked the usage logs for my entertainment center, they would show that I had watched Tommy Q every night until I fell asleep, and that once I'd worked my way through all sixteen episodes, I'd started over at the beginning. The logs would also show that I fell asleep at roughly the same time every night, but not at exactly the same time, and that I slept like the dead until the following morning when my alarm sounded. Of course, I hadn't really been watching their inane corporate shitcom every night, and I wasn't sleeping either. I'd actually been operating on about two hours of sleep a night for the past week, and it was beginning to take its toll on me. But the moment the lights in my hab unit went out, I felt energized and wide awake. My exhaustion seemed to vanish as I began to navigate through the entertainment center operation menus from memory. The fingers of my right hand dancing rapidly across the touchscreen. About seven months earlier, I'd obtained a set of IOI intranet passwords from the Leet Hacksaws Warehouse. 
the same black market data auction site where I'd purchased the information needed to create a new identity. I kept an eye on all of the black market data sites because you never knew what might be up for sale on them. Oasis server exploits, ATM hacks, celebrity sex tapes, you name it. I'd been browsing through the Leet Hacksaw's warehouse auction listings when one in particular caught my eye. IOI intranet access passwords, backdoors, and system exploits. The seller claimed to be offering classified proprietary information on IOI's intranet architecture, along with a series of administrative access codes and system exploits that could give a user carte blanche inside the company network. I would have assumed the data was bogus had it not been listed on such a respected site. The anonymous seller claimed to be a former IOI contract programmer and one of the lead architects of its company intranet. He was probably a turncoat, a programmer who intentionally coded back doors and security holes into a system he designed so that he could later sell them on the black market. It allowed him to get paid for the same job twice and to salve any guilt he felt about working for a demonic multinational corporation like IOI. The obvious problem, which the seller didn't bother to point out in the auction listing, was that these codes were useless unless you already had access to the company intranet. IOI's intranet was a high-security standalone network with no direct connections to the Oasis. The only way to get access to IOI's intranet was to become one of their legitimate employees. Very difficult and time-consuming, or. You could join the company's ever-growing ranks of indentured servants. I'd decided to bid on the IOI access codes anyway, on the off chance they might come in handy someday. Since there was no way to verify the data's authenticity, the bidding stayed low, and I won the auction for a few thousand credits. The codes arrived in my inbox a few minutes after the auction ended. Once I'd finished decrypting the data, I examined it all thoroughly. Everything looked legit, so I filed the info away for a rainy day and forgot about it. Until about six months later, when I saw the Sixer barricade around Castle Anorak, the first thing I thought of was the IOI access codes. Then the wheels in my head began to turn, and my ridiculous plan began to take shape. I would alter the financial records on my bogus Bryce Lynch identity and allow myself to become indentured by IOI. Once I infiltrated the building and got behind the company firewall, I would use the intranet passwords to hack into the Sixers' private database, then figure a way to bring down the shield they'd erected over Anorak's castle. I didn't think anyone would anticipate this move because it was so clearly insane. I didn't test the IOI passwords until the second night of my indenturement. I was understandably anxious because if it turned out I'd been sold bogus data and none of the passwords worked, I would have sold myself into lifelong slavery. Keeping my ear gear camera pointed straight ahead, away from the screen, I pulled up the entertainment console's viewer settings menu, which allowed me to make adjustments to the display's audio and video output, volume and balance. Brightness and tint. I cranked each option up to its highest setting, then tapped the Apply button at the bottom of the screen three times. 
I set the volume and brightness controls to their lowest settings and tapped the Apply button again. A small window appeared in the center of the screen, prompting me for a maintenance tech ID number and access password. I quickly entered the ID number and the long alphanumeric password that I'd memorized. I checked both for errors out of the corner of my eye, then tapped OK. The system paused for what seemed like a very long time. Then, to my great relief, the following message appeared. Maintenance Control Panel. Access Granted. I now had access to a maintenance service account designed to allow repairmen to test and debug the entertainment unit's various components. I was now logged in as a technician, but my access to the intranet was still pretty limited. Still, it gave me all the elbow room I needed. Using an exploit left by one of the programmers, I was now able to create a bogus admin account. Once that was set up, I had access to just about everything. My first order of business was to get some privacy. I quickly navigated through several dozen submenus until I reached the control panel for the indent monitoring system. When I entered my employee number, my indent profile appeared on the display, along with a mugshot they'd taken of me during my initial processing. The profile listed my indent account balance, pay grade, blood type, current performance review rating, every scrap of data the company had on me. At the top right of my profile were two vid feed windows, one fed by the camera in my ear gear, the other linked to the camera in my HAB unit. My ear gear vid feed was currently aimed at a section of the wall. The HAB unit camera window showed a view of the back of my head, which I'd positioned to block the entertainment center's display screen. I selected both vid-feed cameras and accessed their configuration settings. Using one of the turncoat's exploits, I performed a quick hack that caused my ear gear and HAB unit cameras to display the archived video from my first night of indenturement instead of a live feed. Now, if someone checked my camera feeds, they'd see me lying asleep in my HAB unit, not sitting up all night, furiously hacking my way through the company intranet. Then I programmed the cameras to switch to the pre-recorded feeds whenever I shut out the lights in my HAB unit. The split-second jump cut in the feed would be masked by the momentary video distortion that occurred when the cameras switched into night vision mode. I kept expecting to be discovered and locked out of the system, but it never happened. My passwords continued to work. I'd spent the past six nights laying siege to the IOI intranet, digging deeper and deeper into the network. I felt like a convict in an old prison movie returning to my cell each night to tunnel through the wall with a teaspoon. Then, last night, just before I'd succumbed to exhaustion, I'd finally managed to navigate my way through the intranet's labyrinth of firewalls and into the main oology division database, the motherlode, the Sixers' private file pile. And tonight, I would finally be able to explore it. I knew that I needed to be able to take some of the Sixers' data with me when I escaped, so earlier in the week I'd used my intranet admin account to submit a bogus hardware requisition form. I had a 10-zettabyte flash drive delivered to a non-existent employee, Sam Lowry, in an empty cubicle a few rows away from my own. 
Making sure to keep my ear gear camera pointed in the other direction, I ducked into the cube, grabbed the tiny drive, pocketed it, and smuggled it back to my HAB unit. That night, after I shut off the lights and disabled the security cameras, I unlocked my entertainment unit's maintenance access panel and installed the flash drive into an expansion slot used for firmware upgrades. Now, I could download data from the intranet directly to that drive. I put on the entertainment center's visor and gloves, then stretched out on my mattress. The visor presented me with a three-dimensional view of the Sixers database, with dozens of overlapping data windows suspended in front of me. Using my gloves, I began to manipulate these windows, navigating my way through the database's file structure. The largest section of the database appeared to be devoted to information on Halliday. The amount of data they had on him was staggering. It made my Grail diary look like a set of Cliff's notes. They had things I'd never seen, things I didn't even know existed. Halliday's grade school report cards, home movies from his childhood, emails he'd written to fans. I didn't have time to read over it all, but I copied the really interesting stuff over to my flash drive to hopefully study later. I focused on isolating the data related to Castle Anorak and the forces the Sixers had positioned in and around it. I copied all of the intel on their weapons, vehicles, gunships, and troop numbers. I also snagged all of the data I could find on the Orb of Ozyavox, the artifact they were using to generate the shield around the castle, including exactly where they were keeping it and the employee number of the Sixer wizard they had operating it. Then I hit the jackpot a folder containing hundreds of hours of Oasis SimCap recordings documenting the Sixers' initial discovery of the Third Gate and their subsequent attempts to open it. As everyone now suspected, the Third Gate was located inside Castle Anorak. Only avatars who possessed a copy of the Crystal Key could cross the threshold of the castle's front entrance. To my disgust, I learned that Sorrento had been the first Avatar to set foot inside Castle Anorak since Halliday's death. The castle entrance led into a massive foyer whose walls, floor, and ceiling were all made of gold. At the north end of the chamber, a large crystal door was set into the wall. It had a small keyhole at its very center. The moment I saw it, I knew I was looking at the third gate. I fast-forwarded through several other recent SimCap files. From what I could tell, the Sixers still hadn't figured out how to open the gate. Simply inserting the crystal key into the keyhole had no effect. They'd had their entire team trying to figure out why for several days now, but still hadn't made any progress. While the data and video on the third gate was copying over to my flash drive, I continued to delve deeper into the Sixer database. Eventually, I uncovered a restricted area called the Star Chamber. It was the only area of the database I couldn't seem to access. So I used my admin ID to create a new test account, then gave that account super user access and full administrator privileges. It worked, and I was granted access. The information inside the restricted area was divided into two folders, Mission Status and Threat Assessments. I opened the Threat Assessments folder first, and when I saw what was inside, I felt the blood drain from my face. 
There were five file folders labeled Parzival, Artemis, H, Shoto, and Daito. Daito's folder had a large red X over it. I opened the Parzival folder first. A detailed dossier appeared containing all of the information the Sixers had collected on me over the past few years. My birth certificate, my school transcripts. At the bottom, there was a link to a SIM cap of my entire chat link session with Sorrento, ending with the bomb detonating in my aunt's trailer. After I'd gone into hiding, they'd lost track of me. They had collected thousands of screenshots and vidcaps of my avatar over the past year and loads of data on my stronghold on Falco, but they didn't know anything about my location in the real world. My current whereabouts were listed as unknown. I closed the window, took a deep breath, and opened the file on Artemis. At the very top was a school photo of a young girl with a distinctly sad smile. To my surprise, she looked almost identical to her avatar. The same dark hair, the same hazel eyes, and the same beautiful face I knew so well, with one small difference. Most of the left half of her face was covered with a reddish-purple birthmark. I would later learn that these types of birthmark were sometimes referred to as port wine stains. In the photo, she wore a sweep of her dark hair down over her left eye to try to conceal the mark as much as possible. Artemis had led me to believe that in reality she was somehow hideous, but now I saw that nothing could have been further from the truth. To my eyes, the birthmark did absolutely nothing to diminish her beauty. If anything, the face I saw in the photo seemed even more beautiful to me than that of her avatar, because I knew this one was real. The data below the photo said that her real name was Samantha Evelyn Cook, that she was a 20-year-old Canadian citizen, five feet and seven inches tall, and that she weighed 168 pounds. The file also contained her home address, 2206 Greenleaf Lane, Vancouver, British Columbia, along with a lot of other information, including her blood type and her school transcripts, going all the way back to kindergarten. I found an unlabeled video link at the bottom of her dossier, and when I selected it, a live vid feed of a small suburban house appeared on my display. After a few seconds, I realized I was looking at the house where Artemis lived. As I dug further into her file, I learned that they'd had her under surveillance for the past five months. They had her house bugged, too, because I found hundreds of hours of audio recordings made while she was logged into the Oasis. They had complete text transcripts of every audible word she'd spoken while clearing the first two gates. I opened Shoto's file next. They knew his real name, Akahide Karatsu, and they also appeared to have his home address, an apartment building in Osaka, Japan. His file also contained a school photo, showing a thin, stoic boy with a shaved head. Like Daito, he looked nothing like his avatar. H seemed to be the one they knew the least about. His file contained very little information, and no photo, 
just a screenshot of his avatar. His real name was listed as Henry Swanson, but that was an alias used by Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China, so I knew it must be a fake. His address was listed as mobile, and below it there was a link labeled Recent Access Points. This turned out to be a list of the wireless node locations H had recently used to access his Oasis account. They were all over the place. Boston, Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia, and most recently, Pittsburgh. Now I began to understand how the Sixers had been able to locate Artemis and Shoto. IOI owned hundreds of regional telecom companies, effectively making them the largest Internet service provider in the world. It was pretty difficult to get online without using a network they owned and operated. From the looks of it, IOI had been illegally eavesdropping on most of the world's Internet traffic in an attempt to locate and identify the handful of gunters they considered to be a threat. The only reason they hadn't been able to locate me was because I'd taken the paranoia-induced precaution of leasing a direct fiber-optic connection to the Oasis from my apartment complex. I closed H's file, then opened the folder labeled Daito, already dreading what I might find there. Like the others, they had his real name, Toshiro Yoshiaki, and his home address. Two news articles about his suicide were linked at the bottom of his dossier, along with an unlabeled video clip time-stamped on the day he died. I clicked on it. It was handheld video camera footage showing three large men in black ski masks, one of whom was operating the camera, waiting silently in a hallway. They appeared to receive an order via their radio earpieces, then used a key card to open the door of a tiny one-room apartment, Dieto's apartment. I watched in horror as they rushed in, yanked him out of his haptic chair, and threw him off the balcony. The bastards even filmed him plummeting to his death, probably at Sorrento's request. A wave of nausea washed over me. When it finally passed, I copied the contents of all five dossiers over to my flash drive, then opened the Mission Status folder. It appeared to contain an archive of the Oology Division's status reports, intended for the Sixers' top brass. The reports were arranged by date, with the most recent one listed first. When I opened it, I saw that it was a directive memo sent from Nolan Sorrento to the IOI Board of Executives. In it, Sorrento proposed sending agents to abduct Artemis and Shoto from their homes to force them to help IOI open the third gate. Once the Sixers had obtained the egg and won the contest, Artemis and Shoto would be disposed of. I sat there in stunned silence. Then I read the memo again, feeling a combination of rage and panic. According to the timestamp, Sorrento had sent the memo just after 8 o'clock, less than five hours ago, so his superiors probably hadn't even seen it yet. When they did, they would still want to meet to discuss Sorrento's suggested course of action, so they probably wouldn't send their agents after Artemis and Shoto until sometime tomorrow. I still had time to warn them, but to do that, 
I would have to drastically alter my escape plan. Before my arrest, I'd set up a timed funds transfer that would deposit enough money in my IOI credit account to pay off my entire debt, forcing IOI to release me from indenturement. But that transfer wouldn't happen for another five days. By then, the Sixers would probably have Artemis and Shoto locked in a windowless room somewhere. I couldn't spend the rest of the week exploring the Sixer database like I'd planned. I had to grab as much data as I could and make my escape now. I gave myself until dawn. Chapter 31 I worked frantically for the next four hours. Most of that time was spent copying as much data as possible from the Sixer database to my stolen flash drive. Once that task was completed, I submitted an Executive Oologist Supply Requisition Order. This was an online form that Sixer commanders used to request weapons or equipment inside the Oasis. I selected a very specific item, then scheduled its delivery for noon two days from now. When I finally finished, it was 6.30 in the morning. The next tech support shift change was now only 90 minutes away, and my HAB unit neighbors would start waking up soon. I was out of time. I pulled up my indenturement profile, accessed my debt statement, and zeroed out my outstanding balance, money I'd never actually borrowed to begin with. Then I selected the indentured servant observation and communications tag control settings submenu, which operated both my ear gear and security anklet. Finally, I did something I'd been dying to do for the past week. I disabled the locking mechanisms on both devices. I felt a sharp pain as the ear gear clamps retracted and pulled free of the cartilage on my left ear. The device bounced off my shoulder and landed in my lap. In the same instant, the shackle on my right ankle clicked open and fell off, revealing a band of abraded red skin. I'd now passed the point of no return. IOI security techs weren't the only ones who had access to my ear gear's vid feed. The indentured servant protection agency also used it to monitor and record my daily activities to ensure that my human rights were being observed. Now that I'd removed the device, there would be no digital record of what happened to me from this moment forward. If IOI security caught me before I made it out of the building carrying a stolen flash drive filled with highly incriminating company data, I was dead. The Sixers could torture and kill me, and no one would ever know. I performed a few final tasks related to my escape plan, then logged out of the IOI intranet for the last time. I pulled off my visor and gloves and opened the maintenance access panel next to the entertainment center console. There was a small empty space below the entertainment module between the prefab wall of my HAB unit and the one adjacent to it. I removed the thin, neatly folded bundle I'd hidden there. It was a vacuum-sealed IOI maintenance tech uniform, complete with a cap and an ID badge. Like the flash drive, I'd obtained these items by submitting an intranet requisition form, then had them delivered to an empty cubicle on my floor. I pulled off my indent jumpsuit and used it to wipe the blood off my ear and neck. Then I removed two band-aids from under my mattress and slapped them over the holes in my earlobe. 
Once I was dressed in my new maintenance tech threads, I carefully removed the flash drive from its expansion slot and pocketed it. Then I picked up my ear gear and spoke into it. I need to use the bathroom, I said. The HAB unit door irised open at my feet. The hallway was dark and deserted. I stuffed my ear gear and indent jumpsuit under the mattress and put the anklet in the pocket of my new uniform. Then, reminding myself to breathe, I crawled outside and descended the ladder. I passed a few other indents on my way to the elevators, but as usual, none of them made eye contact. This was a huge relief, because I was worried someone might recognize me and notice that I didn't belong in a maintenance tech uniform. When I stepped in front of the express elevator door, I held my breath as the system scanned my maintenance tech ID badge. After what felt like an eternity, the doors slid open. Good morning, Mr. Tuttle, the elevator said as I stepped inside. Floor, please. Lobby, I said hoarsely, and the elevator began to descend. Harry Tuttle was the name printed on my maintenance tech ID badge. I'd given the fictional Mr. Tuttle complete access to the entire building, then reprogrammed my indent anklet so that it was encoded with the Tuttle ID, making it function just like one of the security bracelets that maintenance techs wore. When the doors and elevators scanned me to make sure I had the proper security clearance, the anklet in my pocket told them that, yes, I sure did, instead of doing what it was supposed to do, which was zap my ass with a few thousand volts and incapacitate me until the security guards arrived. I rode the elevator down in silence, trying not to stare at the camera mounted above the doors. Then I realized the video being shot of me would be scrutinized when this was all over. Sorrento himself would probably see it, and so would his superiors. So I looked directly into the lens of the camera, smiled, and scratched the bridge of my nose with my middle finger. The elevator reached the lobby and the doors slid open. I half expected to find an army of security guards waiting for me outside, their guns leveled at my face, but there was only a crowd of IOI middle management drones waiting to get on the elevator. I stared at them blankly for a second, then stepped out of the car. It was like crossing the border into another country. A steady stream of over-caffeinated office workers scurried across the lobby and in and out of the elevators and exits. These were regular employees, not in dents. They were allowed to go home at the end of their shifts. They could even quit if they wanted to. I wondered if it bothered any of them, knowing that thousands of indentured slaves lived and toiled here in the same building, just a few floors away from them. I spotted two security guards stationed near the reception desk and gave them a wide berth, weaving my way through the thick crowd, crossing the immense lobby to the long row of automatic glass doors that led outside to freedom. I forced myself not to run as I pushed through the arriving workers. Just maintenance tech here, folks. Heading home after a long night of rebooting routers. That's all. I am definitely not an indent making a daring escape with 10 zettabytes of stolen company data in his pocket. No siree. Halfway to the doors, I noticed an odd sound and glanced down at my feet. I was still wearing my disposable plastic indent slippers. Each footfall made a shrill squeak on the waxed marble floor, standing out amid the rumble of sensible business footwear. 
Every step I took seemed to scream, Hey, look, over here, a guy in the plastic slippers. But I kept walking. I was almost to the doors when someone placed a hand on my shoulder. I froze. Sir, I heard someone say. It was a woman's voice. I almost bolted out the door, but something about the woman's tone stopped me. I turned and saw the concerned face of a tall woman in her mid-forties, dark blue business suit, briefcase. Sir, your ear is bleeding. She pointed at it, wincing. A lot. I reached up and touched my earlobe, and my hand came away red. At some point, the band-aids I'd applied had fallen off. I was paralyzed for a second, unsure of what to do. I wanted to give her an explanation, but couldn't think of one. So I simply nodded, muttered thanks, then turned around and, as calmly as possible, walked outside. The frozen morning wind was so fierce that it nearly knocked me over. When I regained my balance, I bounded down the tiered steps, pausing briefly to drop my anklet into a trash receptacle. I heard it hit the bottom with a satisfying thud. Once I reached the street, I headed north, walking as fast as my feet would carry me. I was somewhat conspicuous because I was the only person not wearing a coat of some kind. My feet quickly went numb because I also wasn't wearing socks under my plastic and dent slippers. My entire body was shivering by the time I finally reached the warm confines of the mailbox, a post office box rental outlet located four blocks from the IOI plaza. The week before my arrest, I'd rented a post office box here online and had a top-of-the-line portable Oasis rig shipped to it. The mailbox was completely automated, so there were no employees to contend with, and when I walked in, there were no customers either. I located my box, punched in the key code, and retrieved the portable Oasis rig. I sat down on the floor and ripped open the package right there. I rubbed my frozen hands together until the feeling returned to my fingers, then put on the gloves and visor and used the rig to log into the Oasis. Gregarious Simulation Systems was located less than a mile away, so I was able to use one of their complementary wireless access points instead of one of the city nodes owned by IOI. My heart was pounding as I logged in. I'd been offline for eight whole days, a personal record. As my avatar slowly materialized on my stronghold's observation deck, I looked down at my virtual body, admiring it like a favorite suit I hadn't worn in a while. A window immediately appeared on my display, informing me that I'd received several messages from H and Shoto. And, to my surprise, there was even a message from Artemis. All three of them wanted to know where I was and what the hell had happened to me. I replied to Artemis first. I told her that the Sixers knew who she was and where she lived and that they had her under constant surveillance. I also warned her about their plans to abduct her from her home. I pulled a copy of her dossier off the flash drive and attached it to my message as proof. Then, I politely suggested that she leave home immediately and get the hell out of Dodge. Don't stop to pack a suitcase, I wrote. Don't say goodbye to anyone. Leave right now and get somewhere safe. Make sure you aren't followed. Then, find a secure, non-IOI-controlled internet connection and get back online. 
I'll meet you in H's basement as soon as I can. Don't worry, I have some good news, too. At the bottom of the message, I added a short postscript. P.S. I think you look even more beautiful in real life. I sent similar emails to Shoto and H, minus the postscript, along with copies of their Sixer dossiers. Then, I pulled up the United States Citizen Registry database and attempted to log in. To my great relief, the passwords I'd purchased still worked, and I was able to access the fake Bryce Lynch citizen profile I'd created. It now contained the ID photo taken during my indent processing, and the words Wanted Fugitive were superimposed over my face. IOI had already reported Mr. Lynch as an escaped indent. It didn't take me very long to completely erase the Bryce Lynch identity and copy my fingerprints and retinal patterns back over to my original citizen profile. When I logged out of the database a few minutes later, Bryce Lynch no longer existed. I was Wade Watts once again. I hailed an autocab outside the mailbox, making sure to select one operated by a local cab company and not a Supra cab, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of IOI. When I got in, I held my breath as I pressed my thumb to the ID scanner. The display flashed green. The system recognized me as Wade Watts, not as the fugitive indent Bryce Lynch. Good morning, Mr. Watts, the autocab said. Where to? I gave the cab the address of a clothing store on High Street, close to the OSU campus. It was a place called Threads, which specialized in high-tech urban streetwear. I ran inside and bought a pair of jeans and a sweater. Both items were dichotomy wear, meaning they were wired for Oasis use. They didn't have haptics but the pants and shirt could link up with my portable immersion rig, letting it know what I was doing with my torso, arms, and legs, making it easier to control my avatar than with a gloves-only interface. I also bought a few packs of socks and underwear, a simulated leather jacket, a pair of boots, and a black-knit wool cap to cover my freezing, stubble-covered noggin. I emerged from the store a few minutes later, dressed in my new threads. As the frigid wind enveloped me again, I zipped up my new jacket and pulled on the wool cap. Much better. I tossed the maintenance tech jumpsuit and plastic indent shoes in a trash can, then began to walk up High Street, scanning the storefronts. I kept my head down to avoid making eye contact with the stream of sullen university students filing past me. A few blocks later, I ducked into a Vendall franchise. Inside, there were rows of vending machines that sold everything under the sun. One of them, labeled Defense Dispenser, offered self-defense equipment, lightweight body armor, chemical repellents, and a wide selection of handguns. I tapped the screen set into the front of the machine and scrolled through the catalog. After a moment's deliberation, I purchased a flak vest and a Glock 47C pistol, along with three clips of ammo. I also bought a small canister of mace, then paid for everything by pressing my right palm to a hand scanner. My identity was verified, and my criminal record was checked. Name, Wade Watts. Outstanding warrants, none. Credit rating, excellent. Purchase restrictions. None. Transaction approved.
Thank you for your business. I heard a heavy metallic thunk as my purchases slid into the steel tray near my knees. I pocketed the mace and put the flak vest on underneath my new shirt. Then I removed the Glock from its clear plastic blister packaging. This was the first time I'd ever held a real gun. Even so, the weapon felt familiar in my hands because I'd fired thousands of virtual firearms in the Oasis. I pressed a small button set into the barrel, and the gun emitted a tone. I held the pistol grip firmly for a few seconds, first in my right hand, then my left. The weapon emitted a second tone, letting me know it had finished scanning my handprints. I was now the only person who could fire it. The weapon had a built-in timer that would prevent it from firing for another 12 hours, a cooling-off period, but I still felt better having it on me. I walked to an Oasis parlor located a few blocks away, a franchise outlet called The Plug. The dingy backlit sign, which featured a smiling anthropomorphic fiber-optic cable, promised lightning-fast Oasis access, cheap gear rental, and private immersion bays, open 24-7, 365. I'd seen a lot of banner ads for The Plug online. They had a reputation for high prices and outdated hardware, but their connections were supposed to be fast, reliable, and lag-free. For me, their major selling point was that they were one of the few Oasis parlor chains not owned by IOI or one of its subsidiaries. The motion detector emitted a beep as I stepped through the front door. There was a small waiting area off to my right, currently empty. The carpet was stained and worn, and the whole place reeked of industrial-strength disinfectant. A vacant-eyed clerk glanced up at me from behind a bulletproof plexiglass barrier. He was in his early twenties, with a mohawk and dozens of facial piercings. He was wearing a bifocal visor, which gave him a semi-transparent view of the oasis, while also allowing him to see his real-world surroundings. When he spoke... I saw that his teeth had all been sharpened to points. Welcome to the plug, he said in a flat monotone. We have several bays free, so there's no waiting. Package pricing information is displayed right here. He pointed to the display screen mounted on the counter directly in front of me. Then his eyes glazed over as he refocused his attention on the world inside his visor. I scanned my choices. A dozen immersion rigs were available, of varying quality and price. Economy, standard, deluxe. I was given detailed specs on each. You could rent by the minute or pay a flat hourly rate. A visor and a pair of haptic gloves were included in the rental price, but a haptic suit cost extra. The rental contract contained a lot of fine print about the additional charges you would incur if you damaged the equipment and a lot of legalese, stating that the plug could not be held responsible for anything you did under any circumstances, especially if it was something illegal. I'd like to rent one of the deluxe rigs for 12 hours, I said. The clerk raised his visor. You have to pay in advance, you realize? I nodded. I also want to rent a fat pipe connection. I need to upload a large amount of data to my account. Uploading costs extra. How much data? 
Ten zettabytes. Damn, he whispered. What you uploading? The Library of Congress? I ignored the question. I also want the Mondo upgrade package, I said. Sure thing, the clerk replied warily. Your total comes to 11,000 big ones. Just put your thumb on the drum and we'll get you all fixed up. He looked more than a little surprised when the transaction cleared. Then he shrugged and handed me a key card, a visor, and some gloves. Bay 14, last door on your right. The restroom is at the end of the hall. If you leave any kind of mess in the bay, we'll have to keep your deposit. Vomit, urine, semen, that kind of thing. And I'm the guy who has to clean it up. So do me a solid and show some restraint, will you? You got it. Enjoy. Thanks. Bay 14 was a soundproofed 10 by 10 room with a late model haptic rig in the center. I locked the door behind me and climbed into the rig. The vinyl on the haptic chair was worn and cracked. I slid the data drive into a slot on the front of the Oasis console and smiled as it locked into place. Max, I said to the empty air once I'd logged back in. This booted up a backup of Max that I kept stored in my Oasis account. Max's smiling face appeared on all of my command center monitors. Hey there, compadre, he stuttered. How goes it? Things are looking up, pal. Now strap in. We've got a lot of work to do. I opened up my Oasis account manager and initiated the upload from my flash drive. I paid GSS a monthly fee for unlimited data storage on my account, and I was about to test its limits. Even using the plug's high-bandwidth fiber-optic connection, the total estimated upload time for 10 zettabytes of data was over three hours. I reordered the upload sequence so the files I needed access to right away would get transferred first. As soon as data was uploaded to my Oasis account, I had immediate access to it and could also transfer it to other users instantaneously. First, I emailed all of the major news feeds a detailed account of how IOI had tried to kill me, how they had killed Daito, and how they were planning to kill Artemis and Shoto. I attached one of the video clips I'd retrieved from the Sixer database to the message, the video camera footage of Daito's execution. I also attached a copy of the memo Sorrento had sent to the IOI board, suggesting that they abduct Artemis and Shoto. Finally, I attached the SIM cap of my chat link session with Sorrento, but I bleeped the part where he said my real name and blurred the image of my school photo. I wasn't yet ready to reveal my true identity to the world. I planned to release the unedited video later, once the rest of my plan had played out. Then it wouldn't matter. I spent about 15 minutes composing one last email, which I addressed to every single Oasis user. Once I was happy with the wording, I stored it in my drafts folder. Then, I logged into H's basement. When my avatar appeared inside the chat room, I saw that H, Artemis, and Shoto were already there, waiting for me. Chapter 32 Z! H shouted as my avatar appeared. What the hell, man? Where have you been? I've been trying to reach you for over a week. So have I, Shoto added. Where were you? And how did you get those files from the Sixer database? It's a long story, I said. First things first. 
I addressed Shoto and Artemis. Have you two left your homes? They both nodded. And you're each logged in from a safe location? Yes, Shoto said. I'm in a manga cafe right now. And I'm at the Vancouver airport, Artemis said. It was the first time I'd heard her voice in months. I'm logged in from a germ-ridden public oasis booth right now. I ran out of my house with nothing but the clothes on my back, so I hope that Sixer data you sent us is legit. It is, I said. Trust me. How can you be sure of that? Shoto asked. Because I hacked into the Sixer database and downloaded it myself. They all stared at me in silence. H raised an eyebrow. And how, exactly, did you manage that, Z? I assumed a fake identity and masqueraded as an indentured servant to infiltrate IOI's corporate headquarters. I've been there for the past eight days. I just now escaped. Holy shit, Shoto whispered. Seriously? I nodded. Dude, you have balls of solid adamantium, H said. Respect. Thanks. I think. Let's assume you're not totally bullshitting us, Artemis said. How does a lowly indent get access to secret Sixer dossier files and company memos? I turned to face her. Indents have limited access to the company intranet via their HAB unit entertainment system from behind the IOI firewall. From there, I was able to use a series of backdoors and system exploits left by the original programmers to tunnel through the network and hack directly into the Sixer's private database. Shoto looked at me in awe. You did that? All by yourself? That is correct, sir. It's a miracle they didn't catch you and kill you, Artemis said. Why would you take such a stupid risk? Why do you think? To try and find a way to get through their shield and reach the third gate? I shrugged. It was the only plan I could come up with on such short notice. Z, H said, grinning. You are one crazy son of a bitch. He walked over and gave me a high five. But that's why I love you, man. Artemis scowled at me. Of course, when you found out they had secret files on each of us, you just couldn't resist looking at them, could you? I had to look at them, I said, to find out how much they knew about each of us. You would have done the same thing. She leveled a finger at me. No, I wouldn't have. I respect other people's privacy. Artemis, chill out, H interjected. He probably saved your life, you know. She seemed to consider this. Fine, she said. Forget it. But I could tell she was still pissed off. I didn't know what to say, so I kept plowing forward. I'm sending each of you a copy of all the Sixer data I smuggled out. Ten zettabytes of it. You should have it now. I waited while each of them checked their inbox. The size of their database on Halliday is unreal. His whole life is in there. They've collected interviews with everyone Halliday ever knew. It could take months to read through them all. I waited for a few minutes, watching their eyes scan over the data. Whoa, Shoto said. This is incredible, he looked over at me. How the hell did you escape from IOI with all of this stuff? By being extra sneaky. H is right, Artemis said, shaking her head. You are certifiably nuts. She hesitated for a second, then added, Thanks for the warning, Z. I owe you one. I opened my mouth to say you're welcome, but no words came out. Yes, 
Shota said. So do I. Thanks. Don't mention it, guys, I finally managed to say. Well, H said, hit us with the bad news already. How close are the Sixers to clearing the third gate? Dig this, I said, grinning. They haven't even figured out how to open it yet. Artemis and Shoto stared at me in disbelief. H smiled wide, then began to bob his head and press his palms to the sky, as if dancing to some unheard rave track. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! he sang. You're kidding, right? Shoto asked. I shook my head. You're not kidding? Artemis said. How is that possible? Sorrento has the crystal key, and he knows where the gate is. All he has to do is open the damn thing and step inside, right? That was true for the first two gates, I replied. But gate three is different. I opened a large vid-feed window in the air beside me. Check this out. It's from the Sixers' video archive. It's a vid cap of their first attempt to open the gate. I hit play. The video clip opened with a shot of Sorrento's avatar standing outside the front gates of Castle Anorak. The castle's front entrance, which had been impregnable for so many years, swung open as Sorrento approached like an automatic door at a supermarket. The castle entrance will open for an avatar who holds a copy of the crystal key, I explained. If an avatar doesn't have a copy of the key, he can't cross the threshold and enter the castle, even if the doors are already open. We all watched the vidcap as Sorrento passed through the entrance and into the large gold-lined foyer that lay beyond. Sorrento's avatar crossed the polished floor and approached the large crystal door set into the north wall. There was a keyhole in the very center of the door, and directly above it, three words were etched into the door's glittering, faceted surface. Charity. Hope. Faith. Sorrento stepped forward, holding out his copy of the crystal key. He slid the key into the keyhole and turned it. Nothing happened. Sorrento glanced up at the three words printed on the gate. Charity, hope, faith, he said, reading them aloud. Once again, nothing happened. Sorrento removed the key, recited the three words again, then reinserted the key and turned it. Still, nothing. I studied H, Artemis, and Shoto as they watched the video. Their excitement and curiosity had already shifted into concentration as they attempted to solve the puzzle before them. I paused the video. Whenever Sorrento is logged in, he has a team of consultants and researchers watching his every move, I said. You can hear their voices on some of the vidcaps, feeding him suggestions and advice through his comlink. So far, they haven't been much help. Watch. On the video, Sorrento was making another attempt to open the gate. He did everything exactly as before, except this time, when he inserted the crystal key, he turned it counterclockwise instead of clockwise. They try every asinine thing you can imagine, I said. Sorrento recites the words on the gate in Latin, and Elvish, and Klingon. Then they get hung up on reciting 1 Corinthians 13.13, a Bible verse that contains the words charity, hope, and faith. Apparently, charity, hope, and faith are also the names of three martyred Catholic saints. 
The Sixers have been trying to attach some significance to that for the past few days. Morons, H said. Halliday was an atheist. They're getting desperate now, I said. Sorrento has tried everything but genuflecting, doing a little dance, and sticking his pinky finger in the keyhole. That's probably next up on his agenda, Shoto said, grinning. Charity, hope, faith, Artemis said. Reciting the words slowly, she turned to me. Where do I know that from? Yeah, H said. Those words do sound familiar. It took me a while to place them too, I said. They all looked at me expectantly. Say them in reverse order, I suggested. Better yet, sing them in reverse order. Artemis's eyes narrowed. Faith, hope, charity, she said. She repeated them a few times, recognition growing in her face. Then she sang, Faith and hope and charity. H picked up the next line. The heart and the brain and the body give you three as a magic number, Shoto finished triumphantly. Schoolhouse rock, they all shouted in unison. See, I said, I knew you guys would get it. You're a smart bunch. Three is a magic number. Music and lyrics by Bob Doro, Artemis recited, as if pulling the information from a mental encyclopedia. Written in 1973, I smiled at her. I have a theory. I think this might be Halliday's way of telling us how many keys are required to open the third gate. Artemis grinned, then sang, It takes three. No more, no less, continued Shoto. You don't have to guess, added H. Three, I finished, is the magic number. I took out my own copy of the crystal key and held it up. The others did the same. We have four copies of the key. If at least three of us can reach the gate, we can get it open. What then? H asked. Do we all enter the gate at the same time? What if only one of us can enter the gate once it's open? Artemis said. I doubt Halliday would have set it up like that, I said. Who knows what that crazy bastard was thinking? Artemis said. He's toyed with us every step of the way, and now he's doing it again. Why else would he require three copies of the crystal key to open the final gate? Maybe because he wanted to force us to work together, I suggested. Or he just wanted the contest to end with a big dramatic finale, H offered. Think about it. If three avatars enter the third gate at the exact same moment, then it becomes a race to see who can clear the gate and reach the egg first. Halliday was one crazy, sadistic bastard, Artemis muttered. Yeah, H said, nodding. You got that right. Look at it this way, Shoto said. If Halliday hadn't set up the third gate to require three keys, the Sixers might have already found the egg by now. But the Sixers have a dozen avatars with copies of the crystal key, H said. They could open the gate right now if they were smart enough to figure out how. Dilettantes. Artemis said, it's their own fault for not knowing all the schoolhouse rock lyrics by heart. How did those fools even get this far? By cheating, I said. Remember? Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting. She grinned at me, and I felt my knees go all rubbery.
Just because the Sixers haven't opened the gate yet doesn't mean they won't figure it out eventually, Shoto said. I nodded. Shoto's right. Sooner or later, they'll make the schoolhouse rock connection, so we can't waste any more time. Well, what are we waiting for? Shoto said excitedly. We know where the gate is and how to open it. So let's do it, and may the best Gunter win. You're forgetting something, Shoto-san, H said. Parzival here still hasn't told us how we're going to get past that shield, fight our way through the Sixers' army, and get inside the castle. He turned to me. You do have a plan for that, don't you, Z? Of course, I said. I was just getting to that. I made a sweeping gesture with my right hand, and a three-dimensional hologram of Castle Anorak appeared, floating in the air in front of me. The transparent blue sphere generated by the orb of Ozuvox appeared around the castle, surrounding it both above and below ground. I pointed to it. This shield is going to drop on its own at noon on Monday, about 36 hours from now. And then we're going to walk right through the castle's front entrance. The shield is going to drop? On its own? Artemis repeated. The clans have been lobbing nukes at that sphere for the past two weeks, and they haven't even scratched it. How are you going to get it to drop on its own? I've already taken care of it, I said. You guys are going to have to trust me. I trust you, Z, H said. But even if that shield does drop, to reach the castle, we'll still have to fight our way through the largest army in the oasis. He pointed to the hologram, which showed the sixer troop positions around the castle, just inside the sphere. What about these fools? And their tanks? And their gunships? Obviously, we're going to need a little help, I said. A lot of help, Artemis clarified. And who exactly are we going to convince to help us wage war against the entire Sixer army? H asked. Everyone, I said. Every single gunter on the grid. I opened another window, displaying the brief email I'd composed just before logging into the basement. I'm going to send this message out tonight to every single Oasis user. Fellow gunters, it is a dark day. After years of deception, exploitation, and knavery, the Sixers have finally managed to buy and cheat their way to the entrance of the Third Gate. As you know, IOI has barricaded Castle Anorak in an attempt to prevent anyone else from reaching the Egg. We've also learned that they've used illegal methods to uncover the identities of Gunters they consider a threat with the intention of abducting and murdering them. If Gunters around the world don't join forces to stop the Sixers, they will reach the Egg and win the contest. And then, the Oasis will fall under IOI's imperialist rule. The time is now. Our assault on the Sixer army will begin tomorrow at noon, OST. Join us. Sincerely, H, Artemis, Parzival, and Shoto. Knavery? Artemis said after she'd finished reading it. Were you using a thesaurus when you wrote this? I was trying to make it sound, you know, grand, I said. Official. Me likey, Z, H said. It really gets the blood stirring. Thanks, H. So that's it. This is your plan, Artemis said. Spam the entire oasis asking for help?
More or less, yeah, that's the plan. And you really think everyone will just show up and help us fight the Sixers, she said, just for the hell of it. Yes, I said, I do. H nodded. He's right. No one wants the Sixers to win the contest, and they definitely don't want IOI to take control of the Oasis. People will jump at a chance to help bring the Sixers down. And what Gunter is going to pass up a chance to fight in such an epic, history-making battle? But won't the clans think we're just trying to manipulate them, Shoto said, so that we can reach the gate ourselves? Of course, I said, but most of them have already given up. Everyone knows the end of the hunt is at hand. Don't you think most people would rather see one of us win the contest instead of Sorrento and the Sixers? Artemis considered it for a moment. You're right. That email just might work. Z, H said, slapping me on the back. You are an evil, sublime genius. When that email goes out, the media will go apeshit. The word will spread like wildfire. By this time tomorrow, every avatar in the Oasis will be headed to Thonia. Let's hope so, I said. Oh, they'll show up all right, Artemis said. But how many of them will actually fight once they see what we're up against? Most of them will probably set up lawn chairs and eat popcorn while they watch us get our asses kicked. That's definitely a possibility, I said. But the clans will help us for sure. They've got nothing to lose. And we don't have to defeat the entire Sixer army. We just have to punch a hole through it, get inside the castle, and reach the gate. Three of us have to reach the gate, H said. If only one or two of us make it inside, we're screwed. Correct, I said. So we should all try extremely hard not to get killed. Artemis and H both laughed nervously. Shoto just shook his head. Even if we get the gate open, we still have to contend with the gate itself, he said. It's bound to be harder to clear than the first two. Let's worry about the gate later, I said, once we reach it. Fine, Shoto said. Let's do this thing. I second that, H said. So, you two are actually going to go along with this, Artemis said. You got a better idea, sister? H asked. She shrugged. No, not really. Okay, then, H said. It's settled. I closed the email. I'm sending each of you a copy of this message, I said. Start sending it out tonight to everyone on your contact list. Post it on your blogs. Broadcast it on your POV channels. We've got 36 hours to spread the word. That should be enough time for everyone to gear up and get their avatars to Thonia. As soon as the Sixers catch wind of this, they'll start preparing for an assault, Artemis said. They're going to pull out all the stops. They might just laugh it off, I said. They think their shield is impregnable. It is, Artemis said. So I hope you're right about being able to shut it down. Don't worry. Why should I be worried? Artemis snapped. Maybe you've forgotten, but I'm homeless and on the run for my life right now. I'm currently logged in from a public terminal at an airport paying for bandwidth by the minute. I can't fight a war from here, much less try to clear the third gate, and I don't have anywhere to go. Shoto nodded. 
I don't think I can stay where I am either. I'm in a rented booth at a public manga cafe in Osaka. I don't have much privacy. And I don't think it's safe for me to stay here if the Sixers have agents out looking for me. Artemis looked at me. Any suggestions? I hate to break it to you guys, but I'm homeless and logged in from a public terminal right now, too, I said. I've been hiding out from the Sixers for over a year, remember? I've got an RV, H said. You're all welcome to crash with me, but I don't think I can make it to Columbus, Vancouver, and Japan in the next 36 hours. I think I might be able to help you guys out, a deep voice said. We all jumped and turned around just in time to see a tall, male, gray haired avatar appear directly behind us. It was the great and powerful Og, Ogden Morrow's avatar. And he didn't materialize slowly the way an avatar normally did when logging into a chat room. He simply popped into existence as if he had been there all along. And had only now decided to make himself visible. Have any of you ever been to Oregon? he said. It's lovely this time of year. Chapter 33 We all stared at Ogden Morrow in stunned silence. How did you get in here? H finally asked once he'd managed to pick his jaw up off the floor. This is a private chat room. Yes, I know, Morrow said, looking a bit embarrassed. I'm afraid I've been eavesdropping on the four of you for quite some time now, and I hope you'll accept my sincere apologies for invading your privacy. I did it with only the best intentions, I promise you. With all due respect, sir, Artemis said. You didn't answer his question. How did you gain access to this chat room without an invitation and without any of us even knowing you were here? Forgive me, he said. I can see why this might concern you. But you needn't worry. My avatar has many unique powers, including the ability to enter private chat rooms uninvited. As Morrow spoke, He walked over to one of H's bookshelves and began to browse through some vintage role playing game supplements. Prior to the original launch of the Oasis, when Jim and I created our avatars, we gave ourselves super user access to the entire simulation. In addition to being immortal and invincible, our avatars could go pretty much anywhere and do pretty much anything. Now that Anorak is gone, My avatar is the only one with these powers. He turned to face the four of us. No one else has the ability to eavesdrop on you, especially not the Sixers. Oasis chat room encryption protocols are rock solid, I assure you. He chuckled lightly. My presence here notwithstanding. He knocked over that stack of comic books, I said to H. After our first meeting in here, remember? I told you it wasn't a software glitch. Og nodded and gave us a guilty shrug. That was me. I can be pretty clumsy at times. There was another brief silence, during which I finally worked up the courage to speak to Morrow directly. Mr. Morrow, I began. Please, Morrow said, raising a hand. Call me Og. All right, I said, laughing nervously. 
Even under the circumstances, I was completely starstruck. I couldn't believe I was actually addressing the Ogden Morrow. Og. Would you mind telling us why you've been eavesdropping on us? Because I want to help you, he replied. And from what I heard a moment ago, it sounds as though you could all use my help. We all exchanged nervous looks, and Og seemed to detect our skepticism. Please, don't misunderstand me, he continued. I'm not going to give you any clues or provide you with any information to help you reach the egg. That would ruin all the fun, wouldn't it? He walked back over to us, and his tone turned serious. Just before he died, I promised Jim that in his absence I would do everything I could to protect the spirit and integrity of his contest. That's why I'm here. But, sir, Og, I said, in your autobiography you wrote that you and James Halliday didn't speak during the last ten years of his life. Morrow gave me an amused smile. Come on, kid, he said. You can't believe everything you read, he laughed. Actually, that statement was mostly true. I didn't speak with Jim for the last decade of his life, not until just a few weeks before he died. He paused as if calling up the memory. At the time, I didn't even know he was sick. He just called me up out of the blue, and we met in a private chat room much like this one. Then he told me about his illness, the contest, and what he had planned. He was worried there might still be a few bugs in the gates, or that complications might arise after he was gone that would prevent the contest from proceeding as he'd intended. You mean like the Sixers? Shoto asked. Exactly, Og said, like the Sixers. So Jim asked me to monitor the contest and to intervene if it ever became necessary. He scratched his beard. To be honest, I didn't really want the responsibility. But it was the dying wish of my oldest friend, so I agreed. And, for the past six years, I've watched from the sidelines. And even though the Sixers have done everything to stack the odds against you, somehow you four have persevered. But now, after hearing you describe your current circumstances, I think the time has finally come for me to take action, to maintain the integrity of Jim's game. Artemis, Shoto, H, and I all exchanged looks of amazement, as if seeking reassurance from one another that this was all really happening. I want to offer the four of you sanctuary at my home here in Oregon, Og said. From here, you'll be able to execute your plan and complete your quest in safety, without having to worry about Sixer agents tracking you down and kicking in your door. I can provide each of you with a state-of-the-art immersion rig, a fiber-optic connection to the Oasis, and anything else you might need. Another stunned silence. Thank you, sir, I finally blurted out, resisting the urge to fall to my knees and bow repeatedly. It's the least I can do. That's an incredibly kind offer, Mr. Morrow, Shoto said. But I live in Japan. I know, Shoto. Og said. I've already chartered a private jet for you. It's waiting at the Osaka airport. If you send me your current location, I'll arrange for a limo to pick you up and take you to the runway. Shoto was speechless for a second. Then he bowed low. Arigato, Morosan.
Don't mention it, kid. He turned to Artemis. Young lady, I understand that you're currently at the Vancouver airport? I've made travel arrangements for you as well. A driver is currently waiting for you in the baggage claim area, holding a sign with the name Benatar on it. He'll take you to the plane I've chartered for you. For a second, I thought Artemis might bow too. But then she ran over and threw her arms around Og in a bear hug. Thank you, Og, she said. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome, dear, he said with an embarrassed laugh. When she finally released him, he turned to H and me. H, I understand that you have a vehicle and that you're currently in the vicinity of Pittsburgh? H nodded. If you wouldn't mind driving to Columbus to retrieve your friend Parzival here, I'll arrange for a jet to pick up both of you at the Columbus airport. That is, if you boys don't mind sharing a ride? No, that sounds perfect, H said, glancing at me sideways. Thanks, Og. Yes, thank you, I repeated. You're a lifesaver. I hope so. He gave me a grim smile, then turned to address everyone. Safe travels, all of you. I'll see you soon. And then he vanished, just as quickly as he'd appeared. Well, this blows, I said, turning to H. Artemis and Shoto get limos, and I have to bum a ride to the airport with your ugly ass in some shit heap RV? It's not a shit heap, H said, laughing. And you're welcome to take a cab, asshole. This is going to be interesting, I said, stealing a quick glance at Artemis. The four of us are finally going to meet in person. It will be an honor, Shoto said. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Artemis said, locking eyes with me. I can't wait. After Shoto and Artemis logged out, I gave H my current location. It's a plug franchise. Call me when you get here and I'll meet you out front. Will do, he said. Listen... I should warn you, I don't look anything like my avatar. So? Who does? I'm not really this tall or muscular, and my nose is slightly bigger. I'm just warning you. Meeting me might be kind of a shock for you. Okay, then why don't you just tell me what you look like right now? I'm already on the road, he said, ignoring my question. I'll see you in a few hours, okay? Okay. Drive safe, amigo. Despite what I'd said to H, knowing that I was about to meet him in person after all these years made me more nervous than I wanted to admit. But it was nothing compared to the apprehension I already felt building inside me at the prospect of meeting Artemis once we reached Oregon. Trying to picture the actual moment filled me with a mixture of excitement and abject terror. What would she be like in person? Was the photo I'd seen in her file actually a fake? Did I still have any kind of chance with her at all? With a Herculean effort, I managed to put her out of my mind by forcing myself to focus on the approaching battle. As soon as I logged out of H's basement, I sent out my call-to-arms email as a global announcement to every Oasis user. Knowing most of those emails wouldn't get through the spam filters, I also posted it to every Gunter message board. 
Then I made a short vidcap recording of my avatar reading it aloud and set it to run on a continuous loop on my POV channel. The word spread quickly. Within an hour, our plan to assault Castle Anorak was the top story on every single news feed, accompanied by headlines like, Gunters declare all-out war on the Sixers, and Top Gunters accuse IOI of kidnapping and murder, and Is the hunt for Halliday's egg finally over? Some of the news feeds were already running the video clip of Diato's murder I'd sent them, along with the text of Sorrento's memo, citing an anonymous source for both. So far, IOI had declined to comment on either. By now, Sorrento would know I'd somehow gained access to the Sixers' private database. I wished I could see his face when he learned how I'd done it, that I'd spent an entire week just a few floors below his office. I spent the next few hours outfitting my avatar and preparing myself mentally for what was to come. When I could no longer keep my eyes open, I decided to catch a quick nap while I waited for H to arrive. I disabled the auto-logout feature on my account, then drifted off in the haptic chair with my new jacket draped over me as a blanket, clutching in one hand the pistol I'd purchased earlier that day. I woke with a start sometime later to the sound of H's ringtone. He was calling to let me know he'd arrived outside. I climbed out of the rig collected my things, and returned the rented gear at the front desk. When I stepped out into the street, I saw that night had fallen. The frozen air hit me like a bucket of ice water. H's tiny RV was just a few yards away parked at the curb. It was a mocha-colored Sunrider, about 20 feet long and at least two decades old. A patchwork of solar cells covered the RV's roof and most of its body, along with a liberal amount of rust. The windows were tinted black, so I couldn't see inside. I took a deep breath and crossed the slush-covered sidewalk, feeling a strange combination of dread and excitement. As I approached the RV, a door near the center of the right side slid open and a short stepladder extended to the pavement. I climbed inside, and the door slid shut behind me. I found myself in the RV's tiny kitchen. It was dark, except for the running lights set into the carpeted floor. To my left, I saw a small bedroom area at the back, wedged into a loft above the RV's battery compartment. I turned and walked slowly across the darkened kitchen, then pulled back the beaded curtain covering the doorway to the cab. A heavy-set African-American girl sat in the RV's driver's seat, clutching the wheel tightly and staring straight ahead. She was about my age, with short, kinky hair and chocolate-colored skin that appeared iridescent in the soft glow of the dashboard indicators. She was wearing a vintage Rush 2112 concert t-shirt, and the numbers were warped around her large bosom. She also had on faded black jeans and a pair of studded combat boots. She appeared to be shivering, even though it was nice and warm in the cab. I stood there for a moment, staring at her in silence, waiting for her to acknowledge my presence. Eventually she turned and smiled at me, and it was a smile I recognized immediately, that Cheshire grin I'd seen thousands of times before on the face of H's avatar during the countless nights we'd spent together in the Oasis 
telling bad jokes and watching bad movies. And her smile wasn't the only thing I found familiar. I also recognized the set of her eyes and the lines of her face. There was no doubt in my mind. The young woman sitting in front of me was my best friend, H. A wave of emotion washed over me. Shock gave way to a sense of betrayal. How could he, she, deceive me all these years? I felt my face flush with embarrassment as I remembered all of the adolescent intimacies I'd shared with H, a person I'd trusted implicitly, someone I thought I knew. When I didn't say anything, her eyes dropped to her boots and stayed on them. I sat down heavily in the passenger seat, still staring over at her, still unsure of what to say. She kept stealing glances at me. Then her eyes would dart away nervously. She was still trembling. Whatever anger or betrayal I felt quickly evaporated. I couldn't help myself. I started to laugh. There was no meanness in it, and I knew she could tell that because her shoulders relaxed a bit and she let out a relieved sigh. Then she started to laugh too, half laughing and half crying, I thought. Hey, H, I said once our laughter subsided. How goes it? It's going good, Z, she said. All sunshine and rainbows. Her voice was familiar too, just not quite as deep as it was online. All this time, she'd been using software to disguise it. Well, I said, look at us. Here we are. Yeah, H replied. Here we are. An uncomfortable silence descended. I hesitated a moment, unsure of what to do. Then I followed my instincts, crossed the small space between us, and put my arms around her. It's good to see you, old friend. I said. Thanks for coming to get me. She returned the hug. It's good to see you too, she said, and I could tell she meant it. I let go of her and stepped back. Christ, H. I said, smiling. I knew you were hiding something, but I never imagined. What? She said a bit defensively. You never imagined what? That the famous H, renowned gunter and the most feared and ruthless arena combatant in the entire oasis, was in reality a a fat black chick. I was going to say. Young African American woman. Her expression darkened. There's a reason I never told you, you know. And I'm sure it's a good one, I said. But it really doesn't matter. It doesn't. Of course not. You're my best friend, H. My only friend, to be honest. Well, I still want to explain. Okay. But can it wait until we're in the air? I said, "We've got a long way to travel, and I'll feel a lot safer once we've left this city in the dust." We're on our way, amigo," she said, putting the RV in gear. H followed Og's directions to a private hangar near the Columbus Airport, where a small luxury jet was waiting for us. Og had arranged for H's RV to be stored in a nearby hangar, but it had been her home for many years. 
and I could tell she was nervous about leaving it behind. We both stared at the jet in wonder as we approached it. I'd seen airplanes in the sky before, of course, but I'd never seen one up close. Traveling by jet was something only rich people could afford. That Aug could afford to charter three different jets to retrieve us without batting an eyelash was a testament to just how insanely wealthy he must be. The jet was completely automated, so there was no crew on board. We were all alone. The placid voice of the autopilot welcomed us aboard, then told us to strap in and prepare for takeoff. We were up in the air within minutes. It was the first time either of us had ever flown, and we both spent the first hour of the flight staring out the windows, overwhelmed by the view, as we hurtled westward through the atmosphere at 10,000 feet on our way to Oregon. Finally, once some of the novelty had worn off, I could tell that H was ready to talk. Okay, H, I said. Tell me your story. She flashed her Cheshire grin and took a deep breath. The whole thing was originally my mother's idea, she said. Then she launched into an abbreviated version of her life story. Her real name, she said, was Helen Harris, and she was only a few months older than I was. She'd grown up in Atlanta, raised by a single mother. Her father had died in Afghanistan when she was still a baby. Her mother, Marie, worked from home in an online data processing center. In Marie's opinion, the Oasis was the best thing that had ever happened to both women and people of color. From the very start, Marie had used a white male avatar to conduct all of her online business because of the marked difference it made in how she was treated and the opportunities she was given. When H. first logged into the Oasis, she followed her mother's advice and created a Caucasian male avatar. H. had been her mother's nickname for her since she was a baby so she'd decided to use it as the name of her online persona. A few years later, when she started attending school online, her mother lied about her daughter's race and gender on the application. H was required to provide a photo for her school profile, so she'd submitted a photorealistic rendering of her male avatar's face, which she'd modeled after her own features. H told me that she hadn't seen or spoken to her mother since leaving home on her 18th birthday. That was the day H had finally come out to her mother about her sexuality. At first, her mother refused to believe she was gay, but then Helen revealed that she'd been dating a girl she met online for nearly a year. As H explained all of this, I could tell she was studying my reaction. I wasn't all that surprised, really. Over the past few years, H and I had discussed our mutual admiration for the female form on numerous occasions. I was actually relieved to know that H. hadn't been deceiving me, at least not on that account. How did your mother react when she found out you had a girlfriend? I asked. Well, it turns out that my mother had her own set of deep-seated prejudices, H. said. She kicked me out of the house and said she never wanted to see me again. I was homeless for a little while. I lived in a series of shelters. But eventually, I earned enough competing in the Oasis Arena Leagues to buy my RV, and I've been living in it ever since. I usually only stop moving when the RV's batteries need to recharge. As we continued to talk, 
going through the motions of getting to know each other, I realized that we already did know each other, as well as any two people could. We'd known each other for years, in the most intimate way possible. We'd connected on a purely mental level. I understood her, trusted her, and loved her as a dear friend. None of that had changed, or could be changed, by anything as inconsequential as her gender, or skin color, or sexual orientation. The rest of the flight seemed to go by in a blink. H and I quickly fell into our old familiar rhythm, and before long it was like we were back in the basement, trash-talking each other over a game of quake or joust. Any fears I had about the resiliency of our friendship in the real world had vanished by the time our jet touched down on Og's private runway in Oregon. We'd been flying west across the country, just a few hours ahead of the sunrise, so it was still dark when we landed. H and I both froze in our tracks as we stepped off the plane, gazing in wonder at the scene around us. Even in the dim moonlight, the view was breathtaking. The dark, towering silhouettes of the Wallawa Mountains surrounded us on all sides. Rows of blue runway lights stretched out along the valley floor behind us, delineating Og's private landing strip. Directly ahead, a steep cobblestone staircase at the edge of the runway led up to a grand, floodlit mansion constructed on a plateau near the base of the mountain range. Several waterfalls were visible in the distance, spilling off the peaks beyond Morrow's mansion. It looks just like Rivendell, H said, taking the words right out of my mouth. I nodded. It looks exactly like Rivendell in the Lord of the Rings movies, I said, still staring up at it in awe. Og's wife was a big Tolkien fan, remember? He built this place for her. We heard an electric hum behind us as the jet staircase retracted and the hatch closed. The engines powered back up and the jet rotated, preparing to take off again. We stood and watched it launch back up into the clear, starry sky. Then we turned and began to mount the staircase leading up to the house. When we finally reached the top, Ogden Morrow was there, waiting for us. Welcome, my friends! Og bellowed, extending both his hands in greeting. He was dressed in a plaid bathrobe and bunny slippers. Welcome to my home! Thank you, sir, H said. Thanks for inviting us here. Ah, you must be H, he replied, clasping her hand. If he was surprised by her appearance, he didn't show it. I recognize your voice. He gave her a wink, followed by a bear hug. Then he turned and hugged me, too. And you must be Wade. I mean, Parzival. Welcome, welcome. It's truly an honor to meet you both. The honor is ours, I said. We really can't thank you enough for helping us. You've already thanked me enough, so stop it, he said. He turned and led us across an expansive green lawn toward his enormous house. I can't tell you how good it is to have visitors. Sad to say, I've been all alone here since Kira died. He was silent a moment, then he laughed. 
alone except for my cooks, maids, and gardeners, of course. But they all live here too, so they don't really count as visitors. Neither I nor H knew how to reply, so we just kept smiling and nodding. Eventually, I worked up the courage to speak. Have the others arrived yet, Shoto and Artemis? Something about the way I said Artemis made Moro chuckle long and loud. After a few seconds, I realized H was laughing at me too. What? I said. What's so funny? Yes, Og said, grinning. Artemis arrived first several hours ago, and Shoto's plane got here about thirty minutes before you arrived. Are we going to meet them now? I asked, doing an extremely poor job of hiding my apprehension. Og shook his head. Artemis felt that meeting you two right now would be an unnecessary distraction. She wanted to wait until after the big event, and Shoto seemed to agree. He studied me for a moment. It probably is for the best, you know. You've all got a big day ahead of you. I nodded, feeling a strange combination of relief and disappointment. Where are they now? H asked. Og raised a fist triumphantly in the air. They're already logged in, preparing for your assault on the Sixers. His voice echoed across the grounds and off the high stone walls of his mansion. Follow me. The hour draws near. Og's enthusiasm pulled me back into the moment, and I felt a nervous knot form in the pit of my stomach. We followed our bathrobed benefactor across the expansive moonlit courtyard. As we approached the main house, we passed a small gated-in garden filled with flowers. The garden was in a strange location, and I couldn't figure out its purpose until I saw the large tombstone at its center. Then I realized it must be Kiramoro's grave, but even in the bright moonlight. It was still too dark for me to make out the inscription on the headstone. Og led us through the mansion's lavish front entrance. The lights were off inside, but instead of turning them on, Moro took an honest-to-god torch off the wall and used it to illuminate our way. Even in dim torchlight, the grandeur of the place amazed me. Giant tapestries. And a huge collection of fantasy artwork covered the walls, while gargoyle statues and suits of armor lined the hallways. As we followed Og, I worked up enough courage to speak to him. Listen, I know this probably isn't the time, I said, but I'm a huge fan of your work. I grew up playing Halcydonia Interactive's educational games. They taught me how to read, write, do math. Solve puzzles. I proceeded to ramble on as we walked, raving about all of my favorite Halcydonia titles and geeking out on Og in a classically embarrassing fashion. H must have thought I was brown nosing because she snickered throughout my stammering monologue, but Og was very cool about it. That's wonderful to hear, he said, seeming genuinely pleased. My wife and I were very proud of those games. I'm so glad you have fond memories of them. We rounded a corner, 
and H and I both froze before the entrance of a giant room filled with row after row of old video games. We both knew it must be James Halliday's classic video game collection, the collection he'd willed tomorrow after his death. Og glanced around and saw us lingering by the entrance, then hurried back to retrieve us. I promise to give you a tour later when all the excitement is over, Og said, his breathing a bit labored. He was moving quickly for a man his age and size. He led us down a spiral stone staircase to an elevator that carried us down several more floors to Og's basement. The decor here was much more modern. We followed Og through a maze of carpeted hallways until we reached a row of seven circular doorways, each numbered. And here we are, Morrow said, gesturing with the torch. These are my oasis immersion bays. They're all top-of-the-line Habesha rigs, OIR 9400s. 9400s? No kidding? H let out a low whistle. Wicked. Where are the others? I asked, looking around nervously. Artemis and Shoto are already in bays two and three, he said. Bay one is mine. You two can take your pick of the others. I stared at the doors, wondering which one Artemis was behind. Og motioned to the end of the hall. You'll find haptic suits of all sizes in the dressing rooms. Now, get yourselves suited and booted. He smiled wide when H and I emerged from the dressing rooms a few minutes later, each dressed in brand new haptic suits and gloves. Excellent, Og said. Now, grab a bay and log in. The clock is ticking. H turned to face me. I could tell she wanted to say something, but words seemed to fail her. After a few seconds, she stuck out her gloved hand. I took it. Good luck, H, I said. Good luck, Z, she replied. Then she turned to Og and said, Thanks again, Og. Before he could respond, she stood on her tiptoes and kissed him on the cheek. Then she disappeared through the door to Bay 4, and it hissed shut behind her. Og grinned after her, then turned to face me. The whole world is rooting for the four of you. Try not to let them down. We'll do our best. I know you will. He offered me his hand, and I shook it. I took a step toward my immersion bay, then turned back. Og, can I ask you one question? I said. He raised an eyebrow. If you're going to ask me what's inside the third gate, I have no idea, he said. And even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. You should know that. I shook my head. No, that's not it. I wanted to ask what it was that ended your friendship with Halliday. In all the research I've done, I've never been able to find out. What happened? Morrow studied me for a moment. He'd been asked this question in interviews many times before and had always ignored it. I don't know why he decided to tell me. Maybe he'd been waiting all these years to tell someone. It was because of Kira my wife. He paused a moment, then cleared his throat and continued. Like me, he'd been in love with her since high school. Of course, he never had the courage to act on it, so she never knew how he felt about her, and neither did I. 
He didn't tell me about it until the last time I spoke to him, right before he died. Even then, it was hard for him to communicate with me. Jim was never very good with people or with expressing his emotions. I nodded silently and waited for him to continue. Even after Kira and I got engaged, I think Jim still harbored some fantasy of stealing her away from me. But once we got married, he abandoned that notion. He told me he'd stopped speaking to me because of the overwhelming jealousy he felt. Kira was the only woman he ever loved. Moro's voice caught in his throat. I can understand why Jim felt that way. Kira was very special. It was impossible not to fall in love with her. He smiled at me. You know what it's like to meet someone like that, don't you? I do, I said. Then, when I realized he had no more to say on the subject, I said, Thank you, Mr. Morrow. Thank you for telling me all of that. You're quite welcome, he said. Then he walked over to his immersion bay, and the door irised open. Inside, I could see that his rig had been modified to include several strange components, including an Oasis console modified to look like a vintage Commodore 64. He glanced back at me. Good luck, Parzival. You're going to need it. What are you going to do? I asked, during the fight. Sit back and watch, of course, he said. This looks to be the most epic battle in video game history. He grinned at me one last time, then stepped through the door and was gone, leaving me alone in the dimly lit hallway. I spent a few minutes thinking about everything Moro had told me. Then I walked over to my own immersion bay and stepped inside. It was a small spherical room. A gleaming haptic chair was suspended on a jointed hydraulic arm attached to the ceiling. There was no omnidirectional treadmill because the room itself served that function. While you were logged in, you could walk or run in any direction and the sphere would rotate around and beneath you, preventing you from ever touching the wall. It was like being inside a giant hamster ball. I climbed into the chair and felt it adjust to fit the contours of my body. A robotic arm extended from the chair and slipped a brand new oculence visor onto my face. It, too, adjusted so that it fit perfectly. The visor scanned my retinas, and the system prompted me to speak my new passphrase, Reindeer Flotilla SeaTech Astronomy. I took a deep breath as the system logged me in. Chapter 34 I was ready to rock. My avatar was buffed to the eyeballs and armed to the teeth. I was packing as many magic items and as much firepower as I could squeeze into my inventory. Everything was in place. Our plan was in motion. It was time to go. I entered my stronghold's hangar and pressed a button on the wall to open the launch doors. They slid back, slowly revealing the launch tunnel leading up to Falco's surface. I walked to the end of the runway, past my X-Wing and the Vonnegut. 
I wouldn't be taking either of them today. They were both good ships, with formidable weapons and defenses. But neither craft would offer much protection in the epic shitstorm that was about to unfold on Thonia. Fortunately, I now had a new mode of transportation. I removed the 12-inch Leopardon robot from my avatar's inventory and set it down gently on the runway. Shortly before I'd been arrested by IOI, I'd taken some time to examine the toy Leopardon robot and ascertain its powers. As I suspected, the robot was actually a powerful magical item. It hadn't taken me long to figure out the command word required to activate it. Just like in Toei's original Supaidaman TV series, you summoned the robot simply by shouting its name. I did this now, taking the precaution of backing away from the robot a good distance before shouting, Leopardon! I heard a piercing shriek that sounded like rending metal. A second later, the once tiny robot had grown to a height of almost a hundred meters. The top of the robot's head now protruded through the open launch doors in the hangar ceiling. I gazed up at the towering robot, admiring the attention to detail Halliday had put into coding it. Every feature of the original Japanese mech had been recreated, including its giant gleaming sword and spiderweb embossed shield. A tiny access door was set into the robot's massive left foot, and it opened as I approached, revealing a small elevator inside. It carried me up through the interior of the robot's leg and torso to the cockpit located inside its armored chest. As I seated myself in the captain's chair, I spotted a silver control bracelet in a clear case on the wall. I took it out and snapped it onto my avatar's wrist. The bracelet would allow me to use voice commands to control the robot while I was outside it. Several rows of buttons were set into the command console in front of me, all labeled in Japanese. I pressed one of them, and the engines roared to life. Then I hit the throttle, and the twin rocket boosters in each of the robot's feet ignited, launching it upward, out of my stronghold, and into Falco's star-filled sky. I noticed that Halliday had added an old 8-track tape player to the cockpit control panel. There was also a rack of 8-track tapes mounted over my right shoulder. I grabbed one and slapped it into the deck. Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap by ACDC began to blast out of the robot's internal and external speakers, so loud it made my chair vibrate. As soon as the robot was clear of my hangar, I shouted, Change Marveler! into the control bracelet. The voice commands appeared to work only if you shouted them. The robot's legs, arms, and head folded inward and locked into new positions, transforming the robot into a starship known as the Marveler. Once the transformation was complete, I left Falco's orbit and set a course for the nearest Stargate. When I emerged from the Stargate in Sector 10, my radar screen lit up like a Christmas tree. Thousands of space vehicles of every make and model were crawling through the starry blackness around me, everything from single-seater craft to giant moon-sized freighters. I'd never seen so many starships in one place. A steady stream of them poured out of the Stargate while others converged on the area from every direction in the sky. 
all of the ships gradually funneled together, forming a long, haphazard caravan of vessels stretching toward Thonia, a tiny, blue-brown orb floating in the distance. It looked like every single person in the oasis was headed for Castle Anorak. I felt a brief surge of exhilaration, even though I knew Artemis's warning might still prove true. There was a chance most of these avatars were here only to watch the show and had no intention of actually risking their lives to fight the Sixers. Artemis. After all this time, she was now in a room just a few feet away from me. We would actually be meeting in person as soon as this fight was over. The thought should have terrified me, but instead I felt a zen calm wash over me. Whatever was going to happen down on Thonia, everything I'd risked had already been worth it. I transformed the Marveler back into its robot configuration, then joined the long parade of spacecraft. My ship stood out in the vast array of vessels since it was the only giant robot. A cloud of smaller ships quickly formed around me, piloted by curious avatars zooming in for a closer look at Leopardon. I had to mute my comlink because so many different people were trying to hail me, asking who the hell I was and where I'd picked up such a sweet ride. As the planet Thonia grew larger in my cockpit window, the density and number of ships around me seemed to increase exponentially. When I finally entered the planet's atmosphere and began to descend toward the surface, it was like flying through a swarm of metal insects. When I reached the area around Castle Anorak, I had a hard time believing my eyes. A concentrated, pulsing mass of ships and avatars covered the ground and filled the air. It was like some otherworldly woodstock. Shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder avatars stretched to the horizon in all directions. Thousands more floated and flew through the air above dodging the constant influx of ships. And, at the center of all this insanity, stood Castle Anorak itself, an onyx jewel gleaming beneath the Sixer's transparent, spherical shield. Every few seconds, some hapless avatar or ship would inadvertently fly or careen into the shield and get vaporized like a fly hitting a bug zapper. When I got closer... I spotted an open patch of ground directly in front of the castle's entrance, just outside the shield wall. Three giant figures stood side by side at the center of the clearing. The crowd around them was continuously surging inward and then receding as avatars pushed back against each other to try to keep a respectful distance from H, Artemis, and Shoto, who each sat inside their own gleaming giant robot. This was my first opportunity to see which robots H, Artemis, and Shoto had selected after clearing the second gate, and it took me a moment to place the towering female robot Artemis was piloting. It was black and chrome in color, with elaborate boomerang-shaped headgear and symmetrical red breastplates that made it look like a female version of Transor Z. Then, I realized... It was the female version of Transor Z, an obscure character from the original Mazinger Z anime series known as Minerva X. 
H had selected an RX-78 Gundam mech from the original Mobile Suit Gundam anime series, one of his longtime favorites. Even though I now knew H was actually a female in real life, her avatar was still male, so I decided to continue to refer to him as such. Shoto stood several heads taller than both of them, concealed inside the cockpit of Raiding, the enormous red and blue robot from the mid-70s Brave Raiding anime series. The massive mech clutched his signature golden bow in one hand and had a large spiked shield strapped to the other. A roar swept through the crowd as I flew in low over the shield and rocketed to a halt above the others. I rotated my orientation so that Leopardon was upright, then cut the engines and dropped the remaining distance to the surface. My robot landed on one knee and the impact shook the ground. As I stood it upright, the sea of onlookers began to chant my avatar's name. Parzival! Parzival! As the chanting faded back to a dull roar, I turned to face my companions. Nice entrance, you big show-off, Artemis said, using our private comlink channel. Did you show up late on purpose? Not my fault, I swear, I said, trying to play it cool. There was a long line at the Stargate. H nodded his mech's massive head. Every transport terminal on the planet has been spitting out avatars since last night, he said, motioning to the scene around us with his Gundam's massive hand. This is unreal. I've never seen so many ships or avatars in one place. Me neither, Artemis said. I'm surprised the GSS servers can handle the load with so much activity in one sector, but there doesn't seem to be any lag at all. I took a long look at the sea of avatars around us then shifted my attention to the castle. Thousands of flying avatars and ships continued to buzz around the shield, occasionally firing bullets, lasers, missiles, and other projectiles at it, all of which impacted harmlessly on the surface. Inside the sphere, thousands of power-armored Sixer avatars stood in silent formation, completely encircling the castle. Interspersed through their ranks were rows of hover tanks and gunships. In any other setting, the Sixer army would have appeared formidable, maybe even unstoppable. But in the face of the endless mob that now surrounded them, the Sixers looked woefully outnumbered and outmatched. So, Parzival, said Shoto, turning his robot's huge head in my direction. It's showtime, old friend. If that sphere doesn't come down like you promised, this is going to be pretty embarrassing. Han will have that shield down, H quoted. We've got to give him more time. I laughed, then used my robot's right hand to tap the back of its left wrist, indicating the time. H is right. It's still six minutes to noon. The end of my sentence was drowned out by another roar from the crowd. Directly in front of us, Inside the sphere, the massive front doors of Castle Anorak had just swung open, and now a single Sixer avatar was emerging from within. Sorrento. Grinning at the din of booing and hissing that greeted his arrival, Sorrento waved his hand at the Sixer troops stationed directly in front of the castle 
and they immediately scattered, clearing a large, open space. Sorrento stepped forward into it, positioning himself directly opposite us, just a few dozen yards away, on the other side of the shield. Ten other Sixer avatars emerged from the castle and positioned themselves behind Sorrento, each of them standing a good distance apart. I have a bad feeling about this, Artemis muttered into her headset. Yeah, H whispered. Me too. Sorrento surveyed the scene, then smiled up at us. When he spoke, his voice was amplified through powerful speakers mounted on the Sixer gunships and hover tanks, allowing him to be heard by everyone in the area. And since there were cameras and reporters from every major newsfeed outlet present, I knew his words were being broadcast to the entire world. Welcome to Castle Anorak, Sorrento said. We've been expecting you. He made a sweeping gesture, indicating the angry mob that surrounded him. I must say, we are a bit surprised so many of you showed up here today. By now it must be obvious to even the most ignorant among you that nothing can get past our shield. His proclamation was met with a deafening roar of shouted threats, insults, and colorful profanity. I waited a moment, then raised both of my robot's hands, calling for quiet. Once a semblance of silence had descended, I got on the public comm channel, which had the same effect as turning on a giant PA system. I dialed my headset volume down to kill the feedback, then said, You're wrong, Sorrento. We're coming in. At noon. All of us. A roar of approval erupted from the assembled gunters. Sorrento didn't bother waiting for it to die down. You're welcome to try, he said, still grinning. Then he produced an item from his inventory and placed it on the ground in front of him. I zoomed in for a closer look and felt the muscles in my jaw tighten. It was a toy robot, a bipedal dinosaur with armor-plated skin and a pair of large cannons mounted on its shoulder blades. I recognized it immediately from several turn-of-the-century Japanese monster flicks. It was Mechagodzilla. Kiryu! Sorrento shouted, his voice still amplified. At the sound of the command word, his tiny robot instantly grew in size until it stood almost as tall as Castle Anorak itself twice the height of the giant robots that H, Shoto, Artemis, and I piloted. The mechanical lizard's armored head almost touched the top of the spherical shield. An awestruck silence fell over the crowd, followed by a rumble of fearful recognition from the thousands of gunters present. They all recognized this giant metal behemoth, and they all knew it was nearly indestructible. Sorrento entered the mech through an access door in one of its massive heels. A few seconds later, the beast's eyes began to glow bright yellow. Then it threw back its head, opened its jagged maw, and let out a piercing metallic roar. On cue, the ten Sixer avatars standing behind Sorrento 
pulled out their toy robots and activated them too. Five of them had the huge robotic lions that could form Voltron. The other five had giant mechs from Robotech and Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh, shit, I heard Artemis and H whisper in unison. Come on, Sorrento shouted defiantly. His challenge echoed across the crowded landscape. Many of the gunters on the front lines took an involuntary step backward. A few others turned and ran for their lives. But H, Shoto, Artemis, and I held our ground. I checked the time on my display. Less than a minute to go now. I pressed a button on Leopardon's control panel, and my giant robot drew its gleaming sword. I didn't witness it firsthand, but I can tell you with some certainty that this is what happened next. The Sixers had erected a large armored bunker behind Castle Anorak, filled with pallets of weapons and battle gear that had been teleported in by the Sixers before they activated their shield. There was also a long rack of 30 supply droids, which had been installed along the bunker's eastern wall. Due to a lack of imagination on the part of the supply droid's original designer, they all looked exactly like the robot Johnny Five from the 1986 film Short Circuit. The Sixers used these droids primarily as gophers to run errands and fill equipment and ammo requisitions for the troops stationed outside. At exactly one minute to noon, one of the supply droids, designation SD-03, powered itself on and disengaged from its charging dock. Then it rolled forward on its tank treads across the bunker floor to the armory cage at its opposite end. Two robotic sentries stood outside the armory's entrance. SD-03 transmitted its equipment requisition order to them, an order that I myself had submitted on the Sixer intranet two days earlier. The sentries verified the requisition and stepped aside, permitting SD-03 to roll into the cage. It continued past long storage racks that held a wide array of weaponry, magic swords, shields, powered armor suits, plasma rifles, railguns, and countless other weapons. Finally, the droid rolled to a stop. The rack in front of it held five large octahedron-shaped devices, each roughly the size of a soccer ball. Each device had a small control panel set into one of its eight sides, along with a serial number. SD-03 found the serial number that matched the one on my requisition form. Then, following a set of instructions I'd programmed into it, the little droid used its claw-like index finger to enter a series of commands on the device's control panel. When it finished, a small light above the keypad turned from green to red. Then, SD-03 lifted the octahedron in its arms. As it exited the armory, one antimatter friction induction bomb was subtracted from the Sixer's computerized inventory. SD-03 then rolled out of the bunker and began to climb a series of ramps and staircases the Sixers had built onto the castle's outer walls to provide access to the upper levels. Along the way, the droid rolled through several security checkpoints. Each time, robotic sentries scanned its security clearance 
and found that the droid was allowed to go anywhere it damn well pleased. When SDO-3 reached Castle Anorak's uppermost level, it rolled out onto a large observation platform located there. At this point, SDO-3 may have drawn a few curious looks from the squadron of elite Sixer avatars guarding the platform. I have no way of knowing. But even if the guards somehow anticipated what was about to happen and opened fire on the little droid, it was too late for them to stop it now. SDO-3 continued rolling directly to the center of the roof, where a high-level Sixer wizard sat holding the orb of Ozuvox, the artifact generating the spherical shield around the castle. Then, executing the last of the instructions I'd programmed into it two days earlier, SDO-3 lifted the antimatter friction induction bomb up over its head and detonated it. The explosion vaporized the supply droid, along with all the avatars stationed on the platform, including the Sixer wizard who was operating the orb of Ozuvox. The moment he died, the artifact deactivated and fell to the now-empty platform. Chapter 35 a brilliant flash of light accompanied the detonation, momentarily blinding me. When it receded, my eyes focused back on the castle. The shield was down. Now, nothing separated the mighty Sixer and Gunter armies but open ground and empty space. For about five seconds, nothing happened. Time seemed to stop, and everything was silent and still. Then... All hell broke loose. Sitting alone in the cockpit of my mech, I let out a silent cheer. Incredibly, my plan had worked. But I had no time to celebrate, because I was now standing smack dab in the middle of the largest battle in the history of the Oasis. I don't know what I expected to happen next. I'd hoped maybe a tenth of the Gunters present would join our assault on the Sixers. But in seconds, it was clear that every single one of them intended to join the fight. A fierce battle cry rose from the sea of avatars around us, and they all surged forward, converging on the Sixer army from every direction. Their total lack of hesitation astounded me, because it was obvious many of them were rushing towards certain death. I watched in amazement as the two mighty forces clashed all around me, on the ground and in the sky. It was a chaotic, breathtaking scene, like several beehives and wasp nests had been smashed together and then dropped onto a giant anthill. Artemis, H., Shoto, and I stood at the center of it all. At first, I didn't even move for fear of crushing the wave of gunters swarming around and over my robot's feet. Sorrento, however, didn't wait for anyone to get out of his way. He crushed several dozen avatars, including a few of his own troops, under his mech's titanic feet as he lumbered toward us, each of his footfalls creating a small crater in the rocky surface. Uh-oh, I heard Shoto mutter as his mech assumed a defensive posture. Here he comes. 
The Sixer mechs were already taking an immense amount of fire from all directions. Sorrento was getting hit more than anyone because his mech was the biggest target on the battlefield and no gunter with a ranged weapon could seem to resist taking a shot at him. The intense barrage of projectiles, fireballs, magic missiles, and laser bolts quickly destroyed or disabled the other Sixer mechs, who never even got a chance to form Voltron. But Sorrento's robot somehow remained undamaged. Every projectile that hit him seemed to ricochet harmlessly off his mech's armored body. Dozens of spacecraft swooped and buzzed around him, peppering his mech with rocket fire, but their attacks also seemed to have little effect. It is on, H shouted into his comlink. It is on like Red Dawn. And with that, he unleashed all of his Gundam's considerable firepower at Sorrento. At the same moment, Shoto began firing Radine's bow, while Artemis's mech fired some sort of red energy beam that appeared to originate from Minerva X's giant metal breasts. Not wanting to be left out, I fired Leopardon's arc turn weapon, a gold boomerang that launched from the mech's forehead. All of our attacks were direct hits, but Artemis's beam weapon was the only one that seemed to do any real damage to Sorrento. She blasted a chunk out of the metal lizard's right shoulder blade and disabled the cannon mounted there. But Sorrento didn't pause in his approach. As he continued to close in on us, the Mecha Godzilla's eyes began to glow a bright blue. Then Sorrento opened its mouth and a cascading bolt of blue lightning shot outward from the mech's open maw. The beam struck the ground directly in front of us, then cut a deep, smoking furrow in the earth as it continued to sweep forward, vaporizing every avatar and ship in its path. All four of us managed to leap out of the way by launching our robot skyward, though I nearly took a direct hit. The lightning weapon shut down a second later, but Sorrento continued to trudge forward. I noticed that his mech's eyes were no longer glowing blue. Apparently, his lightning weapon had to recharge. I think we've reached the final boss, H joked over the comlink. The four of us were now spread out and circling above Sorrento, making ourselves moving targets. Screw this, guys, I said. I don't think we can destroy that thing. Astute observation, Z, Artemis said. Got any bright ideas? I thought for a second. How about I distract him while the three of you cut around and head for the castle entrance? Sounds like a plan, Shoto replied. But instead of heading for the castle, he banked and flew straight at Sorrento, closing the distance between them in the space of a few seconds. Go! He shouted into his comlink. This bastard is all mine! H cut across Sorrento's right flank, and Artemis banked left while I rocketed upward and over him. Below me, I could see Shoto facing off against Sorrento, and the difference in the size of their mechs was disturbing. Shoto's robot looked like an action figure next to Sorrento's massive metal dragon. Nevertheless, Shoto cut his thrusters and dropped to the ground directly in front of the Mechagodzilla. Hurry! I heard H shout. The castle entrance is wide open. 
from my vantage point in the sky above, I could see that the Sixer forces surrounding the castle were already being overrun by the endless mob of enemy avatars. The Sixers' lines were broken, and hundreds of Gunters were streaming past them now, running up to the open castle entrance, only to discover once they reached it that they couldn't cross the threshold because they didn't possess a copy of the Crystal Key. H swung around directly in front of me. Still a hundred feet off the ground, he popped the hatch of his Gundam's cockpit and leapt out, whispering the robot's command word in the same instant. As the giant robot shrank back to its original size, he snatched it out of the air and stowed it in his inventory. Now, flying by some magical means, H's avatar swooped down, passed over the bottleneck of Gunters clustered at the castle entrance, and disappeared through the open double doors. A second later, Artemis executed a similar maneuver, stowing her own mech in midair and then flying into the castle right behind H. I dropped Leopardon into a sharp dive and prepared to follow them. Shoto, I shouted into my comm. We're going inside now. Let's go. Go ahead, Shoto replied. I'll be right behind you. But something about the tone of his voice bothered me, and I pulled out of my dive and swung my mech back around. Shoto was hovering over Sorrento near his right flank. Sorrento slowly turned his mech around and began to stomp back toward the castle. I could see now that his mech's weakness was its lack of speed. The Mechagodzilla's slow movement and attacks counterbalanced its seeming invulnerability. Shoto! I shouted. What are you waiting for? Let's go! Go on without me, Shoto said. I owe this son of a bitch some payback. Before I could reply, Shoto dove at Sorrento, swinging a giant sword in each of his mech's hands. The blades both cut into Sorrento's right side, creating a shower of sparks. And to my surprise, they actually did some damage. When the smoke cleared, I saw that the Mechagodzilla's right arm now hung limp. It was nearly severed at the elbow. Looks like you'll be wiping with your left hand now, Sorrento, Shoto shouted triumphantly. Then he fired Radine's boosters and headed in my direction toward the castle. But Sorrento had already swiveled his mech's head around and was now taking a bead on Shoto with two glowing blue eyes. Shoto! I shouted. Look out! But my voice was drowned out by the sound of the lightning weapon firing out of the metal dragon's mouth. It nailed Shoto's mech directly in the center of its back. The robot exploded in an orange ball of fire. I heard a brief screech of static on the comm channel. I called out Shoto's name again, but he didn't reply. Then a message flashed on my display, informing me that Shoto's name had just disappeared from the scoreboard. He was dead. This realization momentarily stunned me, which was unfortunate because Sorrento's lightning weapon was still firing, moving in a fast, sweeping arc, cutting across the ground, then diagonally up the castle wall toward me. I finally reacted, too late, and Sorrento nailed my mech in the lower torso, just a split second before the beam cut off. I looked down to discover that the bottom half of my robot had just been blasted away. 
Every warning indicator in my cockpit started to flash as my mech began to fall out of the sky in two smoking, burning halves. Somehow, I had the presence of mind to reach up and yank the ejection handle above my seat. The cockpit canopy popped off, and I jumped free of the falling mech a split second before it impacted on the castle steps, killing several dozen of the avatars crowded there. I fired my avatar's jet boots just before I hit the ground, then quickly adjusted my immersion rig's control setup because I was now controlling my avatar instead of a giant robot. I managed to land on my feet in front of the castle, just clear of Leopardon's flaming wreckage. A second after I landed, a shadow spilled over me, and I turned around to see Sorrento's mech blotting out the sky. He raised its massive left foot, preparing to crush me. I took three running steps and jumped, firing my jet boots in mid-leap. The thrust threw me clear, just as the Mechagodzilla's huge clawed foot slammed down, forming a crater in the spot where I'd stood a second before. The metal beast let out another ear-splitting shriek, followed by hollow, booming laughter. Sorrento's laughter. I cut my jet boot thrusters and tucked my avatar into a ball. I hit the ground rolling, tumbled forward, then came up on my feet. I squinted up at the metal lizard's head. Its eyes weren't glowing again. Not yet. I could fire my jet boots again now and make it inside the castle before Sorrento could fire on me again. He wouldn't be able to follow me inside, not without getting out of his oversized mech. I could hear Artemis and H shouting at me on my comlink. They were already inside, standing in front of the gate, waiting for me. All I had to do was fly into the castle and join them. The three of us could open and enter the gate before Sorrento caught up with us. I was sure of it. But I didn't move. Instead, I took out the beta capsule and held the small metal cylinder in the palm of my avatar's hand. Sorrento had tried to kill me, and in the process, he'd murdered my aunt, along with several of my neighbors, including sweet old Mrs. Gilmore, who had never hurt a soul. He'd also had Daito killed, and even though I'd never met him, Daito had been my friend. And now, Sorrento had just killed Shoto's avatar, robbing him of his chance to enter the third gate. Sorrento didn't deserve his power or his position. What he deserved, I decided in that moment, was public humiliation and defeat. He deserved to have his ass kicked while the whole world watched. I held the beta capsule high over my head and pressed its activation button. There was a blinding flash of light, and the sky turned crimson as my avatar changed, growing and morphing into a gigantic red and silver-skinned humanoid alien with glowing egg-shaped eyes, a strange, finned head, and a glowing light embedded in the center of my chest. For the next three minutes, I was Ultraman. The Mechagodzilla stopped shrieking and thrashing, its gaze had been pointed down at the ground, where my avatar had stood a second earlier. Now, its head slowly tilted up, taking in the size of its new opponent, until our glowing eyes finally met. I now stood face to face with Sorrento's mech, matching its height 
and size almost exactly. Sorrento's mech took several awkward steps backward. Its eyes began to glow again. I crouched slightly and struck an offensive pose, noting that a timer now appeared in the corner of my display, counting down from three minutes. 259, 258-257. Below the timer, there was a menu listing Ultraman's various energy attacks in Japanese. I quickly selected Specium Ray and then held my arms up in front of me, one horizontal and the other vertical, forming a cross. A pulsing beam of white energy shot out of my forearms, striking the Mecha Godzilla in its chest and knocking it backward. Thrown off balance, Sorrento lost control and tripped over his own mammoth feet. His mech tumbled to the ground, landing on its side. A cheer went up from the thousands of avatars watching from the chaotic battlefield around us. I launched myself into the air and flew half a kilometer straight upward. Then I dropped back down, feet first, aiming my heels directly at the Mechagodzilla's curved spine. When my feet hit, I heard something inside the metal beast snap under my crushing weight. Smoke began to pour out of its mouth, and the blue glow in its eyes quickly dissipated. I executed a backflip and landed behind the supine mech in a crouch. Its single, functioning arm flailed wildly while its tail and legs thrashed about. Sorrento appeared to be struggling with the controls in an effort to get the beast back on its feet. I selected Yatsuaki Korin from my weapon menu, Ultra Slice. A glowing, circular saw blade of electric blue energy appeared in my right hand, spinning fiercely. I hurled it at Sorrento, releasing it with a snap of my wrist like a frisbee. It whirred through the air and struck the Mechagodzilla in its stomach. The energy blade cut into its metal skin as if it were tofu, slicing the mech into two halves. Just before the entire machine exploded, the head detached and blasted away from the neck. Sorrento had ejected. But since the mech was lying flat, the head shot out on a trajectory parallel to the ground. Sorrento quickly adjusted for this, and the rocket sprouting from the head began to tilt it skyward. Before it could get very far, I crossed my arms again and fired another specium ray, nailing the retreating head like a clay pigeon. It disintegrated in an immensely satisfying explosion. The crowd went wild. I checked the scoreboard and confirmed that Sorrento's employee number had vanished. His avatar was dead. I couldn't take too much satisfaction from this, though, because I knew he was probably already kicking one of his underlings out of a haptic chair so he could take control of a new avatar. The counter on my display had only 15 seconds remaining when I deactivated the beta capsule. My avatar instantly shrank back to normal size and my appearance returned to normal. Then, I spun around, powered on my jet boots, and flew into the castle. When I reached the opposite end of the huge foyer, I found H and Artemis standing in front of the crystal door, waiting for me. 
the smoking, bloodied bodies of over a dozen recently slain Sixer avatars lay scattered on the stone floor around them, slowly fading out of existence. Apparently, there had been a brief and decisive skirmish, and I'd just missed it. No fair, I said, cutting my jet boots and dropping to the floor beside H. You could have saved at least one of them for me. Artemis didn't reply. She just gave me the finger. Congrats on wasting Sorrento, H said. It was an epic throwdown for sure, but you're still a complete idiot. You know that, right? Yeah, I shrugged. I know. You're such a selfish asshole, Artemis shouted. What if you'd gotten yourself killed, too? I didn't, though, did I? I said, stepping around her to examine the crystal door. So chill out and let's open this thing. I examined the keyhole in the center of the door, then looked at the words printed directly above it, etched into the door's faceted surface. Charity. Hope. Faith. I took out my copy of the crystal key and held it up. H and Artemis followed suit and held up their keys, too. Nothing happened. We all exchanged concerned looks. Then... An idea occurred to me, and I cleared my throat. Three is a magic number, I said, reciting the first line of the schoolhouse rock song. As soon as I spoke the words, the crystal door began to glow, and two additional keyholes appeared on either side of the first. That did it, H whispered. Holy shit, I can't believe this. We're really here. "'Standing in front of the third gate.' "'Artemis nodded. "'Finally.' "'I inserted my key in the center keyhole. "'H inserted his into the keyhole on the left, "'and Artemis placed hers in the keyhole on the right. "'Clockwise,' Artemis said. "'On the count of three? "'H and I nodded. "'Artemis counted to three, "'and we turned our keys in unison.' There was a brief flash of blue light, during which all of our keys and the crystal door itself vanished. And then the third gate stood open in front of us, a crystal doorway leading into a spinning whirlpool of stars. Wow, I heard Artemis whisper beside me. Here we go. As the three of us stepped forward, preparing to enter the gate, I heard an ear-splitting boom. It sounded like the entire universe was cracking in half. And then we all died. Chapter 36 When your avatar gets killed, your screen doesn't fade to black right away. Instead, your point of view automatically shifts to a third-person perspective, treating you to a brief out-of-body replay of your avatar's final fate. A split second after we heard the thunderous boom, my perspective shifted, and I found myself looking at our three avatars, standing there frozen in front of the open gate. Then, an incinerating white light filled the world, accompanied by an ear-splitting wall of sound. It was what I'd always pictured being fried in a nuclear blast would be like. For a brief moment, 
I saw our avatars' skeletons suspended inside the transparent outlines of our motionless bodies. Then my avatar's hit point counter dropped to zero. The blast wave arrived a second later, disintegrating everything in its path. Our avatars, the floor, the walls, the castle itself, and the thousands of avatars gathered around it. Everything was turned to a fine, atomized dust that hung suspended in the air for a second before slowly settling to Earth. The entire surface of the planet had been wiped clean. The area around Castle Anorak, which had been crowded with warring avatars a split second before, was now a desolate and barren wasteland. Everyone and everything had been destroyed. Only the third gate remained, a crystal doorway floating in the air above the crater where the castle had stood a moment before. My initial shock quickly turned to dread as I realized what had just happened. The Sixers had detonated the cataclyst. It was the only explanation. Only that incredibly powerful artifact could have done this. Not only had it killed every avatar in the sector, it had even destroyed Castle Anorak, a fortress that, until now, had proven itself to be indestructible. I stared at the open gate, floating in the empty air, and waited for the inevitable final message to appear in the center of my display the words I knew every other avatar in the sector must be seeing at this very moment. Game over. But when words finally did appear on my display, it was another message entirely. Congratulations! You have an extra life! Then, as I watched in amazement, my avatar reappeared fading back into existence in the exact same location where I died a few seconds earlier. I was standing in front of the open gate again, but the gate was now floating in midair, suspended several dozen meters above the planet's surface, over the crater that had been created by the destruction of the castle. As my avatar finished materializing, I looked down and realized that the floor I'd been standing on earlier was now gone. So were my jet boots and everything else I'd been carrying. I seemed to hover in midair for a moment, like Wild E. Coyote in the old Roadrunner cartoons. Then I plummeted straight down. I made a desperate grab for the open gate in front of me, but it was well out of reach. I hit the ground hard and lost a third of my hit points from the impact. Then I slowly got to my feet and looked around. I was standing in a vast, cube-shaped crater, the space where the foundation and lower basement levels of Castle Anorak had stood. It was completely barren and eerily silent. There was no rubble from the destroyed castle and no wreckage from the thousands of spaceships and aircraft that had filled the sky a few moments ago. In fact, there was no sign at all of the grand battle that had just been fought here. The cataclyst had vaporized everything. I looked down at my avatar and saw that I was now wearing a black t-shirt and blue jeans, 
the default outfit that appeared on every newly created avatar. Then I pulled up my stats and item inventory. My avatar had the same level and ability scores I'd had previously, but my inventory was completely empty except for one item, the quarter I'd obtained after playing my perfect game of Pac-Man on arcade. Once I'd placed the quarter in my inventory, I hadn't been able to remove it, so I'd never been able to have any divination or identification spells cast on it. I'd had no way of ascertaining the quarter's true purpose or powers. During the tumultuous events of the past few months, I'd forgotten I even had the damn thing. But now, I knew what the quarter was. A single-use artifact that gave my avatar an extra life. Until that moment... I hadn't even known such a thing was possible. In the history of the Oasis, there was no record of any avatar ever acquiring an extra life. I selected the quarter in my inventory and tried again to remove it. This time, I was able to take it out and hold it in the palm of my avatar's hand. Now that the artifact's sole power had been used, it no longer possessed any magical properties. Now, it was just a quarter. I looked straight up at the crystal gate floating 20 meters above me. It was still sitting there, wide open. But I had no idea how I was going to get up there to enter it. I had no jet boots, no ship, and no magic items or memorized spells. Nothing that would allow me to fly or levitate, and there wasn't a single stepladder in sight. There I was, standing a stone's throw from the third gate, but unable to reach it. Hey, Z, I heard a voice say. Can you hear me? It was H, but her voice was no longer altered to sound male. I could hear her perfectly, as if she were talking to me via comlink, but that didn't make sense, because my avatar no longer had a comlink, and H's avatar was dead. Where are you? I asked the empty air. I'm dead like everyone else, H said. Everyone but you. Then how can I hear you? Og patched all of us into your audio and video feeds, she said, so we can see what you see and hear what you hear. Oh, I said. Is that all right with you, Parzival? I heard Og ask. If it isn't, just say so. I thought about it for a moment. No, it's fine with me, I said. Shoto and Artemis are listening in too? Yes, Shoto said. I'm here. Yeah, we're here all right, Artemis said, and I could hear the barely contained rage in her voice, and we're all dead as doornails. The question is, why aren't you dead too, Parzival? Yeah, Z, H said, we are a bit curious about that. What happened? I took out the quarter and held it up in front of my eyes. I was awarded this quarter on arcade a few months ago for playing a perfect game of Pac-Man. It was an artifact, but I never knew its purpose. Not until now. Turns out it gave me an extra life. I heard only silence for a moment. Then H began to laugh. You lucky son of a bitch, she said. The news feeds are reporting that every single avatar in the sector was just killed. Over half the population of the Oasis. Was it the Cataclyst? I asked. It had to be. Artemis said. The Sixers must have bought it when it went up for auction a few years ago, and they've been sitting on it all this time, waiting for the perfect moment to detonate it. 
But they just killed off all of their own troops too, Shoto said. Why would they do that? I think most of them were already dead, Artemis said. The Sixers had no choice, I said. It was the only way they could stop us. We'd already opened the third gate and were about to step inside. When they detonated that thing... I paused, realizing something. How did they know we'd opened it? Unless... They were watching us, H said. The Sixers probably had remote surveillance cameras hidden all around the gate. So they saw us open it, Artemis said, which means they know how to open it now, too. Who cares, Shoto interjected. Sorrento's avatar is dead, and so are all of the other Sixers. Wrong, Artemis said. Check the scoreboard. There are still 26er avatars listed there, below Parzival, and their scores indicate that every single one of them has a copy of the Crystal Key. Shit, H and Shoto said in unison. The Sixers knew they might have to detonate the Cataclyst, I said, so they must have taken the precaution of moving some of their avatars outside of Sector 10. They were probably waiting in a gunship just across the Sector border where it was safe. You're right, H said, which means there are 20 more Sixers headed your way right now, Z, so you need to get your ass moving and get inside that gate. This is probably going to be your only chance to clear it. I heard her let out a defeated sigh. It's over for us. So we're all rooting for you now, amigo. Good luck. Thanks, H. Gokun o inorimasu, Shoto said. Do your best. I will, I said. Then I waited for Artemis to give me her blessing, too. Good luck, Parzival, she said after a long pause. H is right, you know. You're never going to get another shot at this, and neither will any other Gunter. I heard her voice catch, as if she were choking back tears. Then she took a deep breath and said, Don't screw this up. I won't, I said. No pressure, right? I glanced back up at the open gate, suspended in the air above me, so far out of reach. Then I dropped my gaze and began to scan the area, desperately trying to figure out how I was going to get up there. Something caught my eye, just a few flickering pixels in the distance, near the opposite end of the crater. I ran toward them. Uh, not to be a backseat driver or anything, H said, but where the hell are you going? All of my avatar's items were destroyed by the cataclyst, I said, so now I have no way to fly up there and reach the gate. You've got to be kidding me, H sighed. Man, the hits just keep on coming. As I approached the object in the distance, it became gradually clearer. It was the beta capsule, floating just a few centimeters above the ground, spinning clockwise. The cataclyst had destroyed everything in the sector that could be destroyed. But artifacts were indestructible, just like the gate. It's the beta capsule, Shoto shouted. It must have been thrown over here by the force of the blast. You can use it to become Ultraman and fly up to the gate. I nodded, raised the capsule over my head, then pressed the button on the side to activate it. But nothing happened. Shit, I muttered, realizing why. It won't work. It can only be used once a day. I stowed the beta capsule and started to scan the ground around me. 
There must be other artifacts scattered around here, I said. I began to run along the perimeter of the castle foundation, still scanning the ground. Were any of you guys carrying artifacts? One that would give me the ability to fly, or levitate, or teleport? No, answered Shoto. I didn't have any artifacts. My sword of the Bahir was an artifact, H said, but it won't help you reach the gate. But my chucks will, Artemis said. Your chucks? I repeated. My shoes. Black Chuck Taylor All-Stars. They bestow their wearer with both speed and flight. Great! Perfect! I said. Now I just have to find them. I continued to run forward, eyes sweeping the ground. I found H's sword a minute later and added it to my inventory, but it took me another five minutes of searching before I found Artemis's magic sneakers near the south end of the crater. I put them on, and they adjusted to fit my avatar's feet perfectly. I'll get these back to you, Artie, I said, just as I finished lacing them up. Promise. You better, she said. They were my favorites. I took three running steps, leapt into the air, and then I was flying. I swooped up and around, then turned back toward the gate, aiming straight for it. But at the last moment, I banked to the right, then arced back around. I stopped to hover in front of the open gate. The crystal doorway hung in the air directly ahead, just a few yards away. It reminded me of the floating door in the opening credits of the original Twilight Zone. What are you waiting for? H shouted. The Sixers could show up any minute now. I know, I said, but there's something I need to say to all of you before I go in. Well, Artemis said, spit it out. The clock is ticking, fool. Okay, okay, I said. I just wanted to say that I know how the three of you must feel right now. It isn't fair the way this has played out. We should all be entering the gate together. So before I go in, I want you guys to know something. If I reach the egg, I'm going to split the prize money equally among the four of us. Stunned silence. Hello, I said after a few seconds. Did you guys hear me? Are you insane? H asked. Why would you do that, Z? Because it's the only honorable thing to do, I said. Because I never would have gotten this far on my own. Because all four of us deserve to see what's inside that gate and find out how the game ends. And because I need your help. Could you repeat that last bit, please? Artemis asked. I need your help, I said. You guys are right. This is my only shot at clearing the third gate. There won't be any second chances for anyone. The Sixers will be here soon, and they'll enter the gate as soon as they arrive. So I have to clear it before they do on my first attempt. The odds of me pulling that off will increase drastically if the three of you are backing me up. So what do you say? Count me in, Z, H said. I was planning to coach your dumbass anyway. Count me in, too, said Shoto. I've got nothing left to lose. Let me get this straight, Artemis said. We help you clear the gate. And in return, you agree to split the prize money with us? Wrong, I said. If I win, I'm going to split the prize money with you guys, regardless of whether you help me or not. So helping me is probably in your best interest. I don't suppose we have time to get that in writing, Artemis said. I thought for a moment, 
then accessed my POV channel's control menu. I initiated a live broadcast so everyone watching my channel, my ratings counter said I currently had more than 200 million viewers, could hear what I was about to say. Greetings, I said. This is Wade Watts, also known as Parzival. I want to let the whole world know that if and when I find Halliday's Easter egg, I hereby vow to split my winnings equally with Artemis, H, and Shoto. Cross my heart and hope to die. Gunter's honor, pinky swear, all of that crap. If I'm lying, I should be forever branded as a gutless, sixer-filating punk. As I finished the broadcast, I heard Artemis say, Dude, are you nuts? I was kidding. Oh, I said. Right. I knew that. I cracked my knuckles, then flew forward into the gate, and my avatar vanished into the whirlpool of stars. Chapter 37 I found myself standing in a vast, dark, empty space. I couldn't see the walls or ceiling, but there appeared to be a floor because I was standing on something. I waited a few seconds, unsure of what to do. Then, a booming electronic voice echoed through the void. It sounded as if it were being generated by a primitive speech synthesizer, like those used in Qbert and Gorf. Beat the high score or be destroyed, the voice announced. A shaft of light appeared, shining down from somewhere high above. There, in front of me, at the base of this long pillar of light, stood an old, coin-operated arcade game. I recognized its distinctive, angular cabinet immediately. Tempest, Atari, 1980. I closed my eyes and dropped my head. Crap, I muttered. This is not my best game, gang. Come on, I heard Artemis whisper. You had to know Tempest was going to factor into the third gate somehow. It was so obvious. Oh, really? I said. Why? Because of the quote on the last page of the almanac, she replied. I must uneasy make, lest too light winning make the prize light. I know the quote, I said, annoyed. It's from Shakespeare, but I figured it was just Halliday's way of letting us know how difficult he was going to make the hunt. It was, Artemis said, but it was also a clue. That quote was taken from Shakespeare's final play, The Tempest. Shit, I hissed. How the hell did I miss that? I never made that connection either, H confessed. Bravo, Artemis. The game Tempest also appears briefly in the music video for the song Subdivisions by Rush, she added. One of Halliday's favorites? Pretty hard to miss. Whoa, Shoto said. She's good. Okay! I shouted. It should have been obvious. No need to rub it in. I take it you haven't had much practice at this game, Z? H said. A little, a long time ago, I said. But not nearly enough. Look at the high score. I pointed at the monitor. The high score was 728,329. The initials next to it were JDH, James Donovan Halliday. And, as I feared... The credit counter at the bottom of the screen had a numeral one in front of it. Yikes, H said. 
only one credit, just like Black Tiger. I remembered the now useless extra life quarter in my inventory and took it out, but when I dropped it into the coin slot, it fell right through into the coin return. I reached down to remove it and saw a sticker on the coin mechanism. Tokens only. So much for that idea, I said, and I don't see a token machine anywhere around here. Looks like you only get one game, H said, all or nothing. Guys, I haven't played Tempest in years, I said. I'm screwed. There's no way I'm going to beat Halliday's high score on my first attempt. You don't have to, Artemis said. Look at the copyright year. I glanced at the bottom of the screen. Copyright MCM LXXX, Atari. 1980, H said. How does that help him? Yeah, I said. How does that help me? That means this is the very first version of Tempest, Artemis said. The version that shipped with a bug in the game code. When Tempest first hit the arcades, kids discovered that if you died with a certain score, the machine would give you a bunch of free credits. Oh, I said, somewhat ashamed. I didn't know that. You would, Artemis said, if you'd researched the game as much as I did. Damn, girl, H said. You've got some serious knowledge. Thanks, she said. It helps to be an obsessive-compulsive geek. With no life. Everyone laughed at that, except me. I was much too nervous. Okay, Artie, I said. What do I need to do to get those free games? I'm looking it up in my quest journal right now, she said. I could hear paper rustling. It sounded like she was flipping through the pages of an actual book. You just happen to have a hard copy of your journal with you? I asked. I've always kept my journal longhand in spiral notebooks, she said. Good thing, too, since my Oasis account and everything in it was just erased. More flipping of pages. Here it is. First, you need to rack up over 180,000 points. Once you've done that, make sure you end the game with a score where the last two digits are 06, 11, or 12. If you do that, you'll get 40 free credits. You're absolutely positive? Positively absolutely. Okay, I said. Here goes. I began to run through my pregame ritual, stretching, cracking my knuckles, rolling my head and neck left and right. Christ, will you get on with it? H said. The suspense is killing me here. Quiet, Shoto said. Give the man some room to breathe, will you? Everyone remained silent while I finished psyching myself up. Here goes nothing, I said. Then I hit the flashing player one button. Tempest used old-school vector graphics, so the game's images were created from glowing neon lines drawn against a pitch-black screen. You're given a top-down view of a three-dimensional tunnel, and you use a spinning rotary dial to control a shooter that travels around the rim of the tunnel. The object of the game is to shoot the enemies crawling up out of the tunnel toward you while dodging their fire and avoiding other obstacles. As you proceed from one level to the next, the tunnels take on gradually more complex geometric shapes, and the number of enemies and obstacles crawling up toward you multiplies drastically. 
Halliday had put this Tempest machine on tournament settings, so I couldn't start the game any higher than level 9. It took me about 15 minutes to get my score up above 180,000, and I lost two lives in the process. I was even rustier than I thought. When my score hit 189,412, I intentionally impaled my shooter on a spike, using up my last remaining life. The game prompted me to enter my initials, and I nervously tapped them in. W. O. W. When I finished, the game's credit counter jumped from zero up to 40. The sound of my friend's wild cheers filled my ears, nearly giving me a heart attack. Artemis, you're a genius, I said once the noise died down. I know. I tapped the player one button again and began a second game, now focused on beating Halliday's high score. I still felt anxious, but considerably less so. If I didn't manage to get the high score this time, I had 39 more chances. During a break between waves, Artemis spoke up. So, your initials are WOW? What does the O stand for? Obtuse, I said. She laughed. No, seriously. Owen. Owen, she repeated. Wade Owen Watts. That's nice. Then she fell silent again as the next wave began. I finished my second game a few minutes later with a score of 219,584. Not horrible, but a far cry from my goal. Not bad, H said. Yeah, but not that good either, Shoto observed. Then he seemed to remember that I could hear him. I mean, much better, Parzival. You're doing great. Thanks for the vote of confidence, Shoto. Hey, check this out, Artemis said, reading from her journal. The creator of Tempest, Dave Thurer, originally got the idea for the game from a nightmare he had about monsters crawling up out of a hole in the ground and chasing after him. She laughed her little musical laugh, which I hadn't heard in so long. Isn't that cool, Z? she said. That is cool, I replied. Somehow, just hearing her voice set me at ease. I think she knew this, and that was why she kept talking to me. I felt re-energized. I hit the player one button again and began my third game. They all watched me play in complete silence. Nearly an hour later, I lost my last man. My final score was 437,977. As soon as the game ended, H's voice cut in. Bad news, amigo, she said. What? We were right. When the cataclyst went off, the Sixers had a group of avatars in reserve waiting just outside the sector. Right after the detonation, they re-entered the sector and headed straight for Thonia. They... Her voice trailed off. They what? They just entered the gate about five minutes ago, Artemis answered. The gate closed after you went in, but when the Sixers arrived, they used three of their own keys to reopen it. You mean the Sixers are already inside the gate? Right now? Eighteen of them, H said. When they stepped through the gate, each one entered a standalone simulation, a separate instance of the gate. All eighteen of them are playing Tempest right now, just like you, trying to beat Halliday's high score. And all of them used the exploit to get 40 free credits. Most of them aren't doing that well, but one of them has some serious skill. 
We think Sorrento is probably operating that avatar. He just started his second game. Wait a second, I interrupted. How can you possibly know all this? Because we can see them, Shoto said. Everyone logged into the Oasis right now can see them. They can see you, too. What the hell are you talking about? The moment someone enters the third gate, a live vid feed of their avatar appears at the top of the scoreboard, Artemis said. Apparently, Halliday wanted clearing the final gate to be a spectator sport. Wait, I said. You mean to tell me that the entire world has been watching me play Tempest for the past hour? Correct, Artemis said. And they're watching you stand there and jabber back at us right now, too, so watch what you say. Why didn't you guys tell me? I shouted. We didn't want to make you nervous, H said, or distract you. Oh, great, perfect, thank you, I was shouting, somewhat hysterically. Calm down, Parzival, Artemis said. Get your head back in the game. This is a race now. There are 18 Sixer avatars right behind you, so you need to make this next game count, understand? Yeah, I said, exhaling slowly. I understand. I took another deep breath and pressed the player one button once again. As usual, competition brought out the best in me. This time, I managed to slip into the zone. Spinner, zapper, super zapper, clear a level, avoid the spikes. My hands began to work the controls without my even having to think about it. I forgot about what was at stake, and I forgot about the millions of people watching me. I lost myself in the game. I'd been playing just over an hour and had just cleared level 81 when I heard another wild burst of cheering in my ears. You did it, man! I heard Shoto shout. My eyes darted up to the top of the screen. My score was 802,488. I kept playing, instinctively wanting to get the highest score possible. But then I heard Artemis loudly clear her throat, and I realized there was no need to go any further. In fact, I was now wasting valuable seconds, burning away whatever lead I still had on the Sixers. I quickly depleted my two extra lives, and Game Over flashed on the screen. I entered my initials again, and they appeared at the top of the list, just above Halliday's high score. Then the monitor went blank, and a message appeared in the center of the screen. Well done, Parzival. Prepare for Stage 2. Then the game cabinet vanished, and my avatar vanished with it. I found myself galloping across a fog-covered hillside. I assumed I was riding a horse, because I was bobbing up and down, and I heard the sound of hoofbeats. Directly ahead, a familiar-looking castle had just appeared out of the fog. But when I looked down at my avatar's body, I saw that I wasn't riding a horse at all. I was walking on the ground. My avatar was now dressed in a suit of chainmail armor, and my hands were held out in front of my body as though I were clutching a set of reins. But I wasn't holding anything. My hands were completely empty. I stopped moving forward, and the sound of hoofbeats also ceased, but not until a few seconds later. I turned around and saw the source of the sound. It wasn't a horse. It was a man banging two coconut halves together. Then I knew where I was. 
inside the first scene of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, another of Halliday's favorite films, and perhaps the most beloved geek film of all time. It appeared to be another flick sync, like the War Games simulation inside Gate One. I was playing King Arthur. I realized. I wore the same costume Graham Chapman had worn in the film, and the man with the coconuts was my trusty manservant Patsy, as played by Terry Gilliam. Patsy bowed and groveled a bit when I turned to face him, but said nothing. It's Python's Holy Grail! I heard Shoto whisper excitedly. Duh! I said, forgetting myself for a second. I know that Shoto. A warning flashed on my display. Incorrect dialogue. A score of minus one hundred points appeared in the corner of my display. Smooth move, X Lax. I heard Artemis say. Just let us know if you need any help, Z. H said. Wave your hands or something, and we'll feed you the next line. I nodded and gave a thumbs up, but I didn't think I was going to need much help. Over the past six years, I'd watched Holy Grail exactly one hundred fifty-seven times. I knew every word by heart. I glanced back up at the castle ahead of me, already aware of what was waiting for me there. I began to gallop again, holding my invisible reins as I pretended to ride forward. Once again, Patsy began to bang his coconut halves together, galloping along behind me. When we reached the entrance of the castle, I pulled back on my reins and brought my steed to a halt. "Ho there!" I shouted. My score increased by one hundred points, bringing it back up to zero. On cue, two soldiers appeared up above, leaning over the castle wall. "Who goes there?" One of them shouted down at us. "It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon, from the castle of Camelot." I recited, "King of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England." My score jumped another five hundred points, and a message informed me that I'd received a bonus for my accent and inflection. I felt myself relax, and I realized I was already having fun. Pull the other one, the soldier replied. I am, I continued, and this is my trusty servant, Patsy. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. I must speak with your lord and master. Another five hundred points in my ear. I could hear my friends giggling and applauding. What? The other soldier replied, "Ridden on a horse." Yes, I said. One hundred points. You're using coconuts. What? I said. One hundred points. You've got two empty halves of coconut, and you're banging them together. So. We have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land, through the kingdom of Mercia, through another five hundred points. Where'd you get the coconuts? And so it went. The character I was playing changed from one scene to the next, switching to whomever had the most dialogue. Incredibly, I flubbed only six or seven lines. Each time I got stumped, all I had to do was shrug and hold out my hands, palms up. My signal that I needed some help, and H, Artemis, and Shoto would all gleefully feed me the correct line. The rest of the time, they remained silent, except for the occasional giggle fit or burst of laughter. 
The only really difficult part was not laughing myself, especially when Artemis started doing note-perfect recitations of all of Carol Cleveland's lines in the Castle Anthrax scene. I cracked up a few times and got hit with score penalties for it. Otherwise, it was smooth sailing. Reenacting the film wasn't just easy, it was a total blast. About halfway through the movie, right after my confrontation with the Knights of Knee, I opened up a text window on my display and typed, Status on the Sixers? Fifteen of them are still playing Tempest, I heard H reply, but three of them beat Halliday's score and are now inside the Grail simulation. A brief pause. And the leader, Sorrento, we think, is running just nine minutes behind you. And so far he hasn't missed a single line of dialogue, Shoto added. I nearly cursed out loud, then caught myself and typed, Shit! Exactly, Artemis said. I took a deep breath and returned my attention to the next scene. The Tale of Sir Lancelot. H continued to give me updates on the Sixers whenever I asked for them. When I reached the film's final scene, The Assault on the French Castle, I grew anxious again, wondering what would happen next. The first gate had required me to reenact a movie, War Games, and the second gate had contained a video game challenge, Black Tiger. So far, the third gate had contained both. I knew there must be a third stage, but I had no idea what it might be. I got my answer a few minutes later. As soon as I completed Holy Grail's final scene, my display went black while the silly organ music that ends the film played for a few minutes. When the music stopped, the following appeared on my display. Congratulations! You have reached the end. Ready, player one. And then, as the text faded away, I found myself standing in a huge, oak-paneled room, as big as a warehouse, with a high-vaulted ceiling and a polished hardwood floor. The room had no windows and only one exit. Large, double doors set into one of the four bare walls. An older high-end oasis immersion rig stood in the absolute center of the expansive room. Over a hundred glass tables surrounded the rig, arranged in a large oval around it. On each table, there was a different classic home computer or video game system, accompanied by tiered racks that appeared to hold a complete collection of its peripherals, controllers, software, and games. All of it was arranged perfectly, like a museum exhibit. Looking around the circle, from one system to the next, I saw that the computers seemed to be arranged roughly by year of origin, a PDP-1, an Altair 8800, an IMSI 8080, an Apple I, right next to an Apple II, an Atari 2600, a Commodore PET, an Intellivision, several different TRS-80 models, an Atari 400 and 800, a ColecoVision, a TI-99-4, a Sinclair ZX-80, a Commodore 64, various Nintendo and Sega game systems, the entire lineage of Macs and PCs, PlayStations, and Xboxes. Finally, completing the circle was an Oasis console, 
connected to the immersion rig in the center of the room. I realized that I was standing in a recreation of James Halliday's office, the room in his mansion where he'd spent most of the last 15 years of his life, the place where he'd coded his last and greatest game, the one I was now playing. I'd never seen any photos of this room, but its layout and contents had been described in great detail by the movers hired to clear the place out after Halliday's death. I looked down at my avatar and saw that I no longer appeared as one of the Monty Python knights. I was Parzival once again. First, I did the obvious and tried the exit. The doors wouldn't budge. I turned back and took another long look around the room, surveying the long line of monuments to the history of computing and video games. That was when I realized that the oval-shaped ring in which they were arranged actually formed the outline of an egg. In my head, I recited the words of Halliday's first riddle, the one in Anorak's invitation. Three hidden keys open three secret gates, wherein the errant will be tested for worthy traits. And those with the skill to survive these straits will reach the end where the prize awaits. I'd reached the end. This was it. Halliday's Easter egg must be hidden somewhere in this room. Chapter 38 Do you guys see this? I whispered. There was no reply. Hello? H? Artemis? Shoto? Are you guys still there? Still no reply. Either Og had cut their voice links to me, or Halliday had coded this final stage of the gate so that no outside communication was possible. I was pretty sure it was the latter. I stood there in silence for a minute, unsure of what to do. Then... I followed my first instinct and walked over to the Atari 2600. It was hooked up to a 1977 Zenith color TV. I turned on the TV, but nothing happened. Then I switched on the Atari. Still nothing. There was no power, even though both the TV and the Atari were plugged into electrical outlets set into the floor. I tried the Apple II on the table beside it. It wouldn't switch on either. After a few minutes of experimentation, I discovered that the only computer that would power on was one of the oldest, the IMSI 8080, the same model of computer Matthew Broderick owned in War Games. When I booted it up, the screen was completely blank, save for one word, login. I typed in Anorak and hit enter. Identification not recognized. Connection terminated. Then the computer shut itself off, and I had to power it back on to get the login prompt again. I tried Halliday. No dice. In War Games, the backdoor password that had granted access to the Whopper supercomputer was Joshua. Professor Falcon, the creator of the Whopper, had used the name of his son for the password, the person he loved most in the world. I typed in Og, 
it didn't work. Ogden didn't work either. I typed in Kira and hit the enter key. Identification not recognized. Connection terminated. I tried each of his parents' first names. I tried Zaphod, the name of his pet fish. Then Tiberius, the name of a ferret he'd once owned. None of them worked. I checked the time. I'd been in this room for over ten minutes now, which meant that Sorrento had caught up with me. So he would now be inside his own separate copy of this room, probably with a team of Halliday scholars whispering suggestions in his ear thanks to his hacked immersion rig. They were probably already working from a prioritized list of possibilities, entering them as fast as Sorrento could type. I was out of time. I clenched my teeth in frustration. I had no idea what to try next. Then. I remembered a line from Ogden Morrow's biography. The opposite sex made Jim extremely nervous, and Kira was the only girl that I ever saw him speak to in a relaxed manner. But even then, it was only in character as Anorak during the course of our gaming sessions, and he would only address her as Lucosia, the name of her D and D character. I rebooted the computer again. When the login prompt reappeared. I typed in Lucosia. Then, I hit the enter key. Every system in the room powered itself on. The sounds of whirring disk drives, self-test beeps, and other boot-up sounds echoed off the vaulted ceiling. I ran back over to the Atari 2600 and searched through the giant rack of alphabetized game cartridges beside it until I found the one I was looking for, Adventure. I shoved it into the Atari and turned the system on, then hit the reset switch to start the game. It took me only a few minutes to reach the secret room. I grabbed the sword and used it to slay all three of the dragons. Then I found the black key, opened the gates of the black castle, and ventured into its labyrinth. The gray dot was hidden right where it was supposed to be. I picked it up and carried it back across the tiny eight-bit kingdom. Then used it to pass through the magic barrier and enter the secret room. But unlike the original Atari game, this secret room didn't contain the name of Warren Robinette. Adventure's original programmer. Instead, at the very center of the screen, there was a large white oval with pixelated edges. An egg. The egg. I stared at the TV screen in stunned silence for a moment. Then I pulled the Atari joystick to the right, moving my tiny square avatar across the flickering screen. The TV's mono speaker emitted a brief electronic bip sound as I dropped the gray dot and picked up the egg. As I did, there was a brilliant flash of light, and then I saw that my avatar was no longer holding a joystick. Now, cupped in both of my hands, was a large silver egg. I could see my avatar's warped reflection on its curved surface. When I finally managed to stop staring at it, 
I looked up and saw that the double doors on the other side of the room had been replaced with the gate exit, a crystal-edged portal leading back into the foyer of Castle Anorak. The castle appeared to have been completely restored, even though the Oasis server still wouldn't reset for several more hours. I took one last look around Halliday's office. Then, still clutching the egg in my hands, I walked across the room and stepped through the exit. As soon as I was through it, I turned around just in time to see the crystal gate transform into a large wooden door set into the castle wall. I opened the wooden door. Beyond it, there was a spiral staircase that led up to the top of Castle Anorak's tallest tower. There, I found Anorak's study. Towering shelves lined the room, filled with ancient scrolls and dusty spellbooks. I walked over to the window and looked out on a stunning view of the surrounding landscape. It was no longer barren. The effects of the cataclyst had been undone, and all of Thonia appeared to have been restored along with the castle. I looked around the room. Directly beneath the familiar black dragon painting, there was an ornate crystal pedestal on which rested a gold chalice encrusted with tiny jewels. Its diameter matched that of the silver egg I held in my hands. I placed the egg in the chalice, and it fit perfectly. In the distance, I heard a fanfare of trumpets, and the egg began to glow. You win, I heard a voice say. I turned and saw that Anorak was standing right behind me. His obsidian black robes seemed to pull most of the sunlight out of the room. Congratulations, he said, stretching out his long-fingered hand. I hesitated, wondering if this was another trick, or perhaps one final test. The game is over, Anorak said, as if he'd read my mind. It's time for you to receive your prize. I looked down at his outstretched hand. Then, after a moment's hesitation, I took it. Cascading bolts of blue lightning erupted in the space between us, and their spiderweb tines enveloped us both, as if a surge of power were passing from his avatar into mine. When the lightning subsided, I saw that Anorak was no longer dressed in his black wizard's robes. In fact, he no longer looked like Anorak at all. He was shorter, thinner, and somewhat less handsome. Now, he looked like James Halliday, pale, middle-aged. He was dressed in worn jeans and a faded Space Invaders t-shirt. I looked down at my own avatar and discovered that I was now wearing Anorak's robes. Then I realized that the icons and readouts around the edge of my display had also changed. My stats were all completely maxed out, and I now had a list of spells, inherent powers, and magic items that seemed to scroll on forever. My avatar's level and hit point counters 
both had infinity symbols in front of them, and my credit readout now displayed a number 12 digits long. I was a multi-billionaire. I'm entrusting the care of the Oasis to you now, Parzival, Halliday said. Your avatar is immortal and all-powerful. Whatever you want, all you have to do is wish for it. Pretty sweet, eh? He leaned toward me and lowered his voice. Do me a favor. Try and use your powers only for good. Okay? Okay, I said in a voice that was barely a whisper. Halliday smiled, then gestured around us. This is your castle now. I've coded this room so that only your avatar can enter it. I did this to ensure that you alone have access to this. He walked over to a bookshelf against the wall and pulled on the spine of one of the volumes it held. I heard a click. Then the bookshelf slid aside, revealing a square metal plate set into the wall. In the center of the plate, there was a comically large red button, embossed with a single word, OFF. I call this the big red button, Halliday said. If you press it, it will shut off the entire oasis and launch a worm that will delete everything stored on the GSS servers, including all of the oasis source code. It will shut down the oasis forever. He smirked. So don't press it unless you're absolutely positive it's the right thing to do, okay? He gave me an odd smile. I trust your judgment. Halliday slid the bookshelf back into place, concealing the button once again. Then he startled me by putting his arm around my shoulders. Listen, he said, adopting a confidential tone. I need to tell you one last thing before I go. Something I didn't figure out for myself until it was already too late. He led me over to the window and motioned out at the landscape stretching out beyond it. I created the oasis because I never felt at home in the real world. I didn't know how to connect with the people there. I was afraid for all of my life, right up until I knew it was ending. That was when I realized, as terrifying and painful as reality can be, it's also the only place where you can find true happiness. Because reality is real. Do you understand? Yes, I said. I think I do. Good, he said, giving me a wink. Don't make the same mistake I did. Don't hide in here forever. He smiled and took a few steps away from me. All right. I think that covers everything. It's time for me to blow this pop stand. Then, Halliday began to disappear. 
he smiled and waved goodbye as his avatar slowly faded out of existence. Good luck, Parzival, he said. And thanks. Thanks for playing my game. Then, he was completely gone. Are you guys there? I said to the empty air a few minutes later. Yes, H said excitedly. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can now. What happened? The system cut off our voice links to you as soon as you entered Halliday's office, so we couldn't talk to you. Luckily, you didn't need our help anyway, Shoto said. Good job, man. Congratulations, Wade, I heard Artemis say, and I could tell she meant it, too. Thanks, I said, but I couldn't have done it without you guys. You're right, Artemis said. Remember to mention that when you talk to the media. Og says there are a few hundred reporters on their way here right now. I glanced back over at the bookshelf that concealed the big red button. Did you guys see everything Halliday said to me before he vanished? I asked. No, Artemis said. We saw everything up until he told you to try and use your powers only for good. Then your vid feed cut out. What happened after that? Nothing much, I said. I'll tell you about it later. Dude, H said. You've got to check the scoreboard. I opened a window and pulled up the scoreboard. The list of high scores was gone. Now, the only thing displayed on Halliday's website was an image of my avatar dressed in Anorak's robes holding the silver egg, along with the words, Parzival wins. What happened to the Sixers? I asked. The ones who were still inside the gate? We're not sure, H said. Their vid feeds vanished when the scoreboard changed. Maybe their avatars were killed, Shoto said. Or maybe... Maybe they were just ejected from the gate, I said. I pulled up my map of Thonia and saw that I could now teleport anywhere in the oasis simply by selecting my desired destination in the atlas. I zoomed in on Castle Anorak and tapped a spot just outside the front entrance, and in a blink, my avatar was standing there. I was right. When I'd cleared the third gate, the 18 Sixer avatars who were still inside had been ejected from the gate and deposited in front of the castle. They were all standing there with confused looks on their faces when I appeared in front of them, resplendent in my new threads. They all stared at me in silence for a few seconds, then pulled out guns and swords preparing to attack. They all looked identical, so I couldn't tell which one was being controlled by Sorrento, but at this point... I didn't really care. Using my avatar's new super-user interface, I made a sweeping gesture with my hand, selecting all of the Sixer avatars on my display. Their outlines began to glow red. Then I tapped the skull and crossbones icon that now appeared on my avatar's toolbar. All 18 Sixer avatars instantly dropped dead. Their bodies slowly faded out of existence each leaving behind a tiny pile of weapons and loot. Holy shit, I heard Shoto say over the comlink. How did you do that? You heard Halliday, H said. His avatar is immortal and all-powerful. Yeah, I said. He wasn't kidding either. 
Halliday also said you could wish for whatever you wanted, H said. What are you going to wish for first? I thought about that for a second. Then I tapped the new command icon that now appeared at the edge of my display and said, I wish for H, Artemis, and Shoto to be resurrected. A dialogue window popped up asking me to confirm the spelling of each of their avatar names. Once I did, the system asked me if, in addition to resurrecting their avatars, I wanted to restore all of their lost items, too. I tapped the yes icon. Then, a message appeared in the center of my display. Resurrection complete. Avatars restored. Guys, I said, you might want to try logging back into your accounts now. We're already on our way, H shouted. A few seconds later, Shoto logged back into his account, and his avatar materialized a short distance in front of me, in the exact spot where he'd been killed a few hours earlier. He ran over to me, grinning from ear to ear. Arigato, Pazival-san, he said, bowing low. I returned the bow, then threw my arms around him. Welcome back, I said. A moment later, H emerged from the castle entrance and ran over to join us. Good as new, he said, grinning down at his restored avatar. Thanks, Z. De nada. I glanced back through the castle's open entrance. Where's Artemis? She should have reappeared right next to you. She didn't log back in, H said. She said she wanted to go outside and get some fresh air. You saw her? What? I searched for the right words. How did she look? They both just smiled at me. Then H rested a hand on my shoulder. She said she'd be outside waiting for you whenever you're ready to meet her. I nodded. I was about to tap my logout icon when H held up her, his, hand. Wait a second. Before you log out, you've got to see something, he said, opening a window in front of me. This is airing on all of the news feeds right now. The feds just took Sorrento in for questioning. They stormed into IOI headquarters and yanked him right out of his haptic chair. A video clip began to play. Handheld camera footage showed a team of federal agents leading Sorrento across the lobby of the IOI corporate headquarters. He was still wearing his haptic suit and was shadowed by a gray-haired man in a suit who I assumed was his attorney. Sorrento looked annoyed more than anything, as if this were all just a mild inconvenience. The caption along the bottom of the window read, Top IOI Executive Sorrento Accused of Murder. The news feeds have been playing clips from the SIM cap of your chat link session with Sorrento all day, H said, pausing the clip especially the part where he threatens to kill you and then blows up your aunt's trailer. H hit play, and the news clip continued. The federal agents continued to usher Sorrento through the lobby, which was packed with reporters, all pushing against one another and shouting questions. The reporter shooting the video we were watching lunged forward and jammed the camera in Sorrento's face. Did you give the order to kill Wade Watts personally? The reporter shouted. How does it feel to know you just lost the contest? Sorrento smiled, but didn't reply. Then, his attorney stepped in front of the camera and addressed the reporters. 
The charges leveled against my client are preposterous, he said. The SIM cap being circulated is clearly a doctored fake. We have no other comment at this time. Sorrento nodded. He continued to smile as the feds led him out of the building. The bastard will probably get off scot-free, I said. IOI can afford to hire the best lawyers in the world. Yes, they can, H said. Then he flashed his Cheshire grin. But now, so can we. Chapter 39 When I stepped out of the immersion bay, Og was standing there waiting for me. Well done, Wade, he said, pulling me into a crushing bear hug. Well done. Thanks, Og. I was still dazed and felt unsteady on my feet. Several chief executives from GSS arrived while you were logged in, Og said, along with all of Jim's lawyers. They're all waiting upstairs. As you can imagine, they're anxious to speak with you. Do I have to talk to them right now? No, of course not, he laughed. They all work for you now, remember? Make the bastards wait as long as you like. He leaned forward. My lawyer is up there, too. He's a good guy, a real pit bull. He'll make sure that no one messes with you, okay? Thanks, Og, I said. I really owe you. <laughs> Nonsense, he said. I should be thanking you. I haven't had this much fun in decades. You did good, kid. I glanced around uncertainly. H and Shoto were still in their immersion bays, holding an impromptu online press conference. But Artemis's bay was empty. I turned back to Og. Do you know which way Artemis went? Og grinned at me, then pointed. Up those stairs and out the first door you see, he said. She said she'd wait for you at the center of my hedge maze, he smiled. It's an easy maze. It shouldn't take you very long to find her. I stepped outside and squinted as my eyes adjusted to the light. The air was warm and the sun was already high overhead. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was a beautiful day. The hedge maze covered several acres of land behind the mansion. The entrance was designed to look like the facade of a castle, and you entered the maze through its open gates. The dense hedge walls that comprised the maze were ten feet tall, making it impossible to peek over them, even if you stood on top of one of the benches placed throughout the labyrinth. I entered the maze and wandered around in circles for a few minutes, confused. Eventually, I realized that the maze's layout was identical to the labyrinth in Adventure. After that, it took me only a few more minutes to find my way to the large open area at the maze's center. A large fountain stood there, with a detailed stone sculpture of Adventure's three duck-shaped dragons. Each dragon was spitting a stream of water instead of breathing fire. And then I saw her. She was sitting on a stone bench, staring into the fountain. She had her back to me, and her head was tilted down. Her long black hair spilled down over her right shoulder. I could see that she was kneading her hands in her lap. 
I was afraid to move any closer. Finally, I worked up the courage to speak. Hello, I said. She lifted her head at the sound of my voice, but didn't turn around. Hello, I heard her say. And it was her voice. Artemis's voice. The voice I'd spent so many hours listening to. And that gave me the courage to step forward. I walked around the fountain and stopped once I was standing directly in front of her. As she heard me approach, she turned her head away, averting her eyes and keeping me out of her field of vision. But I could see her. She looked just as she had in the photo I'd seen. She had the same Rubenesque body, the same pale, freckled skin, the same hazel eyes and raven hair, the same beautiful round face with the same reddish birthmark. But unlike in that photo, she wasn't trying to hide the birthmark with a sweep of her hair. She had her hair brushed back so I could see it. I waited in silence, but she still wouldn't look up at me. You look just like I always pictured you, I said. Beautiful. Really? She said softly. Slowly, she turned to face me, taking in my appearance a little at a time, starting with my feet and then gradually working her way up to my face. When our eyes finally met, she smiled at me nervously. Well, what do you know? You look just like I always thought you would, too, she said. But ugly. We both laughed, and most of the tension in the air dissipated. Then we stared into each other's eyes for what seemed like a long time. It was, I realized, also the very first time. We haven't been formally introduced, she said. I'm Samantha. Hello, Samantha. I'm Wade. It's nice to finally meet you in person, Wade. She patted the bench beside her, and I sat down. After a long silence, she said, So... What happens now? I smiled. We're going to use all of the moolah we just won to feed everyone on the planet. We're going to make the world a better place, right? She grinned. Don't you want to build a huge interstellar spaceship, load it full of video games, junk food, and comfy couches, and then get the hell out of here? I'm up for that, too, I said. If it means I get to spend the rest of my life with you. She gave me a shy smile. We'll have to see, she said. We just met, you know. I'm in love with you. Her lower lip started to tremble. You're sure about that? Yes, I am. Because it's true. She smiled at me, but I also saw that she was crying. I'm sorry for breaking things off with you she said, 
for disappearing from your life. I just, it's okay, I said. I understand why you did it now. She looked relieved. You do? I nodded. You did the right thing. You think so? We won, didn't we? She smiled at me, and I smiled back. Listen, I said. We can take things as slow as you like. I'm really a nice guy once you get to know me. I swear. She laughed and wiped away a few of her tears, but she didn't say anything. Did I mention that I'm also extremely rich? I said. Of course, so are you, so I don't suppose that's a big selling point. You don't need to sell me on anything, Wade, she said. You're my best friend. My favorite person. With what appeared to be some effort, she looked me in the eye. I've really missed you, you know that? My heart felt like it was on fire. I took a moment to work up my courage. Then I reached out and took her hand. We sat there a while, holding hands, reveling in the strange new sensation of actually touching one another. Some time later, she leaned over and kissed me. It felt just like all those songs and poems had promised it would. It felt wonderful, like being struck by lightning. It occurred to me then that for the first time in as long as I could remember, I had absolutely no desire to log back into the oasis. This is Will Wheaton. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. This program was directed by Tony Huds. Executive producer, Dan Musselman. Text, copyright 2011 by Dark All Day Incorporated. Production, copyright 2011, Random House Inc. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.